This episode of How To Wrestling was requested by Alex Thompson, one of our lovely backers over at patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling. And hey, you can support the show and get access to over 50 exclusive episodes as well as our How To Revisited series by becoming just a $5 backer. Kevin! I've been watching Mick Foley matches, and now I have a taste for barbed wire, C4 explosives, and actual fire. Well, that's alarming. Get yourself an awesome new wrestling mobile video game instead. It's called The Muscle Hustle, and it's available for free on Google Play and the App Store for all mankind. And as the best things in life are free, you can get a free gift from your best podcast pals by putting in the code HOWTOMICKFOLEY to get a special gift in-game. Have mercy! And hey, if you're an independent creator or wrestling brand, and you want to get a shout out on the show send an all email to howtowrestling at gmail.com but for now have a nice day wait and enjoy our new episode it's how to mick foley Greetings, friends, and welcome to the episode of How To Wrestling, the world's first podcast detailing how to wrestling, how to get into wrestling, how to understand wrestling, and goodness knows maybe even how to enjoy wrestling. And we are endeavouring today to have a nice day, to have mercy by way of Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, because today is about Mrs. Foley's baby boy, the three faces of Mick Foley. Hello, everyone, once again. It's me, Cowboy Kevin Mann, saddling up alongside one of the faces of Joanna Graham, Joe Graham. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks. I kind of can't believe we're actually doing this episode finally. Oh, I mean, this is kind of scary for Isn't me. Isn't it? Yeah, like... I, I found it a bit difficult to go to sleep last night because it felt like it was almost like Christmas. It's Mickmas Eve last night is what it was, <laughs> Joe. This is a, a, a quite a large episode and one which I imagine there'll be a, a lot of interest in, mainly because... For many people, myself included, the person we're talking about today was the entry point into professional wrestling. And I can't think of anyone who I thought at least made me a fan as a kid more than this gentleman we're talking about today. But this isn't the first time you've heard about Mick Foley, is it, Joe? It's not, no. Tell us a little bit about your uh, history with the man, so to speak. So that makes it like you had some sort of illicit affair. Like. <laughs> Don't tell the listeners. Let's say those three faces of Foley are just making sense now. Yep. Kept changing his name and address, new passport, new life. Like, dude Love told his wife and kids he was going for coffee. That was 26 years ago. Aww. I feel bad <laughs> making jokes about this when he's a married man with kids. Like. Happily married, don't worry. We can have some fun. But yeah, uh, what is your experience with the Micker? So, when I first, first met you, Kevin... I first realised that there were cool people in the world that watched wrestling. And I was not one of them. Oh, yes you were. (laughs) You were one of them. I wanted to try and watch some wrestling of my own, like has been mentioned on this podcast previously. But for those who haven't been listening since the very beginning, Kevin made it difficult for me to try and learn anything at all about wrestling considering he is a wrestling podcaster and was when we met it's very much a mulan type situation where i was like yeah i will have i will not see over this and, uh, <laughs> because of the ancient uh, ways of my people i will not help you do this but then joe started doing it on her own and you kind yeah. of look over during the training montage and i'd be like okay she's obviously <laughs> a great warrior brackets wrestling enthusiast yes 
I, I'm kind of of the belief that I, I like I like having things in common with my romantic partners. And wrestling seemed exciting and new, and I wanted to learn about it. I wanted to have it in common with you because it's obviously a big part of your life, even if you were keeping it as almost like your shameful secret. <laughs> as many wrestling fans did, I think maybe still do. Yeah, uh, that's one thing which uh, this podcast have really endeavoured with, is that, you know, if we can help fans get into wrestling, awesome, or help fans increase their understanding, that's great. But goddammit, if we can help some of the 20-some-year veterans of watching wrestling just fucking accept that it's all right and <laughs> that you were laughed at when you were nine. Yeah, it's it's okay. okay. Yeah. Big Bully Craig isn't going to beat you up just because you still like wrestling. No, he's just a grown-up adult now, like a fucking freak. It's okay. You can just enjoy <laughs> your wrestling and let people know about it. So I had to do my own research because Kevin was not helping me. He made it very clear he was not going to assist in well, any way. Not without precedent. I mean, um, not that I have a particularly lengthy and intri- intricate romantic history, but with, with two X's, one, we stayed up to watch Hell in a Cell 2011, which was literally the darkest period in wrestling. Oh, no. Headlined by Miz and R-Truth running in a Hell in a Cell match, uh, during which point we both fell asleep, woke up with <laughs> headaches, and they said, do you remember when Edge and Christian used to be around? Wrestling was good then, wasn't it? I was like, yeah, that seems so long ago and uh, another uh, ex-partner who admitted to me within like I, I told them you know, I'm doing this wrestling podcast thing and very early they're like oh yeah no my, my ex was interesting and I uh, I read Bret Hart's entire book oh wow learned all about Bret Hart go, oh wow does that mean you understand wrestling yeah 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 can we watch some no ah. <laughs> it was like oh okay that was more of a it was like the opposite of Mick Foley's book where people read and get into wrestling. That was a book that someone read and decided... Wrestling's not for me, yeah. thanks. If it wasn't for him, like it's probably not for me either. And thanks a lot, Bret Hart. But to be fair, in those instances, you didn't have a person coming up to you and going, this sounds really cool, I don't know anything about it, please show me some. That is true, Which yes. is what I did. And still, still you wouldn't you wouldn't help. I was... I was you know, I don't want to fuck it up. Like, yeah, you know? it's a lot of pressure. That is. Is. And I understand if it's gone wrong previously. There's a reason hard. you didn't attempt to show me cats until like three years before <laughs> our relationship, you know? I really should have waited until we were married and then, then there's no escape for you. Yeah, you see, you, you fired your best shot too early. Yeah. You see, that's what happens. Damn it. I had to venture out on my own, which meant I, I got in touch with the only person I knew from my past who had watched any wrestling at all. And uh, that happened to be my two exes. Funny, both of our stories involve exes. My ex, Robert, he, I, I messaged him. I was like, do you know anything about wrestling? I want to watch wrestling. My new partner, he's really into it. And I just want to have something that I can start, sort of have as a conversation starter. Like, just where's a starting off point? Name a wrestler, please. And he mentioned Mick Foley. Oh, wow. And <laughs> he mentioned the 1998 Hell in a Cell match. And he said, but don't start with that. He's got fun stuff that I think you might like more. So he recommended I look for anything to do with Mick Foley and The Rock. Ooh. So that was where I started. I just went to YouTube. I searched for Mick Foley and The Rock. And I ended up with The Rock and Sock Connection. And I thought it was the funniest, best, most wholesome, wonderful thing ever. And I thought that this is what wrestling was supposed to be like. I mean, it would have been gone against some of your preconceived notions yeah. back when you were working the backyard scene. Absolutely. <laughs> Where were all the boring men in tight black pants? They were yet to come. <laughs> And I, I really enjoyed it. I, I watched all the segments where they kind of they have a bit of a laugh and there's a lot of mankind being goofy and trying really his hardest to impress The Rock, who's just constantly like, 
no, I'm too cool to hang out with you. <laughs> and it was just really nice and funny. And I didn't actually watch any wrestling, I don't think. It was just the, the segments in between matches. But even in hindsight, I think that's the best best way to get into wrestling is it because it shows so many of what i think are, are wrestling's greatest strengths outside of wrestling itself because i love i love the actual act of, of wrestling what happens once that bell rings it's something that i i'm very passionate about i know it's not for everyone's taste and certainly if you want to get someone to wrestling settling them down for a, a long ass wrestling match might be the best way to do it but i often think that wrestling fans don't realize the strength and the allure of the comedy and yeah. the personalities. I would say, yeah, the characters yeah. Is, is where you should start with any new wrestling fan. Because to a new wrestling fan, different abilities of wrestling actually means like nothing. I mean, I remember you showing me some really impressive wrestling matches, which just went completely over my head. And I just thought, well, how is this any different from a match of like Randy Orton against... I don't know. I can't, I can't even remember a random mid-carder at the time. But you know what I mean. Yeah, One of those yeah. kind of average matches, it, it meant nothing to me. Well, I do know that like kind of some of the first modern things that I showed you that really clicked. Because, I mean, I, I you know, despite the, uh, the great uh, fucking advice that we'd uh, always bestowed here, we did watch Hell in the Cell rather early in. Like. You did. But, to be fair, I had already seen all the character segments with like Mankind mm. and stuff. So I knew who he was and I really empathised with his character and thought he was great. And that would have made for a very emotional watch then, I guess. Yeah. But also we watched it in bed first thing in the morning after we woke up and we had like a cup of coffee in bed <laughs> and watched the 1998 Hell in the Cell match. And it was great. It's a great way to start your day. So brutality in bed. Yeah, that's if you're going to do it that way, do it that way. But I remember then like uh, launching off of that, kind of realizing the importance of characters. And then I was like, you idiot, like fucking Wyatt family and the shield. Like yeah. big characters. You don't need to have an appreciation of the technical aspects. They will show you that. And you can just appreciate seeing all these weird characters with all different shapes and sizes. And I think... Yeah, that is a strength of, of wrestling and certainly a huge strength of, of Mick Foley. He's a character who I know has got this mass appeal. Mick Foley is someone who obviously made me a fan as a kid. But like my parents, I remember they read Mick Foley's book when it came out in 1999 because they wanted to understand wrestling and they knew that this book was a way to do it. And I think they always understood wrestling at least at a baseline level because Mick Foley was in it and he seemed to be a bit all right like and I remember like a lot of friends of mine who were you know quite cool cats uh, in bands and all that stuff cool cats. and they would uh, you know they'd have lots of very cool uh, young hip friends and we all loved wrestling and Mick Foley was someone who like immediately clicked with lots of people who didn't watch wrestling they're like oh Mick Foley he's someone I could I could love or someone I could uh, be intrigued by hmm. so it's a bit intimidating almost, us getting into Mick Foley. Yeah, it is. How, how would you describe him for a new fan? Oh, I mean, what face of Mick Foley? How about Mick Foley himself? Mick Foley himself, okay. Mick Foley himself, he's a, a kind, charitable lover of wrestling who was willing to put his body through absolute hell, torture and turmoil in order to get face and name recognition. And he loves Christmas. <laughs> he certainly does. I mean, does he look like a typical wrestler? I mean, we talked in our Kevin Owens episode about, you know, what a, you know the, the prototypical, what a wrestler is meant to look like and the struggles that KO would have had. And that's in, you know, within the last 10, 15 mm. years. So, I mean, how does Foley rank up in terms of looking like a wrestler? 
I mean, he's changed a lot over the years how he's looked because he's gone through some, you know, some real bad injuries, which has meant he's gained a bit of weight and then other injuries, which meant he's lost weight Mm. and he's retired so many times and come back. And then he started doing DDP yoga later on. And that obviously really helped everything. He is an odd looking man. He doesn't look like a wrestler. If you see, if you saw him on the street, you'd think he's like a nice uncle mm. or a cool dad, not a professional hardcore wrestler. Yeah, and it's interesting though that you mention, you know, him maybe not immediately looking like a wrestler. But if you kind of dig beneath the surface, or maybe even comb that hair back a little bit, there's a lot of things, visible things about Mick Foley that immediately like shock you almost i mean we i know sabu is not a character we've done much uh, talk about but he's a, a car a wrestler who's covered in very visible scars over his body you look at his body and kind of go okay this guy is, has been through a lot uh, if you look at mick foley he's missing an ear he's missing front teeth he has got scars all over his uh, his head uh, his arm is covered in burns and very deep scars like his body tells a story about the fucking brutality he's put himself through. And for a long, long time, I'm not sure if he still recognized as such, but, you know, the back of Mick Foley's autobiography when it first came out, it was a diagram of of, of him pointing to all the different places he had had injuries. Mm. And to say he's one of the most injured or most battered men in wrestling, I don't want to say that, that it makes it that he's, like, incapable, but he definitely is probably the wrestler that gave of the most of himself yeah i mean fucking hell missing an ear like missing teeth that's fucking is pretty extreme does it not <laughs> but then i wouldn't say that that's like that's wrestling mm. i mean obviously those injuries are as a result of wrestling but i don't think for most people and myself included i don't think most people when you think of a wrestler you don't think of a guy with a lost ear and teeth battered in and all these other injuries because I think a lot of wrestlers care more about their physical appearance and their image than mm. they would do about necessarily wanting to put their bodies through harm. Yeah. Which is about as opposite <laughs> as you can get from Mick Foley, who gives gives not a shit about what his body looks like. He doesn't care that he's not, you know, a super hench, muscular, slim dude. You know, he's got a bit of a tummy on him. He looks he looks like he'd be a f- nice guy to give a big old hug to. He was referred to in the New York Times bestseller list as a pear-shaped grappler. Yeah, <laughs> and that's great. It's really nice that he... he, he I don't want to say that he like doesn't care about his body because he does, and he realizes how important it is as part of his look. Which mm. is again, I love that about wrestlers who don't look sort of stereotypically like wrestlers, but they like make it part of who they are. Yeah, as is right. So this may be a bit confusing in some respects, and uh, I'm I'm saying this off the bat because even legendary announcer Jim Ross often had difficulty calling him the right thing at the right time. But Mrs. Foley's baby boy, Mick Foley. He is a very unique character in wrestling in that his character is actually three separate characters. And through the main bulk of his career, he wasn't Mick Foley. He was either Cactus Jack, Mankind, or Dude Love. And I was wondering, Joe, if you could maybe elaborate for the folks at home on who these different characters are, what you have maybe noticed from our viewing the kind of defining traits of all these. Because we've watched a shitload of matches, we've read a book, we've watched documentaries... So tell me, who do you think Cactus Jack is then? Cactus Jack is the hardest one for me to define, I think, because it just seems to be Mick Foley, but a bit more hardcore. Mm, yeah. Cactus Jack wears leopard print boots <laughs> and people are scared of him. 
And he wears a t-shirt that says, wanted, dead. <laughs> and like, that's all I know about Cactus Jack is like, he's hardcore, he's Cactus Jack, he goes bang, bang. But I, like, I don't know really how that's different from like Mick Foley as yeah. a character, if I'm perfectly honest. Well, Cactus Jack was his original character. So that was just kind of him as a wrestler almost in, in many respects. So in many ways, particularly early Cactus Jack, it is the closest to of his three characters that is a mirror to himself. And almost less of an act, which at some point it was like, okay, well, you know, Mick Foley himself was obviously a very hardcore individual, but uh, Cactus Jack as well, also probably the darkest of the three characters in some respects. Now, how do you define that? I mean, emotionally, not like he's dark because he's a wacky character. He's dark because his his, his spirit is often broken. Or How you is know. he more dark than mankind? Well, let's just say Cactus Jack has cut some promos about fans having signs alluding to child abuse and things like that. But you know? mankind's gimmick is mm. that he's a I mean would it be accurate to call him a psychopath I mean we could ask to chat about mankind now and the psychopath is probably definitely a word we would use to describe him because like man okay so mankind he wears a mask mm-hmm. originally when he first started this character he would wear like a brown sack with some symbols on the back of it hey pal you want to wear the least flattering gimmick ever <laughs> we call you the turd burglar <laughs> Later on, he started wearing like a shirt and tie Mm. and stuff. And he pulls his hair out a lot. Oh, yeah, he was always in a boiler room (laughs) for some reason. It's a really weird character because... He did start off as being quite dark, but then yeah, this is it's impossible for me to kind of describe him because like he he changes so much. Yeah, like, there's been matches of his I've seen where like he's literally in a boiler room like beating up Santa Claus, and then there's also like times where he's very silly and very desperate to please like Vince McMahon mm. with clowns. Like when you mentioned Rock and Sock, that is part of mankind. So in in many ways, he is also. I mean. He's quite lovable. He becomes this lovable, cuddly character later on. But he also starts off as this very, very dark, twisted character. This deranged psychopath. It was a bit of a hard pill to swallow when I was a kid that he changed so much. Mm. Dude Love. How about that crazy cat? Dude Love is like a kind of stereotypical 1970s slash 1960s hippie. He's a crazy cat who... (laughs) talks like he's a disco dj or something yeah it's the 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 blending of disco and hippies that never happens yeah (laughs) i like it i like it it's obviously uh (laughs) it's a it's a type of character that you would have come up with as a kid obviously (laughs) as as is true he's he's cool with the ladies is is how they describe it (laughs) but then i don't do love again is a bit of an enigma to me because when we read his book Mm. he made out as though dude love was this like really cool guy but who also isn't cool at all and nobody thinks he's cool. Mm. How do the... I just don't understand how those two things can be true at the same time. I mean, a lot of why his characters work is because of how endeared he was to the audience. And like we're talking about probably, you know, during the peak of his run in the late 90s and early 2000s, one of the most beloved people ever. Like, he could he could do any number of things and pe- people would, would be willing to try and understand what he was trying to do and give him the time of day. A lot more than a lot of other performers, I think. So that's why maybe some of the stuff like Dude Love or, you know, quite big shifts of character was almost tolerated a lot more, I think, with him because you knew it was going to be entertaining. So people would kind of, I don't say put up with it like it was a bad thing, but 
it is quite confusing how often he changed between these. I mean, we looked at a Royal Rumble match where he came in three separate times as Mankind Dude Love and Cactus Jack, which trying to explain it now logically is almost impossible. But as a kid, I was like, wow, he's got three faces. That's the best thing ever. Why doesn't every wrestler have three personas? So when you're talking about Mick Foley, there's a lot of source material out there, so to speak. I would greatly recommend Have a Nice Day, which was his first autobiography. Much like Winston Churchill, he does actually have four autobiographies in total now, which may potentially be on a slightly excessive style. Yeah. Seeing as one of those books covers a 15-year career and the subsequent ones cover around between a year and two years. Mm. But I would definitely recommend checking that out. You can actually get an audiobook of Foley reading the book himself, which is quite a treat. Oh, that's cool. Or you can do like Joe and have your boyfriend read it to you as you're going to bed over a period of weeks. Mm -hmm. But we decided to watch For All Mankind, the quite definitive and lengthy documentary that would be produced back in 2013 about old Mick Foley. And it is an interesting tale indeed, and one which Foley tries to frame as saying that his story is a happy one. So Mick Foley, born in Indiana, but spending his whole life in Long Island, New York, uh, very much known for, uh, for being a, a son of Long Island. He is like, uh, he's written very extensively about his childhood and whatnot. He had loving parents. His father was Jack Foley, and he was the athletic director at their local high school, so he ran all the PE and all the track and field and all that stuff. That is the origin of Cactus Jack. Uh, Jack Foley was uh, his father, and Cactus Jack, he sent away for like a Dungeons and Dragons type wrestling role-playing game, right. and he made his family play him with it, and he made his dad be Cactus Jack. Oh, that's nice. So later when he started wrestling, he took that to be his moniker, to be Cactus Jack. It's a really cool name. It's one of the best. Yeah. So Cactus Jack was the uh, original character, I guess, then as a result. So he spent his formative years in high school. They talked to some of his friends and he talked about he was like, he was an odd kid, a creative kid, so to speak. Very uh, expressive. I remember reading his book as a kid and kind of going, oh, it's okay. There's big weirdos out there like myself (laughs) as well. Uh, did you hear about what he did when he played lacrosse? Well, he was in. He was a goalie. Yeah, uh, he ate worms to intimidate his opponents. Oh yeah, that's disgusting. Was there any weird kids like that in your school, or did you ever uh, imbibe worms or do anything weird? <laughs> I don't know. I probably would have been the weird kid. I wouldn't have eaten worms, but. I would have done other things to try and probably impress people. Yeah, yeah. I, I care about worms too much, I think. that I would mm. never, never eat one. Uh, he did take up wrestling when he was in high school. Little bit of amazing trivia for those you don't know. Uh, Foley was a heavyweight on his middle school wrestling team, but the star of the wrestling team was none other than motherfucking Paul Blart Mallcop. Huh? Kevin James. He was at the same school as Mick Foley. And he was the star on the wrestling team. Is he the guy who plays Paul Blart, Mall Cop? Yes. I've not seen that movie. Well, you know, you know, you know PB though, right? I mean, Paul Blart, the Paul Blart universe. I've seen him on a poster. Yeah, you, you know, King of Queens. No. King of Queens universe. No. Um, did no. Kevin James? He's a, he is a star. I have it on good authority that he's a star. I've not seen Paul Blart. I'll, either. I'll believe you. Yeah, I, I, I. I hope he is. This is Mick Foley having a bit of fun saying, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, I wrestled Paul Blart. 
that's a dream match waiting to happen if it's not actually <laughs> taking place. Paul Blart, which of the faces of Foley would you put in there with uh, with Paul Blart Molkop? Hmm, I don't know because yeah. I'm not familiar with Paul Blart Molkop. I imagine that Paul Blart is uh, quite a dark character, the darkest face of Kevin James in a way, so yeah. I think it would only be right to put him in there with Cactus Jack, I think. Cool. He talks greatly about the influence of being a fan growing up and like going to Madison Square Garden and seeing the likes of Jimmy Superfly Snooker like diving off the top of the cage. That's a big kind of impactful moment for him. A little bit spoiled by the fact that the guy who inspired him greatly to be a wrestler has uh, since posthumously been convicted of uh, third-degree murder. Cool. Cool. But I really think that is important, isn't it? If you are a wrestler, to be a fan and to... Because he says he's chasing the feeling his whole career that he felt. Like he wants to make fans feel like he felt when he was there in that in that arena. Mm. Do you ever get the feeling that you would ever want to become a wrestler to make people feel like you felt when you've been at wrestling shows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, who hasn't? It's a fucking, like, it's such a pure, like, driving force when yeah. you want to be, like, a big star in wrestling. When we did our episode on William Regal, there were many, many times where I was like, just oh i'd love to just make people feel like he makes me feel any particular moments like just the comedy segments where he's being such a dick where he's like where he's playing this horrible british nasty upper class like i just i don't know i relate to that I, yeah i kind of i would love people to be able to laugh at me in a similar way That's... if i was in wrestling I would be a manager and I would have that character, basically. <laughs> no one steal Joe's gimmick, okay? It's in <laughs> but I mean, I think Foley definitely achieved that because growing up as a kid, I was constantly in awe of him. Like, even though I didn't see him l- wrestle live ever, I remember like being stood up in front of my TV, seeing the things that he would do. I would like, when I would daydream, I would daydream about, um, you know, mankind being put through all these, you know, crazy spots and whatnot. My mankind action figure was thrown out of the my second story window several times because he had ingrained his sacrifice and the, the story of, of him doing these things was very much part of the zeitgeist of my childhood. Right. And, you know, I, I feel he's very successful in that because I think anyone who's a fan of Mick Foley totally was in awe of him and was sympathetic towards him and wanted him to be victorious and were terrified that something would be ha- bad happen to him. And when it did happen, you'll be blown away and like, ah, because you knew he'd be okay at the end of the day. That was the important thing. But you didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I just guess it was a bit... I mean, I was, it was quite ignorant, I guess, in many ways. I feel that that word could be used to describe the whole era of wrestling which Mick grew up during. He came up during a very interesting time. It was, you know, he would have had his first matches in like 85, 86. So really when Hulkamania was kind of on its downward tilt and wrestling had maybe become, in the WWF at least, a little bit cartoony, a little bit over the top. Certainly people weren't bleeding and certainly people weren't using weapons. And he said that the things that always struck him was when he was watching wrestling and going, oh, I can't explain that. Like, he jumped off a cage. You can't fake the fact that he's jumped off the top here. So he wanted to lend credibility back to wrestling because he thought that wrestling was lacking in it. And he wanted to make, in his own words, a loophole-free style so someone could watch his matches and kind of go, okay, there's no way he faked that. Now, I kind of feel that if he had been training maybe from a younger age or if he had had someone to mentor him from the wrestling industry someone could have maybe told him there's a reason why 
wrestling has loopholes. It's not he was told that so many times. Is it just a case of like, because I really feel, and this is going to come up probably a lot in this episode, is how necessary was it Mm. for Mick Foley to put his body through the pain that he did? Given his other skills. Given his other skills and given the success of his career. Because it's very easy to look at him as, you know, he is one of the, I'd say one of the top three biggest stars of like a period of of wrestling when it was at its most popular. Mm. Something that came up a lot in the tweets was people saying that, you know, at the time it was considered, you know, The Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin. Who was your favourite? When in actual fact it always should have been The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin or Mick Foley. Yeah, absolutely. all as important as each other in their own way in that period. And given given his massive success and given the fact that he's such a great entertainer and he cares so much about this business, oh, did he really have to do all those sick moves that broke his body? You're really hitting on the the dilemma that he himself yeah. agonized with for years because when you've like we've obviously read Have a Nice Day and he kind of at the end of that book it's like towards the end of 1999 where he win, or at the start of 1999 where he wins the championship for the first time and he kind of is like all right I I'm I have an entertaining aspect to me I can't do what I used to be able to do maybe it's okay that I'm moving in this direction and then like in later books you can see him start to kind of go well I don't want my legacy to be that I'm a character or that I'm known for comedy or a human muppet as Edge once called him as a, in a put down you know I, I put myself through all of this stuff and I feel that's important so I want to be remembered as you know being this hardcore legend and not just being a moniker and it's I think it's shifted a lot and I know that he yeah. has alienated a lot of fans and for a period of time myself included because of his inability to reconcile the different elements of what made him a star in the first place it's just it's so difficult isn't it because you see in this documentary he's this young kid you know he's a great athletic star overall like it's something that's quite funny to see as an adult knowing kind of mick foley and his slightly odd shaped body will just say and the fact that he's not considered an athletic wrestler or ever considered to be a tall guy foley is fucking well at least when i met him he's fucking huge Yeah. yeah like he is and he is even though he doesn't look like a wrestler, a a typical wrestler, he is still very athletic. Yeah. yeah. And they mention in this documentary how athletic he is. He plays baseball, he plays lacrosse. He is a very good amateur wrestler, Mm. like taking on some of the stars of the team. Yeah, Paul Blart, like, you know, and Paul Blart put no one over. There you go. (laughs) And considering he has, you know, all this incredible athletic ability, yeah, he really is skilled and yeah. he probably could have been if he'd gone in a different direction he probably could have become a truly great wrestler wrestler mm. and you just think like he's he's like 19 at the time where he starts like making his videos of him being dude love and stuff with his friends and he's jumping off rooftops and he's decided that he wants to wrestle this style that doesn't have loopholes and you just think is a 19 year old the best person to decide this is what my future is going to be forever. Yeah. Like, a 19-year-old just isn't equipped. And I'm not saying this isn't, like, an ageist thing at all. I'm just saying it's just the truth. You don't know at 19 how injuries affect your body in the long term. Or what you want to do for the rest of your life, necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. You might not even know what you want to do for the next 10 years. Like, I know I didn't. (laughs) And just, I don't know, it just feels like almost a curse that he... I feel so bad saying that because obviously mm. there's there's so much important stuff that he did putting his body through very, very painful situations. But just like, I always think back to that 
19-year-old boy making such an important decision for for him for the rest mm. of his life. It's almost though that's what that was his driving force is that you know that's what put him at, you know I, that's what got him uh training to wrestle it's what got him you know jumping off the roof of his house you know and and putting himself even outside of wrestling in in harm's way because he felt that he had this ability and that's something which maybe didn't talk about in the documentary a lot about but he did know that he had genetically speaking an ability to take pain more than most not mm-hmm. saying he didn't feel pain but because of you know the body shape we talked about the 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 broad lower back the yeah. the, the big legs mm-hmm. the, the 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 caboose to die for this all meant that he had a, a great body for bumping yeah and when i say mick foley has a high pain threshold mm-hmm. this is a man who had double surgery on his knees and never took pain medicine he refused pain medication throughout like i think it was 2001 by the time he first had pain medicine if you think about the hell in the cell match and he didn't even have a fucking paracetamol after it you know so he felt that and it oftentimes i think he was deluded to think this but he has this thing thinking i have this god-given ability and I can do this style, and I can make people take wrestling seriously again, and I can ride this wave and become a big star because of my unique abilities. Okay, so I'm going to say something now, and I just want it to be kept in mind while we go through this episode. Okay. Okay. With your point about him being able to take more damage, like you are totally right. He is a legitimate badass. Like He is so much more tough than a lot of people who go into wrestling. Maybe mm. even more than everyone else who went into wrestling. Maybe because people who are labelled as tough don't usually do thumbs up and smiles and high yeah. fives like Mick Foley does. But he is definitely one of the toughest people ever in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But okay then. So counterpoint to, to that then, I suppose. If he is legitimately tough there surely is no need for him to go the extra mile in terms of damaging his body because if he didn't and he is legitimately tough and he is a legitimate athlete at this point in time Mm. he could then continue to wrestle in a style which is impressive and which other people aren't as capable of because as we mentioned he is tough and Mm. he is athletic and he could have done that style probably well into his 50s Mm, like the fact that he was wrestling for such a long time anyway with all those injuries i don't know i just constantly have this conflict of like yes it's really cool some of the stuff he did like of course the the hell in a cell moment is iconic along with many many others of his career but like also there could be this alternate universe mick foley who didn't like destroy his body Mm. and is continuing to wrestle an awesome style for many 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 years longer but would he have had the drive to do that knowing that he was not doing the style that he truly was enamoured with, you know? I don't know. This that's a, You bring up a really interesting point, and I'm not saying I disagree with it. I, I, I do agree with your point, but I do also think that... I think that you, that would take away the special sauce of Mick Foley for himself. Right. Because how he deals with the trajectory of his career and whatnot so much much like with stone cold steve austin that if he wasn't going through what he went through the character wouldn't have been legitimate i don't know it's, <laughs> don't it's know. we'll have to get into it we'll, i guess we'll. but so yeah they they used to film these videos of of him being dude love and they're yes. very cute and if if you haven't seen them listeners at home i do recommend checking them out on, on youtube it's the loved adorable one. yeah young mick foley is a very handsome charming young man 
who and yeah, thinking of him doing what he does in those videos. Yeah, he he, it's quite scary. He literally does jump off buildings and always onto mattresses and things. But Jesus Christ, it's terrifying the stuff he's doing at he such a young age. Set a really dangerous precedent, and I think as much as I love Foley, and he's definitely you know my favorite wrestler of all time, broadly speaking. Do think he has a little bit to answer for with with the loved one because in his book he writes at length about the, the the making of the loved one him and all of his friends doing it and like how you know jumped off the roof and all that and how it helped him get the attention of a promoter yeah apparently they showed it to a promoter who was like looking at him as though he's the next big star yeah which he was but maybe not for the reasons he thought that's he was exactly be. right yeah so we don't get told exactly what the promoter sees in Mick Foley. All we know is what Mick Foley thinks he saw the promoter see in the video, which of course is going to be tainted by the fact that Mick Foley is driven by one very particular thing, which is hardcore shit. Yeah. So of course that's the stuff he wants to be impressing people with. So of course he's going to assume that the promoter is impressed by that mm. and not what is personally what impresses me most about the loved one which is his character work yeah and it's funny because people don't remember the character work they don't remember him cutting promos as, as dude love they remember him jumping off the roof and i'll tell you this right now if i lived in a bungalow as a child there is a better than 80 percent chance i would have jumped off that roof i've jumped off roofs me and my brother used to jump off our garage roof until his friend did it and he broke his leg and there's a, I mean, backyard wrestling, as long as there's been wrestling, there's been kids wrestling in their backyard. Yeah. Foley didn't invent it. But the idea that you could become a star and get notoriety, like, you know, they showed this video on WWE TV, like, oh, he was always chasing his dream. And it made a lot of people, some with less sense than anxious nine-year-old Kevin, <laughs> think that the way to pursue wrestling was to get notoriety through hurting themselves because this kid jumped off his roof or this kid did this, that, and the other and then he's hard, he's hardcore and that's how you get into ECW and WC, you know, and, and all this stuff. And I think that that was that set a dangerous precedent. They, they alluded to later in his career, it never materialized, but someone we've done an episode about, Dean Ambrose, when he first was brought into WWE, they teased doing an angle with uh, him and... Dean Ambrose and Mick Foley. Oh, right. And it was like at WrestleMania access. Just, you know, Foley signing autographs. And they did it. This is all done on fan cam and shared on social media like it was viral. Foley's just signing autographs, talking about how he's happy to be there. And Dean Ambrose just walks up to him. You don't know who this kid is. And he's like, you're the reason why kids jump off roofs, Mick Foley. You're the reason why half the people I know are crippled or why they didn't, you know. Jesus. By the time they're 30, they've had concussions and broken necks because you made us think that that's what we had to do. And Foley's like, oh my God. And they're going to build this angle that... Ambrose coming from CZW had been sold a false bill of goods that you had to kill yourself to be a wrestler. Mm. And I don't know. I think that there is a, an element there that worryingly, I, th I think it's gone, hopefully, but in the late 90s, like everyone and their mother was fucking doing backyard wrestling. I mean, I, what I mean, you, you told yeah. me you I had done fucking, backyard wrestling, yeah. You know, and my friend who got smashed in the head with a beer keg. Yeah. And had to go to A&E and then tell his parents that he was playing bass guitar and then the guitar strap broke and the guitar swung around and hit him in the face, 360. You know, there was a lot of, or the friends That's who... That's such had a bad lie. That's the worst, <laughs> the worst lie. Or my friend who had to explain to his parents the reason why the, the new drywall that was put in the extension got broken was not because their friend who was doing a Vietnam flashback character for their uh, for their shitty backyard wrestling federation had to go, Jimmy, Jimmy, no! And then jump through the fucking goddamn wall. Like, you know, 
so much stuff like that was going on and he didn't cause it but we were certainly looking up to the loved one as the fucking shining lights that's interesting i didn't realize that the loved one was so so known Mm. for such a long time i didn't realize kind of that he had grown up with it yeah it was in the book and also they used it several times when they they brought in dude love as a character or they were talking about mankind. They're like, you know, this guy's crazy. He's deranged. He was jumping off the roof of his house when he was, you know, and that's why, you know, WWE would have you believe that it's like he jumped off the roof of his house and Vincent Man's like, get me, dude, love, you know? Yeah, and he wanted him to jump off my house. That's again part of the reason why I find it. I don't know. I'm just not 100% confident that the reason that loved one video went so big yeah is because of the jumping off the roof i don't know mm. i just think if you think of the timing of it all how what year would have been the year when mick Foley would have made the loved one I think it was like 83 or 84 right so not exactly the peak of extreme wrestling oh no Proceeding that promoter by, yeah. probably wasn't scouting around for hardcore <laughs> potential legends right he wasn't like yeah let's find someone who's going to jump off a roof he's probably looking for a guy with a really solid that character very true, yeah. because that is what is important in wrestling at that period of time maybe he had a hookup with the wrestling times he was with uh, <laughs> young paul Heyman, like you know. so my theory my hot take is that it's only in hindsight it's only many many years after the fact that actually that video became iconic for its extreme moments yeah but then what am i to say i mean it just happens to be they started showing it around the time when ecw was the most popular promotions now you're i think you've hit the nail on the head right there i'm pretty sure i mean i'm sure that was like the the sugar on top it's like this guy can talk yeah he can do a big he can do a big dive but you know that's that's what i'm looking for in my star but it doesn't really work out for him in terms of you know him becoming a star because of it. It basically it's a it's an entryway point. He meets a promoter because his dad, the athletic director, either putting on a show at the gym. He meets the promoter who gets him in touch with Dominic Danucci, who is a, a great uh, classic Italian American wrestler who. Not, you know, Foley didn't get trained rolling around in barbed wire. He got no. <laughs> classic training from Dominic DiNucci. You know, he was learning drop kicks and arm bars and, you know, a proper, a proper education. That's it. If you want to become a wrestler, you have to get a proper education. Proper education, In yeah. real life and in wrestling as well, and you know? It's very good advice. And he was made to do things like, he was ring crew. So he had to assemble and disassemble the ring. Oh, and God. carry it around with him. You make that seem so much easier than it fucking is. What was it? Waking up at four in the morning to go and travel many miles to go assemble the ring. and 200 mile <laughs> trip each way. 200 and- miles and... The place where the ring was kept was eight stories up. And he had to take the ring apart piece by piece, put it in the elevator piece by piece, go down, load it up eight stories each time for every part of the ring. And, you know, we've watched a lot of NXT with Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano taking it apart. There's a lot of ring there, folks. Uh, He told us on the documentary that the day usually lasted 22 hours. Fucking hell. And he got paid... $25. $25. Like how much, for, for, for how much work? Like it wouldn't be for a day, would it? No, for the 22 hour day. Jeez. So if he, That's more than I thought it would be. If he disassembled the ring, brought it down 200 miles and then reassembled the ring, he got $25 and oh, although, one lesson. He got one wrestling lesson as well. Oh, but lessons, that's great, right? I mean, you know, getting easy. lessons. Easy. <laughs> 350 miles away. <laughs> so he was training in Pittsburgh even though he lived in upstate new york 
So he, during his entire, he, he went to university as well, fully. So he trained in communications and media, like uh, similar degree to you. Like I guess he did it in the mid eighties. Would have been a bit different. Yeah. They taught Flash back then, but like to do that much work and that much fucking graft for such little money it seemed like it was an apprentice task or something like that yeah i'm not saying that i think the lack of money is a good thing but i must admit there's a period of of this kind of era of wrestling and it's still done in japan which i actually think is really important to a a learning wrestler Mm. which is the lesson of like discipline and motivation and like god working i'm not saying 22 hours is acceptable i mean cut it down a bit come on but like assembling the ring and stuff and helping out backstage and you know, to an extent, long hours and really having to push yourself to the edge. I do think that's kind of like a very important thing to do when you're young, if you want to be a wrestler, because it's preparing you for what your day job will be. I mean, that is paying your dues. When people say, yeah. oh, he hasn't paid his dues or whatever. It's it's not this specifically, but it's stuff like this. Yeah. And Mick Foley literally wrote the book on paying dues because... When he was going, you know, he was in university. His weekends, he said he never had a, he never went to a single spring break. He didn't have any oh, parties. Poor guy. Three of his four weekends, it would be the round trip. So he would go in his car on Friday night. He would drive 350 miles. So that's like a 12, 13 hour drive. He would then pull up outside of the gym where they would train. He would spend the night. He would eat peanut butter sandwiches. He had a jar of peanut butter and a loaf of bread. It would last him the weekend. He would sleep in the back with two sleeping bags. He would wake up then. He would train. Then he would stay in a car park of a motel. And he would get an extra lesson with Danucci on Sunday morning. And that's where he said that they really learned the extra bits. Because they do the general class on Saturday. And then Sunday was a bit of like the fine tuning. A bit of the one-on-one. So... Great education, but fucking hell. I mean, I don't want to compare myself to Mick Foley. No, imply I'm as extreme as he is. But <laughs> I'm just saying I can relate a bit to that. You know, I was... You had a serious commute at one point, yeah? There was a point where I had to live in a bed and breakfast and uh, I ate just peanut butter sandwiches because there was no access to any other food. So I can at least relate to that one thing. I, I can imagine yeah. that one hardship. What, waking up early and eating peanut butter sandwiches? Just just only having peanut butter sandwiches is more what I was saying. I was going to say, I I've eaten a lot of peanut butter sandwiches. There you go, you know the pain. <laughs> yeah, I once put Worcestershire sauce on them. That's how bored I was. I was like, I'll figure this out. Like, I think as far as like wrestlers suffering and eating shit food to get by, peanut butter sandwiches is not that bad. No, raw potatoes. Raw potatoes, yeah. Stone cold. Yeah. He had it hard. I had a bag of raw potatoes. I had a bag of tuna cans. I had a bag of razor blades. When I ran out of tuna, I started eating raw potatoes and razor blades. When I ran out of potatoes, I just ate razor blades, son. Hell, three meals a day, razor blades is all I could eat. See, Stone Cold is, is showing that he's just an idiot. Because like, at least Mick Foley's like, yeah, okay, peanut butter, protein. You know, it's going to keep me full. It's, it is quite yummy. It's going to keep me happy. You know, I've got the bread. It's easy. It doesn't need a fridge. So Cole's like, I don't understand food. I'll just <laughs> eat raw potato. The best thing about it is that like, there is like, that's that's the story that was always in the back of my mind. Like, I remember like thinking that, like even as a young kid and not understanding things like commute and stuff like that, thinking that that was like, that was hell. And that was You would have been able sacrifice. to empathise a bit with travelling to boarding school. Yeah, I mean, at least though, travelling <laughs> to boarding week, school like. once a week. Like, you know, that was it. And it was only two hours away thereabouts. But like, I remember, yeah, the peanut butter sandwiches was, a, was like a big kind of point for him to the point that when he won the... <laughs> he won the championship it was one of Michael Cole's first nights on commentary properly and he's like Mick Foley he's achieved the dream of everyone who's been told he can't do it from riding around peanut butter sandwiches <laughs> Foley's done it yay sandwiches <laughs> 
So Foley actually had his foot in the door in WWE very, very early, much earlier than many would realise. Yeah, he had a job as a jobber, right? Yeah, which we did a whole episode on jobbers, joking, enlighten the people what, what the role of a jobber is, maybe during this time in the 80s. Well, it's to get beat up, and in this time in the 80s, probably to get beat up for real. Yeah, his second ever match. It's against... The British Bulldog and the Dynamite Kid. Yes, collectively known as the Bulldogs. Oh, it's very cute. He tells the story of how he wants to go in and get in a couple of offensive moves. He's like, oh yeah, I've got this uh, arm bar I want to try out. And they just shut him right down. Like, no, yeah. no way. It's so fun. We watched the whole match and like his partner is Les Thornton, who is like the, the definition of a journeyman wrestler. He's a like. proper, awesome, like incredible wrestler. He reminds me of like Dean Malenko or yes. someone. Like he, he looks great but not so great that he like shine anyone and he can do in fabulous technical wrestling that is there solely to make other people look good and this match is great like actually i, I would recommend it because it's so funny like you you know knowing a bit about mick foley and you don't think of him being this like technical star wrestler whatsoever and the match starts and you've got young boy mick in the corner he's not even allowed to wear his proper outfit he's been made to turn his jacket inside out and he looks like such a jobber he can't be cactus jack with the leopard print so he has to be jack foley hence why you can see the tag on his fleece it's so funny (laughs) you know what we have seen so many matches with this guy in the craziest stipulations with the scariest opponents in the world and i've not seen fear in the eyes of mick foley quite like the fear when he's on the ring apron watching les thornton do all this fucking beautiful chain wrestling and he's like what the fuck am i in for it's here? the most incredible like technical like amazing reversals it's like the type of wrestling that you might get like on like the really good indies so yeah like, holy shit wow this guy's really good and you've got then mick foley in the background like and you know the style of wrestling he wants to do <laughs> he ain't gonna be doing it here <laughs> and he gets tagged in finally and he looks so out of place as well because all the other guys look like wrestlers mm. they're all wearing little pants they're all like I don't know, six foot five. Everyone's ripped to fuck. Massive like, yeah. muscles. Cactus Jack's wrestling with his fucking tights for most of the encounter. He can't eat, they're all sagging. It's, yeah, you know, doesn't it's, fit. Oh, his tights keep falling down. He keeps having to pull them up. And at one point, he tries to get an offensive move in. Spitty forearm thing. And like <laughs> him doing it, you just see Dynamite Kid or whoever. I think it's Dynamite Kid. And he's he, on the ring apron, looks like he wants to kill him for it having the audacity of attempting to do something. But like, it's it's about three minutes of Mick Foley getting beaten up by the British Bulldog. And then, and then Mick tries to get a punch in. And it's just like a fly flying near an elephant or something. Oh, like God. There is just no recognition that anything has happened. And then he tries to do this armbar. And again, it's just like, it's just like swatting a fly. And then he just gets beaten the shit out of. And it's even like, it's... He says it's like an education for him because everything hurt. Like, because he gets things like Dynamite does the the falling headbutts, you know, where like the person's laid down and you just kind of run down, you, you do a, a headbutt to the ground. And I always thought, well, that's a fake looking move. They don't <laughs> actually hit them. And he's like, he remember feeling like his bell had been rung, like just the, the pain of it. Or when he's thrown against the ropes, he's given a clothesline. It looks pretty standard, but just because I think he can't brace himself. He doesn't realise what's coming. He gets hit like kind of in the neck, but under his jaw going upwards. And it basically means he couldn't chew food for a month. He had to get his jaw wired afterwards. Yeah, and it gave him a concussion. So you can imagine the roller coaster ride of, hey, 
I'm training to become a wrestler. This training is difficult, but it's paying off because I'm immediately, my second match, I'm in front of 17,000 people for Against the WWE. British Bulldog and Dynamite Kid, like the two tag champs. Yeah. yeah, stars. And like, he even have to explain to his parents like, the embarrassment of like his parents then kind of going like, this is what you've been like training for? This is what you want to do? Like, And they support him, but you can imagine the fucking worry, like, you know? <sighs> yeah, seriously. It's hard as well because everyone around this match just goes oh yeah yeah we just wanted to make sure that you know the stuff looked good you know because he was new so we had to make sure you had to overcompensate so to you have make to do sure. with jobbers yeah, yeah. So you have to you have to beat them up otherwise people will think that you're gay uh, yeah. that's what happens you know and even mick is like oh yeah you know i'm sure they didn't you know it's like they intentionally tried to hurt me yes they, they did, did mick yeah. they were hazing you it was, it was hazing and it was this is a lesson that needs to be taught to you and yeah. You know, Foley didn't book himself, and if it's your second match, you're going to go, oh, no, 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 I don't deserve to be in the, you know, I don't deserve this opportunity. No, 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 no. You know, of course he wanted to fucking do it. And he, he did loads of other jobber spots for them, so he actually had a fairly, fairly, let's say easy entryway, but, like, uh, he got notoriety quite quickly, and then I, he got a lot of experience. I think it's because of, of how he responded to that match. The fact yeah. that he took it all on board and was just like, yeah, okay, they're going to beat me up for real. I guess that's fine. Oh, man. And obviously, they did want to hurt him for real, and it's just part of the complain. culture. It's part of the culture at the time of, like, if you're a new guy, especially someone who comes with this idea of, like, oh, I'm going to do this hardcore extreme wrestling, of course the actual professional wrestler is going to go, oh, you want you want pain wrestling, do you? You, you want to hurt? We can make that happen without you jumping off roofs or into tables or anything like, i just have to punch you for real i would have been on to the wrestling ombudsman in <laughs> seconds of that like but i genuinely do think it's it's because of the fact that he just he went along with it and he didn't mm. complain and he accepted that was part of his role and they really respected that in the documentary they mentioned the fact that you know he seemed like an idiot wanting to do all this extreme stuff but he didn't complain that they gave him a bit of a hard first match. He just went along with it. And as a result, he was put in more and more matches. He ends up finding his way into, you know, smaller promotions, but still promotions with some national play like AWA and WCCW. He does get to wrestle as Cactus Jack. But the original run of Cactus Jack in these very early days, he was actually Cactus Jack Manson was the full name. And they implied that he was part of the Manson family. Fucking hell. And his whole thing he wanted to do was that it was it was, it was in the eyes. That's what he said it was. He would do these hardcore things. Like he would take, you know, he wasn't using weapons or stuff like that in these places. But he was taking bumps onto concrete. He would do that kind of iconic cactus clothesline where he goes flying over the top rope. There was kind of a... A level of uh, it's so hard to kind of explain that because if you're a new fan every match you're going to see someone doing a dive over the top so the mm. idea of throwing caution to the wind is like that's part of the bedrock of wrestling now but back in those days like the, like even someone sailing over the top rope with a clothesline that's like whoa you don't do that that's dangerous and it's important to recognize why that was so dangerous then because back in the day it was just concrete they didn't yeah. have loads of comfy mats for them to land on it's not like today where even the ring is designed to minimize as much damage as possible like everything in modern wrestling is designed to make it hurt less which is great but I mean, back in the day back in the day i mean this is this is the day when cactus jack his finishing move was an elbow drop from the ring apron to the outside onto the concrete and he would take it on the hip and that was the thing with the clothesline with the elbow drop it was the fact that he had the big hips that he could uh 
Kim Kardashian would have been a great worker, like, you take it on the <laughs> hip, you know? So that was the idea, was that he was doing these moves, and because he could get bruised up there, and he was thick of a thigh, that mm. he would be all right. And that's fucking scary. Like, landing on concrete is dangerous as fuck. Yeah, it is. Yet I'm jumping onto it with a weight of nearly 300 pounds coming down. He gets his first job at WCW literally just by showing up when they're doing taping and like, hello, can I have a job? And WCW at the time was a little bit like crazy. There wasn't, there was a lot of people in charge, so to speak. And some of those people included Jim Cornette and Jim Ross, who immediately took to him. Like they knew that because he had that character, he had the crazed look in his eyes. And that's so funny that they didn't actually hire him because of the hardcore stuff. It's because of the stuff that you've been mentioning. Mm -hmm. It was the fact that his matches had a little something more because he had that look in his eye. Yeah. So his original run in WCW, uh, he was first put in... <laughs> this is such bad luck, right? His first match in WWF as a jobber is with the British Bulldogs. His first match in WCW is against the Steiners. Oh, no. <clears throat> for those who haven't listened to our Scott Steiner episode, just know the Steiners have a reputation for being incredibly stiff. Yeah, they fucking beat the shit out of him. But he was told by the booker... You know, you're going to be hitting your finish at the end of this match. And he didn't understand, like, how that could happen because... Well, for one, like, he'd been told the whole time, you are basically taught as a as a young nearest and as a jobber, well, you're not going to get to do your finish. No, obviously. obviously. You're yeah. not a star. No. And then he's told, no, actually, we want you to do your finisher. And in fact, you're going to go up against the Steiners. What? How am I going to get to do my finisher against the Steiners? They're just going to beat me up for real. Yes, they are. And you're still going to have to do your finisher on your partner. So the the finish, which had been bigged up by Jim Cornette, of the, the elbow to the outside. And Kevin Sullivan, the booker, is like, I don't care how bad they beat you up. You hit your finish on your partner. And he writes in his book about... You know, this is the elbow that's going to make his career. He's on national TV for the first time, you know, as Cactus Jack and not as a just a jobber. And the guy is a little bit too far away. No. So it's less the diving elbow onto the concrete and more the diving last two fingers onto the chest, onto the concrete of that first one because the guy's just a little bit too far away. But yeah, Cactus Jack had a little run in WCW at the start. And one of the best things about it was that... He would randomly in matches, he would be wrestling and then he would have a crisis of confidence and he'd go into the corner and he'd take out a book. It was like in desperate search of answers or in desperate search of help. It was like a self-help book and he would take it out and his, his manager would read him his self-help book, Gary Hart, <laughs> and he'd just be rocking in the corner. So you get a lot of the stuff that would then become almost mankind. like for mankind. And there is a lot of that with the characters, a lot of bleeding in and out of the different ones as he unlocks the different... Uh, I kind of feel like the three faces of Foley are like the... Uh, the kind of the different paths you can take in like a fable type video game, <laughs> and he's put different points into different uh, different parts of the skills tree. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, WCW, as we mentioned, having a lot of changes of guards, a man was brought in by the name of Ole Anderson, who was uh, old school. He thought that we didn't need things like women on the show. We certainly didn't need... To, if going off the top rope was now outlawed, going over the top rope to the outside would end in a needed disqualification. God, this guy sounds fun. Isn't it like... Oh, I love bring wrestling. him over. Let's party. You know what I like most about wrestling is the bits where they're not doing things. That's uh, uh, great. Thank yeah, you. My favourite thing about wrestling is, is not the women. <laughs> it's like Ole Anderson, basically, his booking philosophy was, if I can't do it, no one else is allowed to. <laughs> and it's very rare that... That a company is successful when you approach it with the same booking philosophy as a spoilt eight-year-old at their own birthday party. Yeah. So uh, Ole Anderson 
did not like Cactus Jack, so Cactus Jack was uh, on his way out. And he was leaving a job which was $1,500 a week, guaranteed money. And he was going out onto the Indies and off into Wild Blue Yonder. Because he reckoned if he stayed there, he would just have been a mid-card guy. And yeah. that would have been his career. And he wanted more. So and He's you know. probably, well, maybe, right. More to your point... I believe that Foley thought in his heart of times that if he was just going to be a character and whatnot, that there was a glass ceiling for him in terms of how successful he could be. That he would be just a, a good performing mid-card guy who would have a nice little career, but he wanted to be a top guy. Mm. So I don't know, maybe that's again why he felt he had to start doing yeah. these things. I imagine it would be very easy around that time when, when characters are such a heavy part of wrestling, such mm. an integral part. It would be very easy to get kind of roped into doing just character work and not then doing wrestling. I, yeah. I can I can see his worry. He could have been known as just like, hey, did you know that in WCW there was this guy who like used to look at a book? Like, what a crazy character. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happened to that guy? Uh... <laughs> oh, he's probably very happy retired and can sit and play toys with his kids. Got a nice sized house, has he? That's yeah. good, yeah. <laughs> So he leaves for a year. In his book, he writes about this was a very rude wake-up call for him because he had had, not say an easy run, but he had a successful early career. And then going out into the indies, he talked about like loading up the car with thousands of 8x10s and t-shirts thinking, all right, I'm going to sell up here and, you know, maybe sell a couple of them. Mm. And, you know, going from making 1500 a week to maybe making 200 a week. Yeesh. And his wife's pregnant. Oh no! You know, so it was quite difficult. I mean, he did go to Japan at this point in time. He went to Nigeria. He went all over the world, like really trying just to get experience, gain notoriety. I think it's good that wrestlers, when they do that, when they see different cultures almost and approaches to wrestling, it's important for everyone. Yeah, not not just wrestlers <laughs> to get outside of your bubble. I would do anything to learn more about Nigerian wrestling. Oh. Can only imagine. <laughs> Including the time where, in a bid to build up his match with Nigerian superstar Power Uti, Jim McFoley and the rest of the wrestlers were driven around Lagos in a flatback truck just to say, Here are the wrestlers, they'll be wrestling later on. There's some of them there now, they'll be in the football stadium later. And his uh, stories in his book have a nice day about wrestling with Power Uti and, and his travels across Nigeria are in- just incredible. They're so mad. It's- yeah. Hard to believe that they're real. Yeah, and I think there was... Coca-Bana did a series of podcasts with a, a gentleman who had been to... who had been, A guy named Cliff Compton who had been on some of the tours. Uh, Luke Gallows, actually, from uh, Gallows and Anderson. Uh, he had also been to on some of these tours of uh, Nigeria. Still, despite being nearly 30 years later, involving Power Uchi. Whoa, what the hell? I know, I mean, when your main gimmick is pulling out a red card and playing the saxophone, it's one of those kind of... <laughs> Yeah, that's the type of gimmick that Foley should have went for. Low bumps, high on the sax, high on the red cards, you know. Do you reckon we'll ever get a how-to power Uti? How-to Uti? Uh, I would love that. I would love that more than anything <laughs> in the world. Great. Like, If any Nigerian princes want to back us on Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> and make that happen. Like, I'm sure you're good for the money, you know, it's all right. <laughs> I feel at this point it's worth saying that, that Foley no longer has his front teeth at this point. We're starting yeah. to watch now as his body 
begins to crumble and i hate saying that but it's the truth we have fresh young faced very athletic fit fast moving foley in his match against the dynamite kid and british bulldog and then each match we watch from then on it's almost like there's just a little bit of him that's left behind like he's only gone for like a year maybe a year and a half Mm. and he comes back then to wcw which has another changing of the guard and they're like look sting is our top guy we need some villains. We've got no real credible villains. And they thought that Cactus Jack could be that villain to be, you know, uh, not just so be Sting Invader all the goddamn time. So Cactus Jack comes back. But yeah, more to your point, he comes back. He looks so different. He looks about 15 years older. He, do- he looks like main timeline Mick Foley. Like yeah. He looks like Mick Foley as I remembered him in the year 2000. Yeah. And here it's 1993. Three, maybe, been, yeah, he wouldn't have been wrestling long at all. No, he'd only been maybe six or seven years into his career at this point. Yeah. And, but you can tell it in the eyes, like even in the style of promos. He said he wanted the character had evolved, it'd become much darker. He kind of he wasn't just like, hey, I'm Cactus Jack. He would have the thing where his voice would break and he would be going like Wee! and he would make <laughs> these horrible guttural high pitched noises. And I remember like you know, I grew up with, with cuddly mankind with a fucking sock puppet and I love that. I remember like reading all about all of his promos and thinking, wow, this is great. And then going back and actually watching them when I could, when the DVDs and stuff were available and just being shocked at like how like unsettling it all was. That, like he has a way with his voice where he is almost, you know, he's almost crying when he speaks. Mm. It's very unsettling. It's very unnerving because... You know, you're talking about a guy who once tried to fake cry for a for an impression on a podcast and made himself actually cry last <laughs> year. Um, that that ain't easy to do. And I always wondered if there was a lot more anguish going behind the scenes of Mick Foley's oh, eyes yes. than he let on. Yeah, there is. He mentions that many times throughout the documentary. How the way he copes with his pain and suffering is is to internalize it and to use it as his character. Oh, that's healthy. Well, he says himself it's probably not. No. But I do feel, it's very sad, but I do feel some of the best wrestlers throughout history have done that. Mm. But there's a certain certain power behind using genuine anguish and suffering. Yeah, when they say you use the the, the best characters, the one where it's the real life dialed up a bit, well, obviously it sounds to good reason the best promos are the ones where it's a real bit of real emotion that's been maybe transcribed onto what's actually taking place. Yeah. So we have a different Cactus Jack, as we said. He has got his trademark catchphrase of Bang Bang, which actually comes from Love Shack, the B-52's song, Bang Bang, at the door. That was why he actually originally started saying this. Wow, that's random. Not a fan of the 52's, are you? No, I'm not. Ah, well, it's B-52 head. You hate them! I hate that song. Really? Love Shack, baby, love Shack. Reminds me of school discos. Yeah, I mean, if instead of that, I mean, do you like their cover of Meet the Flintstones? not heard it oh really i've only heard wow. the love shack i think well i'm just saying uh maybe he could have taken something from mesopotamia or rock lobster something like that instead of uh love shack and joe would have changed her yeah, mind rock lobster, actually, I do quite like that. so he had some <laughs> some uh some ups and some downs while he was being used as this villain for sting he debuted coming out of a big box uh, you can tell Jim Cornette was involved in the booking because Jim Cornette, I swear to God, this is one of his booking philosophies. If it comes out of a box, it's over. Over as in a good over. Yeah, as, as in, in the fans will be like, crowd. ah, he came out of a box. <sighs> Do you ever want to just 
delve deep into the psyche of some of the people that are involved in promoting wrestling around this time like Vince yes. Russo and yes. Jim Cornette I just love to delve into we, their we brain. Will. We shall. We weird, shall do some more. Weird brain. I mean, delving into the brain of Vincent Mann and Vince Russo this past year has been uh, has been pretty eye opening. Let's just say Cornette is definitely another one. It's just just little things like that. You just hear that it comes out of a box and it's over. What? What happened in his childhood that made him so into boxes? Did you have many boxed gifts, Jim? Is that, I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not gonna lie. I pop if I see if I see a big box come out in wrestling. I am gonna pop. Like really? Well, then when Dean Ambrose came out with that big present and attacked Seth, that was awesome. You know, when Terry Funk debuted as Chainsaw Charlie, he came out of a box as well. He chainsawed his way out of a box. That's right. very impressive. I mean, the chainsaw I'd say is probably more impressive than the mm. box. If it wasn't out of a box, I don't know. You know? No, you wouldn't it, think it's him using a chainsaw on like a car. That might have been quite fun. That was really dangerous, honey. I think you know. Right. So, um, one of my favorite moments of this feud with Sting and him being built up as this killer was that he had this milk crate, a wooden crate, and it was laid out. And Jim Ross is like, "Cactus Jack, what are you gonna do when you get in the ring with Sting?" And he's like, "Jim Ross." This box down here, as far as I'm concerned, that's Sting. And this is what I'm going to do to Sting when I get my hands on him in a clash of the champions. And he wanted to do the, the diving headbutt onto the box. And he just kind of face plants and smacks his head off the corner of this oh, box. And he gives himself a concussion. And Jim Ross is like, Cactus Jack, what does this mean for your match with Sting? Uh, Cactus Jack is a dangerous man. <laughs> Or the other one where him and his friend Abdul the Butcher brought out a big birthday cake for Sting. And he's like, I've got a special surprise for Sting. It's a birthday cake. He's like, but Cactus, everyone knows Sting's birthday is June 18th. It's not even remotely there. He's like, yes. But after our match at Clash of Champions, he won't have any more birthdays. Bang, bang. And he starts singing happy birthday, eating cake with Abdullah the Butcher going, happy birthday to you. Bang, bang. <laughs> and the fact that they're like getting <laughs> booze from the crowd for these two grown men eating cake. Boo. Boo. Not like that. That's not Sting's proper birthday. <laughs> so he has this feud with Sting and he's constantly being put over on commentary by Jim Ross and I think a lot of people always say you know Jim Ross is one of the reasons why Stone Cold got over so much but he really was one of the reasons why Mick Foley got over so much he would talk at length on commentary in WCW and WWE about how tough the man was about you know his upbringing and the things that he'd done he really made what he was doing seem you know important or why you should care as opposed to maybe some of the later day commentators who maybe aren't as good at putting over those types of things. Ah, you're like, not supposed to, are you? You're supposed to put over the brand. I mean, like, we watched uh, Mick Foley and Edge from WrestleMania 22, so Joe could see kind of a late match, and he goes through a flaming table, and Jerry Lars goes, what? Oh my God! Like, what? what? Come on! Wow! Wow! Oh, puppies! Sure is on fire there, huh? Fucking but, um... <laughs> McFoley does point out in this documentary, I swear to God, this is an actual quote. He says, I have kind eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I somehow was convinced then that you'd like traveled back in time to like, give <laughs> him money. You've got kind eyes. I do, don't I? But he does have kind eyes. And there's a thing in wrestling where if you are known for, you know, fans can tell that you're putting in a lot of work and you're sacrificing your body, which he was. I mean, I showed Joe the Nestia plunge where he goes backwards off the ring apron, head first onto the concrete. Like he took some horrifying bumps during this period of time. I'm sorry, but I still do think that's unnecessary. Oh yeah, no, the Nestia plunge is totally unnecessary. And the funny thing about that is that he did that in one of his first matches at WCW. It's like, oh my god, it's the damn 
cleanest thing I've ever seen. Now we're going on tour. Do it 24 times in 10 yeah, minutes. That ah! is such a common theme with mm. like Mick Foley's whole career of him doing something that's disgusting. That's like, oh, well, it's only one time. You know, I can do it once. Yeah. It's, it's okay. And then being like, oh, no, that's actually the most interesting part of the match. So you have to do it like 50 more times now. Joe, it was the early 90s. There's no way we could have possibly known that jumping, you know, several feet with a high impact onto concrete on the back of your head. Notoriously, one of the strongest parts yeah. of the body, like, you know. Mm. I mean, how would we to know there could have any sort of a ramification? No one could have known, which is why it's so important that many years later, The Rock beat him repeatedly at the back of the head with a steel chair. Ah, well, more on that in a bit. So, Cactus Jack ends up becoming a face, and a face to take on the intimidating Mastodon, the man who was tearing people up in WCW at the time, and legitimately ending careers. Big Van Vader became the feud of the decade in many people's minds. There was no one more hard-hitting than Vader, and no one who could take punishment more than Cactus Jack. This was literally... The immovable force and the unbreakable object. It was a match which we decided to watch after. We decided to watch one of their matches, but on the build up to that match, something very, very important happened in Germany, uh, in Munich, where Mick Foley, Cactus Jack, got caught up in the ropes, which had been a little bit too tight on that occasion. And, uh, well, what happened, Joe? He. He does this move. He does it a few times later on as well in his career. So you've probably seen clips of him do it at some point where he falls against like the ropes and then falls kind of like backwards and gets all caught up around the neck. So it's like the ropes are basically strangling him. It's called the hangman spot. It's gross. It looks awesome, but it's gross as hell. And for some reason, the ropes have been tightened more for this particular ring than they had been normally. And for professional wrestlers... The, the tightness of a rope is a very important part of, of wrestling because it, it, it can impact a lot of your moves in very different ways. You know, even just yeah. running the ropes can be massively different on tight ropes than loose ropes. Yeah, and actually they show the footage, you know, it's from a house show in Germany, so it's very grainy, but you can even see when they're running against the ropes, there's no give. Like, no. you're going to get bruised, like, in the underside of your arm and stuff. It's fucking horrid. Yeah, it is. And Mick ends up in this in this position. What did you say it was called again? The hangman. The hangman spot. The hangman spot. Very appropriately named. Yeah. And it's it's too tight. He can't get out of it. And he tries and tries and pulls and pulls and pulls and uh, he gets out. But the the downside is he has pushed his ear off. It's basically been like crushed almost like in a vice it's smeared off his head yeah it's not been cut and that's why he can't have it reattached because it's been damaged so badly yeah so basically they continue with the match um vader punches him and the ear goes flying which makes it look like vader's punched his ear off but the truth is so funny when vader's like yeah, I was convinced that I didn't do that. I uh, I did not uh, remove his ear. And then I watched the footage and it is quite obvious that I did, in fact, rip his ear off. And uh, <laughs> I guess my memory is somewhat selective in that regard. <laughs> but he didn't really. I mean, it was already off at that point. Yeah, no, it, it was, yeah, it was definitely... It just a... was being finally disattached entirely at that point. And the ref collects the ear... He speaks French, I think, and Mick doesn't speak any French, so he can't really communicate with the ref to explain, to to look after it. But anyway, they end up travelling to a couple of different hospitals. The first one is full. Uh, Imagine the stress. You've got your ear in your little bag. 
He might as well. Ric Flair, who at the time did not like Mick Foley. Like, no. He hated him. He, and he thought that his style was dangerous. He did not like Cactus Jack. And he let him know as much. And Flair was both a big star and the booker. And he's literally approached backstage with someone saying, I've got Cactus Jack's ear. Like, he flashes backstage. He's like, yeah, sorry, um, I've got his ear. They're still wrestling there. What should I do with What this? should I do with, like, you know. He said it looked like raw chicken. Yeah. Disgusting. <laughs> he makes it to hospital and they break the news. They can't reattach the ear because it's been pushed off. It's not got a clean cut. Oh, um, so instead what they do is honestly, like, an act of like modern medicine miracles because they managed to reconstruct an ear out of the the remaining cartilage and, and tissue and it, it's pretty amazing because it looks like an ear yeah he ain't wearing no sunglasses for the rest of his life no. it looks like he's got this kind of quite small ear yeah very interesting that he i'm not sure if he's self-conscious about it because obviously he's shaved his head several times but very often he would have the hair over it but when he became mankind in wwe they particularly his early days they they cropped the hair back so it was a lot of focus was on it yeah he says it was okay he wasn't that upset because he knew he was in the one industry where losing an ear would generally considered to be a bit of a boon a positive thing and a period of time as well in that particular industry where that would also mean that because I, i i feel in current day wrestling if a wrestler lost their ear well, I mean, for one, I'm pretty sure modern medicine would enable them to just reattach it yeah. somehow. They probably wouldn't be part of the like their character going forwards. Which, talking about characters going forwards, Mick Foley being Mick Foley, lost an ear in a match, which is televised, goes, well, why don't we do a, an angle about this? Yeah, I mean, this this is right now, this is fa- this is fantasy booking. The fact that this is fantasy booking is absurd to me. Big Van Vader, you took my ear. I'm gonna get you. Yeah. Like that. That. But there's a, there's a real life sentence in there. Yeah. The second part of that means it's fantasy booking, and that is insane. Mick wanted to do it. Vader wanted to do it. What? Ric Flair was the only person who was like, nah. I guess. Well, that's a huge part of it. Is that Flair who was booking at the time, and, he, and Flair and Foley have had a fair. Like they're 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 good now. But there was a long period of time where those guys really, really hated each other. Like, proper fucking hate each other. You know, when he was talking, there was a promo we watched in ECW where he's like, a certain someone went up and told me that I'd be in a wheelchair by the time I'm 30. And he's like, well, it's two days until my birthday and I'm still standing. That was Ric Flair. Flair literally told him, he's like, you're going to you're gonna be crippled. You're going to retire penniless. You're not a star. What you're doing to your body is a total waste of time and it makes me sick. Like, and... That was obviously a huge part of it, but also as well, there were a company that wanted to be PG, family friendly. They were taping at Disney. They uh, didn't like blood. Mm. One would ask yourself, why are you having Cactus Jack Invader in your main event? Yeah, that is a bit strange. It's like, hey, I'm going to rebook Saturday Morning Slam. Get me fucking Jimmy Havoc. Like, you know, it's that's not not the right people for that. So we did watch a match between Vader and Cactus Jack, which is heavily. We actually had to watch a special version from Mick Foley's personal collection because the broadcast one was so heavily edited. <laughs> they decided they were going to have their, their match by hook or by crook. And Foley thought, oh, a good bit of time would be that uh, Vader could maybe give me a swelling underneath my eye. Give me a little bit of a old punchy punch. Mm. How did that one turn out then? Well, not great. I don't know why it's such a common theme in... Mick Foley's life of him to work with wrestlers and be like hey so you know I can take a bit more damage than the average person so here's the type of damage I'm willing for you to do to me look that's really kind of me isn't it I'm saying 
you can do this type of move to me, which you wouldn't normally be able to do, would you, yeah. to other S's? I'm special. So here you go. What do they do? They do that, plus it again, and then they probably fucking go the extra mile and, like, murder him in his sleep or something. Oh, Vader God. beats the shit out of him. It goes way beyond swelling. It is, like, swelling is 100 miles back that way. Now You've got to turn the car right around to get there. He just punches him in the face again, over and over and, again, and over. And again, yeah, and full-on punches from Vader, who is a fucking monster. He's huge. He's a cannonball-made human. <laughs> he makes Brock Lesnar look like a cuddly infant. <laughs> And it's it's just so shocking that, you know, I, I do think that Vader doesn't realise his own strength. Vader has injured countless people in his, in his career. He, he, was a, he was a total sweetheart and he didn't realise his own strength. That blew my mind when I found out about that. Because, yeah, I mentioned before about how I knew about Mick Foley before we did this podcast. He was the first person I heard of. And the whole thing with Vader and him losing his ear was one of like the very earliest things I learned about any sort of wrestling. And all the stories I heard about Vader, I thought he was genuinely just like, evil maniacal like madman and then it was only about a year ago it might have even been less and he was on some interview and he was like dressed up in a suit he was in like a documentary it was table for three or something yeah. like that maybe even yeah this lovely little old man could have been my grandpa very soft-spoken um yeah, yeah and... kind gentle was talking about you know how his friends in wrestling so i was like is that seriously vader yeah i know the guy who ripped cactus jack's ear off and like he writes in his book about some of the things that Vader did to him, and you know he he says he gave as good as he got. Like he beat the shit out of Vader with a shovel, you know. Um, you know he 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 gave Vader plenty plenty back. But I mean, he, there was one time where Vader powerbombed him onto the concrete. Four hundred pounds, Vader powerbombing someone like all of his force. There was another time, and I think Cactus Jack was convinced at the time that was going to be the end of his career, where he was kind of up on his back, on his back and shoulders, you know, putting him in a sleeper hold, and Vader just kicked his legs out and went straight back, all of his weight onto the ramp, and like he was convinced, oh yeah, like my insurance policy is going to be paying out now because I'm pretty sure I'm dead, you know, (laughs) I'm like that's it, I'm done. So the fact that they even had this match and it was so heavily edited. And like that's why he left WCW in the end was because like if I'm with a company and I lose my fucking ear and they're not gonna give me any sort of a attempt to capitalize on that. Well, yeah, because the match they show is a very different match to what went down. Yeah, it, it is just basically punches and then nothing. Yeah, because they cut out all of the actual violence. Yeah, which is most of of the match. Which is pretty much what they were all about at the time. Yeah. I mean, pretty ballsy to leave a company again after you, you know, your stock had risen, and then to go back out onto the indies. And Mike, a lot of other people we've talked about, you know, we mentioned it with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, he found himself a, a voice, and he found himself a platform in ECW, which was more than happy to facilitate the pent up. I mean, you talk about putting aside the aggression and the pent up anger that he had, or frustration, and letting it out in promos. Well, they did get a whole lot of promo time in WCW, and in ECW, they let the camera roll at length, and it is some of the darkest, most disturbing, scary, but ultimately fascinating stuff I've ever heard. I could listen to Mick Foley's ECW promos forever. They're really scary. I mean, we watched Kane Dewey. Was that shocking for you? Because, I mean, obviously, when you'd first seen Mick Foley, you'd gotten to know him as Rockin' Sock and Cuddly Guy. <laughs> Him talking about, you know, the fans who wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire and how he can't even bend down to pick up his little boy and play catch with him anymore yeah. because of the shit that he's put himself through and how it's not worth this. I mean, they don't go into a huge amount of detail in the documentary about this, but in his 
autobiography have a nice day he talks about the fact that his family would sometimes accompany him to matches and his little kid dewey such a sweet he's like mick foley times two like if you look at a picture of dewey it is just literally young mick foley if you look at a picture of dewey now it's just like a grown-ass man who works for creative like <laughs> the little, <wouldn't> you? <laughs> but yeah it, he's this very cute little boy at this point and um it's quite scary to think of a little boy that age watching any kind of extreme wrestling let alone it being your own father he got whooping cough around this time <sighs> foley's boy and he he got it himself as well so, like, during a lot of those promos, I remember there was another time where he had, like, hives and stuff like that because it just, I think, you know what it ultimately was? I think it was the stress of his life at the time mm. going, you know, he had, he had a fucking mortgage. He had a, a kid and another one on the way. You know, his wife is seeing him turning down big paid money twice, you know, and he's an ECW. And a lot of these promos he's cutting, there's, you know, that's that's the real emotion right there, folks. That's the that's the real fucking hard-hitting stuff and uh, yeah i remember re i read those promos first when i was a kid i read them in the book and i had an image in my mind of what they were and then i remember actually it was the, the dvd that you bought i got that dvd when it came in like 2004 whenever it was i remember being like almost like upset and shocked that this kind loving man that i was such a fan of had such pain and like such thing not not physical i could handle the physical pain but the fact that he had such emotional pain and what I thought was like a cool, fun, wacky time. Like, wow, ECW, I bet there were some chairs. And it's him like literally crying about like this fucking heart. He's pigeonholed himself into wrestling this fucking shit style. And he wished that he was in WCW. He wished he was doing anything and being anywhere other than where he was. It was so fucking upsetting to say like, you know. He also was in Japan at this time as well. And in the documentary, they talked to Terry Funk and it's so fucking harrowing because, you know, he was in this thing called King of the Death Match, which was like a big, big tournament. He wrestled in FMW and IWA in Japan. They wanted to, like, make this little company in Japan mean something and get notoriety through them killing each other, essentially. And Terry Funk, when he's talking about it, he's like, the matches were too brutal. We we did unforgivable things to each other. I cannot believe the things that we did. It was, they were too violent. And it, it was too much. And we, we did things that I, me and Mick, we both regret. And I was like, oh my God, Terry Funk, yeah. the Lord of Hardcore, is like, yeah, that was a bit much. And I, I I remember a lot of times, like particularly when they were promoting Cactus Jack as a kid, they'd be like, oh, he's the king of the death match. He wrestled in Japan. And they would show little clips of like him covered in blood in the iconic Cactus Jack shirt and being set on fire. And a lot of it was like really like, almost cringy they had these matches that were like c4 explosion matches yeah where it was just like little fucking shitty puff things that were not you know rigged up but then they would just break fucking barbed wire over each other set each other on fire he describes like one time where he did that hangman spot that you were just talking about and he did it in barbed wire yeah with him and terry and the barbed wire collapsed because it couldn't hold the weight of them and then his fingers were caught and they ripped through the barbed wire just having to pour antiseptic and wrap up tape over his you could see the bones in his fucking hands he says you get onto the bus and all you smell is this like stale iron smell from all the dried blood and it's just you know what you could watch those matches and kind of go what is the point yeah you know but i do remember telling you as well like when i was a kid they did the almost the mystique of there being this thing that had happened yeah 
was more powerful than the thing itself. Yeah, no, I understand that. Mm. I completely understand that. But I think I would be on your side here now when I would say, I don't think he needed to do that. No. I mean, if Terry Funk thinks you don't need to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, Why is there nothing scarier than Terry Funk saying... We did unforgivable things to one another. It's like Stop. nice, kindly old Terry Funk, whose whose entire job for his whole life has been to just have have painful things done to him. Terry Funk, I mean, like in many ways, a dangerous father figure for Mick Foley to have. Yeah, because Foley looked up to Terry Funk, and Terry Funk really he epitomized a lot of the hardcore style. And also, you can do this into your forties, kids. Yeah, you know? that's it's. Honestly, I find it very frightening because Terry Funk is still wrestling a similar style today. <laughs> and he's in his... Hey, Google, how old is Terry Funk? Terry Funk is 74. He's 74! Yikes. And he's still wrestling. Well, it just shows what you say. You're never too old to throw a fireball at Jerry the King Lawler. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, back to the, my point at the beginning of the episode about ageing and stuff like that. Like, Terry Funk is very misrepresentative in that you know, we, we talk about Mick Foley having this special body that can take all this pain. Well, Terry Funk is that times 10. He mm. really can take the punishment and has been doing it well into his older years. Yeah. And it's just lucky that he is the type of man that can get through that and has been able to... Well, I mean, he's had so many injuries. Like He is like Mick Foley in that he's like most of his body at this point is metal. Oh, yeah. I mean, Funk... I mean, you know, the, the 1997, 1998 documentary Beyond the Mat and Funk is like being told you should be in constant debilitating pain right now. Yeah. That is 20 years ago. Yeah. And know? somehow he's still trucking on and he seems mostly okay. <sighs> yeah. It's very unrealistic. It's so hard because to... <laughs> like that mis- that mystique meant a lot to me as a kid. Yeah. Like, seeing two seconds of Mick Foley falling off a ladder in Japan and Terry Funk covered in blood, like with a flaming branding iron, meant so much. It meant it meant that there was a depth to this character and there was a backstory to this character that I could never fathom. Now, do you think it would have had the same impact if it had been like maybe a little house show somewhere in America instead of it being a death match in Japan. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because if it was like, it was in Cincinnati at the weekend and here's the match. And it, it was there's the same level of violence and gore. Wouldn't have meant anything. Because even the, like I have, I have watched the King of the Death match. It is boring. Right, uh, yeah. Fight me in my convention, seriously. It's dreadfully boring stuff. I'm not surprised at all. I, I have always believed that that style of wrestling is much more fun taken out of the context of the match itself and yeah. shown in a sort of highlight reel. Yeah, in the same way that when we sat down and watched a lot of Sandman matches, it wasn't as much fun as a five-minute compilation of Sandman hitting people with Singapore canes. Yes. <laughs> the mystique is... And, that you know, people... <laughs> People have been hung up on that meme for a while. And I love it. The one where it's like wrestling is redneck anime. Yes. You know, um, the backstory, you know, when you kind of, and the, the flashbacks and stuff like that in anime yeah. is always so important. And I feel like you had that with the character like McFoley. You can't have that now because everything, like you could be like Pete Dunne. He's done all sorts of things in England. Oh yeah, really? Let's find them. Okay, here are nine shows he's done the last week. Mm. You know, you can find everything and you can watch everything in high quality. But I think there's a way to tell a story using similar tactics where, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily true. 
For instance, if you were going to have a character like Mick had back in the day, but today, you could very easily fake a deathmatch Japanese show that was only attended by 50 people and there was only one person recording it. Mm. And so this is the only footage available. <laughs> and we're only going to show you a tiny, tiny bit of it. And you know, maybe someday we'll release the entire specially planned, very meticulously choreographed deathmatch that actually is very safe. But you wouldn't know that because we're not telling that story. We're telling the story of it being a secret enigmatic match that happened and is very hard to find because that's what makes it appealing isn't it it's hard to find is that everyone's heard of it and it comes with this whole big reputation mm. uh, in case you weren't listening there promoters of uh, of of the united kingdom and further afield joe graham was just making her official pitch to be wrestling's new stanley kubrick uh, <laughs> so if you do want to hire her to fake mystique uh... <laughs> honestly i think it's something that wrestling should do a lot more i yeah. don't think it has to be like, that's the beauty of wrestling you don't know happen, yeah. yeah i know that goes against mick foley's own belief of having a wrestling style without loopholes but to me it's the loopholes that make it magic what i would counter with like a lot of the stuff didn't happen because I grew up thinking Mick Foley legitimately was power bombed onto C4 explosives yeah. that exploded. Yeah. I watched the match and Mick Foley was power bombed onto plywood that had shit fireworks attached to it. <laughs> the mystique of the C4 explosives meant a hell of a lot more than yeah. actually watching it. So, yeah. yeah, I think there is a middle ground there because probably. Because the truth is, like, the average person who was watching wrestling at the time, you know, probably yeah. young lads, don't actually want to go out and find all the hardcore stuff. You know, I grew up on the internet during a time when, you know, we all we all heard stories about some of the stuff you could find on the internet. Mm. But most of us didn't actually go looking for it. It was more the fact that we knew it existed and we liked talking about it. Yeah, yeah. It was the fun. I mean... He definitely, I, I, I think he got a lot out of it, but like what he put into it, you know? <laughs> and the thing of like all the blood loss and all the injuries, and I mean, you know, the, the big scar on his arm that comes from that time in Japan, you know, that he got third degree burns, like, <sighs> and stuff like that. He had serious fucking shit happen to him. And it's like that helped him with his promos then in ECW and his notoriety that he gained in ECW. Like the whole time he was trying to get a job in WWE, this whole time going back to when he was first in WCW and they were never hiring. And he thought that, you know, he had long since gone past the point of doubting himself. He was like, I know I'm good enough to be in the company now and they've got a problem. So that was like, he was almost being frustrated, I guess. And frustration in ECW seemed to be how you get a job in WWE. You'd be frustrated, you cut great promos, and then Vince McMahon pays interest and starts paying attention. And Jim Ross got him his job in WWE in 1996, off the back of his ECW run. Another common theme for Jim Ross. Yeah. I know we've not done a Jim Ross episode yet, but he's popped up so many times as like, and then friendly neighbourhood Jim Ross came and saved their career by getting them a job at WWF. Yeah, very much the Nick Fury of uh, the Attitude yeah. Era. Like, <laughs> we, we don't want wrestling to be born no more. You want to come <laughs> wrestle in Connecticut? <laughs> yes, yes, please, indeed. Uh, it's kind of sad because Foley, even at this point, he is so naive because he goes to WWE for his first meetings and, you know, Jim Cornette and Jim Ross are like, oh, he's a, he's a big fan, Vince, loves your stuff, loves your stuff, big fan. <laughs> and he kind of sat down, he's like, oh, so what do you think of my anti-hardcore promos I was doing in ECW then? Or like, what do you think of my match with Sabu last week? Or what do you think of... No, no, you don't don't understand. If Vince is a fan, it means he's heard of your name. Yeah, we've, we've talked to him about who you are. Yeah. He has not watched your stuff. He will never watch your stuff. <laughs> Get that out of your mind. Yeah. And he wanted to be Cactus Jack. I mean, he'd been Cactus Jack in 
AWA, WCCW, in Japan, in ECW, in WCW. That was the brand. And Vince McMahon didn't want him to be Cactus Jack. No, this is, again, at a time of a period of wrestling where in WWF and WWE, where they didn't like the idea of a, a pre-existing character mm. coming onto the show and doing that thing, because it means they don't own the copyrights then. Yes, they're the... still a little bit funny about that. Some people they get are. away with it, like Ricochet and EC3 get to keep their gimmick names. Certain special people. But you have to be a S-rank, I think, for yeah, them to do. consider that. Yeah. And Vince McMahon thought that Cactus Jack was, and I quote, a little bit sleazy. <laughs> So funny. <laughs> the, the original name that they had for him was Mason the Mutilator. Terrible. It's really funny. In this documentary, they show a page of some of the name ideas they had. It's my favourite thing in wrestling, is hearing the shit names that Vince and his creative team in the late 90s, early 2000s thought would be good to give to very talented wrestlers. If Joe and I could be flies in the wall anywhere in wrestling history, it would be in Vince McMahon's pool house during 1996 laughing our asses off at the names like Ear Man and Head Case. My favourite one that they didn't go with. It's so bad. Worse than Mason the Mutilator. Way worse. <laughs> the name was Eric Eargon. Oh my god! <laughs> That's like even worse than the poor wow. names Stone Cold had to turn Fucking hell. It's very rare. Like, are you sure? Is Chili McFreeze not taken? Yeah. Can I be him instead of fucking Eric Eargon? Oh my God. Oh dear. So Mick Foley, he had a bit of an idea about the type of character he wanted to play. Yeah, he didn't want to be Mason. Vince, he pitched him by going like, well, think about it, Mick. We've, uh, we've had killers. We've had crushers. We've had destroyers. We've never had mutilators. Mason. 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 It's like the it's like a really nice name for a nice, normal man. We did have one wrestler, Mason Ryan, uh, from Wales. Mm. Now works for Cirque du Soleil, so uh, huh. swings and roundabouts the name Mason. So yeah, he had a lot of like he was pitching Vince. He was like on board with like, right, we're not gonna do cactus, we'll we'll do something else. Not Mason the Mutilator, please not Mason the Mutilator. And he came up with the idea of the name of mankind mm -hmm. did, did you hear like some of the reasons why he wanted to be mankind so he thought that there was like kind of a poetry to the name he could talk about he, what he was doing was for the sins of mankind or you know i'm i'm gonna do this for all mankind or you, you could kind of say that he's punishing mankind or there was a lot of like duality of meaning which was going to be lost in 1996 <laughs> he wanted to go with uh, i mean it isn't though mm. like i mean you could argue it is but I would, yeah, I would argue it isn't. Right, this is one of the, my favourite things about Mick Foley. And again, it's, it's why I'm going to argue a lot that the violence isn't necessary. Mm. It's these ideas that, to me, is, is what I love so much about him. The fact that he is willing to think of wrestling almost as like a poem. Mm. He's able to think about like, the metaphors and the double meanings and the analogies you can draw from certain words. So the actual character of Mankind, they settle on Mankind the Mutilator in the meeting. <laughs> and he's other things as well. Like the character was going to be very, very dark and uh, twisted. And like he was going to come from the boiler room. He would speak to a rat called George. <laughs> he had this, uh, like, ma this mask, which is originally going to be iron. Could you imagine wearing that? Like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> iron. And and then he, he instead it became this like molded uh, kind of leather mask. And uh, he, he wanted to have intro music that would be very, very dark and sinister. But then he wanted to have this beautiful, serene piano music and as an outro music, which is 
Like, that's a great fucking idea. How yeah. does no one do that now in wrestling? Yeah, I know. That, that blows my mind that no one does that. Like, so ha- how, 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 how <laughs> do they allow that to not be done today? And to the point where, like, that was news to I because I, I started watching wrestling after he had stopped doing that as a gimmick. Yeah. So the fact that he had done that at all was really news to me. And I was like, fucking hell, like, that's so great. Why doesn't every, like, everyone like do that? Even fans of Mick Foley, a lot of people wouldn't realize that he did do that. He mm. had the intro and the outro music. And the reason he had the outro music of the, uh, the serene, uh, the serene classical music. Do you want to reveal to people what the original character for the sinister, dark and twisted boiler room dwelling mankind was? Yeah. So, before he had his, I don't know, I guess they call it a breakdown Yeah. from reality, he used to be a very talented, famous maestro pianist. <laughs> so weird. It's so fucking weird. Which I didn't realise is why Mankind comes out in his entrance with this weird finger movement. Yeah, he always does the weird fingers. Yeah, like way, way, way after when they wrote that out yeah. of his backstory, he still does but it. But I, I didn't realise that either. He's playing a piano. It's fabulous. The idea was that he was this, yeah, this this incredibly skilled pianist and his mother, it was kind of like a Norman Bates type thing. Yeah. Like his mother was this very domineering, controlling, psychotic woman and she like, broke his fingers or she like slammed the case down on the piano so he couldn't play a piano anymore and then he like broke her fingers with a hammer and he killed her and so basically his promos are him in the boiler room and he's like I've killed my mother and I'm gonna make my symphony of destruction and there's all this like uh, piano music playing and the reason he did the mandible claw his finisher was that two of his fingers had to be taped together permanently as a result of the uh, the deformation of his fingers so he would stick the, the mandible claw the finishing maneuver of, of mankind. And he did the the elbow off the apron onto the onto the concrete. Surprisingly, by the nineties, uh, the late nineties was was no longer in the repertoire uh, after a few hip surgeries, no less. But the uh, mandible claw. Can you describe it for folks at home? What oh, it is it's horrible? Mandible claw is basically when he sticks two fingers into his opponent's mouth under their tongue and presses down hard. Now, if you don't see why that's disgusting, just do it to yourself now. <laughs> see, William Regal on commentary. Feel. William Regal on commentary used to always do that. It's like, if you don't know why that's hard, put your hand right now. Do it now. Get your, <laughs> get your fingers, put them under your tongue, and bite down. And the thing about the mandible claw, right? Because I, as a kid, it was Mr. Socko. Because once he had just developed mm. the sock puppet, he just put it on. and was like, ah, smelly sock in your mouth. Blah. But the idea of the mandible claw was that originally it was like a, a someone in the 60s had done it they were like a doctor character the idea mm. was they were a master of anatomy you can put the fingers down underneath there if you actually bite down because it's built into the mandible it would actually make it hurt more yeah. because you're putting more pressure on that nerve so it's a nerve hold and i thought that's really cool because everyone's like oh why don't you just bite your fingers off i was like if you try and bite the fingers off you'll make the hold yeah. more distressing and more painful fucking gross move it's horrible i i hate it i mean i, I love it it's effective but i hate it Ugh. you were shocked when i told you the original role of mankind and that yeah. was to be the primary antagonist and the first man to dominate the undertaker blew my mind i still can't really believe it to be honest so he was brought in like the undertaker had, had loads of matches he'd been in the company for like you know eight years he was kind of like he was a bit like roman reigns had gotten to or john cena where he kind of beat everyone and no one felt to be a credible challenger they would just put him in with these big guys like yokozuna or mabel and it wasn't like there wasn't enough drama in his matches anymore they didn't feel like they had anyone who could 
break that character. He was too, he was too like Superman almost. So mankind, the idea was that he was this really like psychological, uh, you know, uh, maniac, deranged character who would get in the mind of the Undertaker, and he stole away. Like in his first match, he stole the urn and the Undertaker's manager Paul Bear away from him, and that was like a huge deal. And I think a lot of people forgot about that. As a man who's known primarily in his career later on as always putting other people over and yep. always, always fucking losing. Pretty sure he loses all the matches that we were looking at in one way, shape, or form. That his initial run in WWE was beating The Undertaker, like, with clean, with the mandible claw, and beating him in boiler room matches, and winning. And that is not really that common a thing to happen. No, I didn't think going into this episode that I would realise that Mick Foley had so much in common with Brock Lesnar. Fuck, that's so weird! Yeah. That is so weird! That's why it's, like, extra weird for me, because, like... In my knowledge of wrestling history, Brock Lesnar is the only person to defeat the Undertaker, <laughs> as far as I have seen. Yeah, and I mean, like it was a it was a huge deal at the time. Like. I can only imagine because this is like prime Undertaker. This is when he's wearing his silly DC villain purple gloves. Hey, don't mock the purple gloves. Come on, now. they're so silly. His character as Mankind was so fucking distressing. He called Paul Bear mommy. Oh! And he would like, Paul Bear would like give him the urn. And it's weird because the urn in Undertaker's history is a kind of, it's meant to be like the source of his power in some ways. And they did allude that Mankind did get power from it, but he would just grab it and he would just start rocking back and forth with it and holding it like it was like a, a newborn baby or something. It was really fucking weird. And I'm not allowed to know what's in the urn. I mean, I don't think you are thematically prepared <laughs> to learn all about the urn. There's some groundwork to go in. You I've know? got some theories as to what it could be. Okay, what's in the urn? I've got a few different ideas. Okay. Right, One, I think it might be Kane. <laughs> what's in there? Yeah. Like a little dwarf in a flask. Yeah, I don't know, because Kane, his whole story, wasn't it, that he burned? Wasn't he supposed to be burned? Mm. And then he was supposed to be dead in the fire, and then he comes back and he's all mutilated and disfigured, mm -hmm. and he's like, will you let me die? So what if the Undertaker was carrying around Kane in his urn? Maybe. I don't know. Some idea. Opens it up. That's gotta be Kane. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was the Undertaker himself, <gasps> somehow. Well, I'm very, very intrigued to get into that at some point. Oh! No, my new theory is it's The Undertaker and Kane's parents mm -hmm. and that he carried around his parents. Why are they in one urn? Well, that seems the type of thing that wrestling would do is just yeah. put two parents in one urn. Yeah, wrestling seems like the kind of industry that would posthumously disrespect people. Yeah, that's, I'm, that's my theory I'm officially going with, okay. by the way. Broad theory that has been laid down. We'll recall that when we get into the origins of The Undertaker and the power of the urn eventually. I don't know why then mankind is then hugging the urn of the Undertaker's dead parents. I think if you're a vaguely mystical character, as Mankind was, that's the thing a lot of people maybe have forgotten about because he becomes quite a, you know, he becomes quite an everyman type of wrestler that his origins were very, like he was a evil wrestling pianist who stole a magical urn and stole the Undertaker's friend, Paul Bearer. That's weird. <laughs> he talked to his rat, George. It's so funny, Foley wrote in his book about when Mike Tyson came into WWE and he went up because he was a huge Mankind fan. And he's like, I love you so much. Oh man, with George at? And he's like, George? Like, George? The rat you used to talk to? And Foley's like, oh, right, yeah. He's like, Mike Tyson was just such a super fan and he just loved the rat that he used to talk to, the big weirdo. So, at the time, he was wrestling at a really, really high level, and Mankind found himself quite quickly in his career after defeating The Undertaker in a match for the WWF Championship, and a match which 
is one of my all-time favourites, a match which Mick Foley said for around seven years was his all-time favourite match. This is from Mind Games in 1996. Mankind taking on the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels, the sexy boy. It's always fun to watch Shawn Michaels coming out in this period of time because I think someone's got a little bit of a crush. <laughs> and I think her name's Joe Graham. I have a weak spot for any young man dressed as Michael Jackson. <laughs> He's got such a Michael Jackson look here. It's great. You've got women fainting and screaming in the crowd. The, like, si- the heavy synth. Like, the heavy synth, That yeah. would work, you the know. dance moves, the hip thrusts. Oh, man. I want to either hear Michael Jackson do a cover of Shawn Michaels' entrance music. we may be a bit late for that now. Or, well, I mean, you know, they can do all sorts of special effects these days. I mean, I watched Rogue One and, you know, the, all the dead people are in that. So, I, <laughs> what, oh, is that unrealistic? Fucking Zappa is touring next year. He's been dead for 20 years. So come on, it's not unrealistic. Or Shawn Michaels covering any of the Michael Jackson back catalogue. Mm. You know, I think that would work. Yeah. You know? uh, so, Mankind, the big ball spot that he has in this match. Thoughts on that? I mean... This is around the time when he would he would pull out his hair a lot, which mm. makes me feel very icky. Mm. Now I was always terrified by that the the hair going. He would just he would yank at it and he would throw it up into the air. Now he said because he like he literally never had a haircut like almost his entire life at, at that point, mm. and he so rarely cut his hair that he had a lot of dead hair. So he could just go like that and stuff would come out. And he shaved in those spots around the ear, so he would just pull off hair and would make it think oh. He's actually pulling out vast chunks of his hair when all he was doing was like, you know, because I've got very luscious eyelashes, for instance. I could go, wee, wee, and like, oh, look, he's pulling out eyelashes, you know? Yeah, but you did that and you pulled out one eyelash, There was actually a second eyelash there. Two eyelashes, right? Because I've been thinking about that because you told me that the other day as... To try and reassure me, basically, he's not. You don't like seeing the hair pull. No, I really don't. I really don't like seeing hair get pulled out. It makes me very uncomfortable. And. I, I still don't really believe him saying that. Really? Be yeah, because, yes, okay, I, I believe to an extent, if you don't brush your hair and then you pull out clumps of it, yeah, it looks really impressive. I can do that myself. But I'll be honest, it still only pulls out some, mm. not clumps. Right. Not handfuls. Okay. And this is a man who has had how many concussions? Uh, well, yeah, at least a few dozen. Would the number of chair shots to the head he's had, would you say it's it's over or, or under 100? Oh, easily. I mean, geez, we watched one match where we got a tenth of the way there. So, right. yeah, uh, uh, over that. It was so, probably closer to the thousand. So, the, yeah, that that's kind of my point. Okay. I think when you've had that many... And, and that's just chair shots. Let's not even count the number of shots of, of him falling onto the concrete and hitting the back of his head or him being slammed into stairs or... or turnbuckles or any other number of head injuries and when you have a head injury your hair falls out much more easily so i i kind of like i believe him to an extent right yes it's just put out clumps of dead hair but also maybe the reason he's able to do that is maybe more to do with his yeah yeah his style that he has uh, endeared himself to uh as he refers to an ecw he's been doing things his way the concrete way Mm. and uh you're seeing a i mean even though he's in probably the best shape of his career at this point here, we've, we've done a lot of extended viewing. I mean, we're, this is the match that we're going through in depth here, but we've done a lot of extended viewing for this. It'll all be up on howtowrestling.com and he recommended stuff. But I think like the pace of him in this match is uh, he's so much faster 
than he is in later matches and encounters and it's crazy to see how athletic he is that athleticism that we alluded to at the start is very much here in full point but you talking about you know him getting concussions and chair shots and all that you just saying that and i know you're you're saying it from a, an area of concern and mm. trying to explain a, a kind of harmful upsetting piece of behavior uh, the announcers will be talking like that all the time and it's something i didn't really count on Listening back now, it happened when I did my first season of the Attitude podcast, some of the commentary in Mankind matches particularly is a little bit difficult. And I think you zoning out of commentary probably made you enjoy the match a bit more. Yes, I almost intentionally didn't pay attention to it this time because the couple of lines I heard were very deeply uncomfortable. It was stuff yeah. like, Mankind there, get your chair shot to the head. Oh, he fucking loves it, Dunny. He loves it. Oh, he loves pain. Yeah. He loves being in pain. It's, it's the point in time where we can have someone hit in the head with a chair and kind of go, oh, that's going to kill a load of brain cells. Yeah. He won't know his way home after this one. That's definitely a concussion. We but, love them. But we don't know if they're bad or not. Because <laughs> the evidence is very vague. Some people think concussions might be good. Yeah, all that memory loss. <laughs> that's a really good thing. Let's do more of those. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of salacious talk about brain scrambling and yeah, really upsetting. It is. It's quite upsetting knowing that Foley did struggle with uh, with memory loss and things like that. He did describe at one point, and it was the scariest thing I'd ever heard. I don't know where he's at at this point because his general physical health has improved a whole lot in recent years. Thank you, DDP. Um, but I do remember him saying that. He had spent the last, you know, X number of years of his life, and it feels like everything is underwater. Yeah, like I'm not surprised. The, the, the movement, how things move past his head, how he hears, how he takes information, and that sounds so scary. Where something isn't necessarily moving in slow motion, but feels like it is. I have a couple of friends who have had concussions, um, just through you know bad luck, mm. and them explaining what it's like and how it's impacted their life. Their life. Mm is so scary just that's one single yeah. concussion and one concussion is bad we know that now yeah. that even one concussion can have long-term effects yeah and that's why you know when people get concussed now in wrestling there's such a long long time before they get cleared because some of the signs of the concussion don't seem to actually show themselves until no. sometimes weeks after the effects and of course foley was getting them every other night and he he, so he wasn't calling in sick folks no. uh yeah the cumulative effects of concussions as well we still don't know no really. exactly and that's what's oh it's just so sickening to think and that's why foley's donating his brain to science after he passes away goddamn hero for that alone yeah this match with Shawn michaels fucking incredible can i just we, we skimmed over the entrances and that's very important oh, yeah, for me very to discuss big part of this, yeah. and especially in this match mankind comes out in a coffin <laughs> very confusing to me with his new music that i'm not familiar with i thought this was the undertaker maybe coming out for some reason because what you're used to na, 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 na. yeah you're not used to he walks <laughs> And he was nowhere to be seen. There was just like a coffin being rolled out. Paul Bear is there with an urn. I'm not an idiot. Of course, I'm going to think it's the Undertaker. Yeah, very much. I mean, it, this is a this is very like it is mankind, but it's so not like the image that springs into people's head of mankind. No, I remember in like 1999, my cousin got a PlayStation and we rented Warzone and we looked in the back and it was like Stone Cold Steve Austin, Own Heart, Mankind. Why are we not immediately renting this? We put it on and we put it... In, we, we don't be watching since 98. And we put it in the uh, the, the disc. We load up Mankind. It's like, oh, it's a bit of a weird 
costume there? Why is he <laughs> brown? And then like his entrance music is like, like, who the fuck is this? Why? Why is there violins? Why does it sound like a Midsummer Murder? It's a fucking wrestler. Did you hate it? I hated it so much. Really? I absolutely despised it. And honestly, within the last five years, I even said I still hate it. I've grown to appreciate it because it it is a part of that character, mm. and it it kind of. The point in time where he starts becoming more friendly and he still has that music is a very special kind of time in, in, in his career. So yeah. yeah, I guess I kind of, I accept it for what it is now, even though you're not going to beat that fucking great fucking music. He takes some pretty sick moves from old HBK in this one. Well, one minute into the match and the concrete floor has already been exposed. Yeah. Mankind is underneath the padded floor bit and he's on the concrete and then Shawn Michaels just jumps on him. This is all Mick Foley's ideas as well and Mankind, like his role at this is to give Shawn, Mike, like, give Shawn Michaels an aggressive edge to his character and Michaels in the documentary talks about like how Foley was coming up with all this stuff and it was stuff to make him look good and yeah. he, like, you know, this is a guy who was in the clique and whatnot. He didn't necessarily think that this was how business was done. He no, and he's, it. he's fighting against someone who's just just debuted on WWF fighting The Undertaker. Yeah. Like that, I'm not surprised Shawn Michaels was surprised. Yeah, it's it's uh, pretty, like he probably had plenty of ideas in his mind and one would have thought that many of those would just have been for himself. If anything, this is like, this shows you this match how good mankind is, or Mick Foley is at getting other people over, and that becomes his his real strength. And not many people can do that in wrestling to be known as someone who's good at putting people over. Yeah. Uh, very few people want that job in the first place. There's a lot of aggression towards Mick Foley's legs in this one. He gets suplexed into the steps. And I pointed out to you quite early when we were doing our, our early viewing for this, I said, look at how Mick Foley runs into the steps. This is great, the difference between Foley and Austin. I was like, look at how Austin runs the ropes. Look at how Mick Foley runs into steps. Yeah. How does he run into steps? He, he like, tumbles into them so that he lands on his legs. It's really hard to explain, to be honest. It's like, if he gets pushed into the stairs, modern day wrestling rules mean you turn around and you fall with your back, or you fall on a weight that basically minimises any, any danger to your body. Which, if you think about how your body and momentum would work... Yeah, it's fiction. It's Yeah, it's totally... It <laughs> looks Was crap. your mind a little bit blown? Yeah, yeah no, I've, I've, I've always hated modern styles of of being thrown into stairs and stuff i don't really care for it mm. and i've never understood why whenever i watch mankind mick foley stuff i always really enjoy it and i just assumed oh well he's just a pro he's just able to make it look sick probably because you know he takes pain in some way he probably is <laughs> genuinely hurting because i know that about mick that's kind of his style but i didn't realize just what it was he was doing so when he falls he la- he does literally land on his knees but like tumbles over them into into the st- the steps kind of he wants it to be loophole free it's like if you yeah. were thrown in there your momentum would carry you over it's a thing that would trip you up and he rolls over it it's fucking insane and it's terrible though because it's now ruined any moment like that for me because i like, i enjoyed watching him do it and i didn't understand why now i know why i don't enjoy current wrestlers doing it 
but I don't want them to actually hurt themselves. But also, my God, it looks so much better the when knees, you do it that way. Oh, he takes it right on the knees. And he does. He actually, I remember quite early in his career, one of the things I found out when I was a kid still watching was that the tendons in his knees had given way and he actually had to have a cadaver transplant. So he has yeah. a dead person's knee tendons, which is fucking horrifying to think of. Yeah. So Michaels continues to work the leg. He puts it in the figure four leg lock. Uh, I thought I would uh, bring up this uh, point to uh, to mention the only time that mankind ever submitted in a match. Uh, now, could you imagine a scenario in which mankind would give up or quit in a match? Oh, yeah. You asked me this earlier and you mentioned as well that it was a Vince Russo moment. <laughs> so I've been, I've been trying to think of some ways in which he could Vince Russo-esque yeah. quit a okay. match. I was thinking maybe he saw some boobies. Maybe. Uh, I want to. T- no, I want to tap that, not tap. Oh, never mind. <laughs> maybe he was quitting. Um, I don't know. Maybe he was quitting violin lessons and they misheard him and they thought, oh, he quits the match. All right. He was in a match with Ken Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man, who was a submission specialist from the UFC. And he did the ankle lock was his, his finisher. And Mankind was in the ankle lock for ages. It's like, he's going to break his leg. He's going to break. He has to give up. He has to give up. So what Mankind did was apply the mandible claw to himself. What? And then he tapped out. And then they had to say, and then they, they said, the winner of the match, as a result of the mandible claw... Mankind! And then Ken Chevron was like, what? What? Yeah, he made himself tap out. He gave the move to himself. You can't make yourself tap out. That is still tapping out to Ken Shamrock. Oh, it's oh my so dumb. God, Vince Russo. <laughs> Fucking use your brain. He did. That's how we got there. Like, Terrible. Terrible. How does Foley regain the feel in his leg? He just stabs himself. <laughs> it's just a... I don't know, he has like a pointed stick or something that he gets given to him from Paul Bearer. The the noises. You get a lot of that here in the Mm. match. I love his noises. There's one noise in particular he did. Um, when he was in a submission hold, oh, so he, he tried to put Michaels in the uh, in the claw. Oh, was that was it, it yeah. yeah. And he lets out this like pterodactyl scream. <laughs> There's, I don't know if he does it in, if it's like this is what he's going for, Mick Foley, when he does this. I guess that it is, but he sounds like a pig being like mm. slaughtered. Yeah, I think that is what he's going which for, which is such like a subconscious level of like just horror. Like, there is something really distressing about pigs being hurt. Like, mm. the screams they make is just like, it's, just on some, it's like nails on a chalkboard or something. It's just, I don't know, an innate, horrible sound. Something I hated as a kid, I hated the noises. I didn't like that he made these noises. Oh, I love it. And in the book, he like he lists the noises. Like, there's wede, wedo, wee, wee, aish, aish, aish. There's a, there's a lot of noises in the Foley <laughs> arsenal, you know? But wrestlers should make noises. He's a true, original grunt enthusiast. Absolutely. He is a grunt troubadour, Joe, yeah. is what the fuck he is. A, a maven of grunts. <laughs> I felt very bad for piano savant mankind as HBK opted to work the fingers. He smashed him with a chair on the hands. Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. <laughs> um, I was very thankful for Shawn Michaels' very careful usage of the steel chair. Oh yeah, there wasn't any headshots. No, there wasn't. It was all everywhere but the head. Yeah, very careful. He did the hand. He did the leg. He did the foot. He did the stomach. I love when he does the side shot. Yes, the leg. He cuts him like chop him down, make like him axe. fall down. Yeah, that's such an effective move. And I bet it doesn't hurt so bad. Mm. You know, compared to you know being hit in the head. That's true. I so mean... thanks. 
Sean? Maybe someone else will decide to do that at some point, you know. <laughs> the big the, I, I swear to God, if we get the big chair shot onto the back and the person leant over looking up at it going, Ooh, you know, that's the only chair shot there is anymore. Yeah. And yes, chair shots to the head are bad. I don't think they should be done. No. I was one of the people who was like, ah, if you put up your hands though, yeah, but you know what, what's the point? Like if you have to put up your hands and people are gonna complain and Oh, I like the putting up the hands. I think it's effective. I don't think people should complain, but that's it's, my issue with the fans, not it, the wrestling. It's still not safe though. And if Oh, the, is it still not safe? I mean it's more safe, but it's people have still put up their hands and gotten concussed. So, you know, oh, it's not right. foolproof. Okay. So it if you're gonna say no chair shots to the head I don't think there should be an asterisk by that right, yeah. so but this show you can do everything else you know so there's a fucking blistering pace in this match like it's fucking incredible and you know I'm always watching you when I'm watching matches um, you know out of the corner of my eye and you were in the tail end of this like I know it's a good match when Shawn Michaels is like hitting a clothesline and you're going yes mm! you know they were getting you hooked in here and it wasn't, I mean, there were weapons. There was a sick table spot in this. There yeah. was a great bit where he switched in music to him while he was holding a chair. Oh, that was so gross. But the reactions were all coming from the pace mm. and from the nonstop, you know, you think he's just done and he's going to come back now. And Shawn Michaels, Shawn Michaels didn't get worked over. There was no down period. There was back well, and forth the whole time, it felt like. I mean, there was a very small down period where, where Shawn Michaels gets put through the, um, the announcing table. Yeah. And then you have a very concerned Vince McMahon <laughs> rushing off commentary to go, is my sexy boy okay? Oh, come on now. He's my boy toy. I want to make sure that he's okay, all right? <laughs> Vader appears and causes the disqualification and The Undertaker comes out of a caskish to give this a very resolutely 1996 finish. <laughs> yeah, confusing, that. I was wondering if the end of the match spoiled it for you and what your thoughts were on this. It, yeah. Seeing as this is one of the la- you know, this is one of the first ones we're talking about, this is one of the last matches that we watched, were you surprised to see Foley doing this type of match? I mean, having seen his earlier, earlier stuff, no, not mm. really, because I know what he was capable of. Just again, why I'm like, it's so sad about the fact that he can't do it for very long. I loved this match. I really, really, really loved this match. But yeah, that end, fuck me. I thought it was a Vince Russo finish. It really <laughs> was bad. I don't like... I mean, Vader coming out and attacking Shawn Michaels, ending in a DQ was bad enough. But then the second swerve of... Like, there's a couple of moments in the match where Mankind tries to put Shawn Michaels in the coffin that he came out in, which I don't understand. Mind games. Yeah, okay. And then he tries to put him in the end for some reason, even though the match has already ended with a DQ. And then The Undertaker's just in there. To think this match comes two years after that Vader one, though, is pretty impressive in terms of, like, the, the shift of style. Because you would have thought, oh, Foley's just a slow brawler, you know, with hurting himself in the right. later match. And then you have this match here, which is, like, you could put, that's a that's a uh, high-octane performance. Yeah. That's like an own heart, Bret Hart, Mr. Perfect style yeah. of, of pace and technical wrestling and all that. So, I mean, I'm always blown away by it. It was one of Foley's favourite matches. But what did you think of this one? Like I said, I absolutely loved it. I give it four stars out of five. I was going to give it five stars, but I took off a point for the end. Mm. Rubbish end. Yeah. Very disappointing. But it's a great match. And it's so cool to see Mick Foley fight against Shawn Michaels in a style that's... I mean, I would say that's more of a Shawn Michaels style in, yeah. in any way. 
and I've not seen a huge amount of Shawn Michaels matches, but they have all been very fast paced, very sort of psychological. You are very much involved in part of the story of the match and the pacing and everything. I didn't think I'd be reminded of Sting and Flair in this match, <laughs> but that's really what it was. And that is yeah. literally making Ric Flair's skin crawl off his body at the moment. <laughs> So Mankind around this time did get a little bit of a retcon. Uh, No longer was he the pianist, per se. They were going more along the lines of the breakdown and the the character as actually more of a result of the fact that he had been Cactus Jack. And they did these interviews with with JR. And they were talking about, this is like some of the best fucking stuff WWE has ever done in terms of character work. Where it's like, he was a kid with a dream and the dream was to be dude love and they bring up the loved one and he's like you know i thought if i had the nice heart tattoo and put in the earrings that i get the girls and i'd be like Shawn michaels they didn't work out that way though did it jimmy and like he had to become cactus jack instead because of who he was and how he looked and he continually mutilated his body and went further and further away from his original goal and there's a part where he's like why do you use the mandible claw and he's like i use the mandible claw because I envision Vince McMahon every time. And I say to him, why didn't you take me when I was young and when I was good? And why have you only hired me now? And I'm like this. And it's like, oh, it touches on everything from fucking body image to self-sacrifice to like self-delusion to the power of dreams and the power of broken dreams. It's fucking brilliant. Much better than being a pianist. (laughs) Much better than being a pianist. And I think the reason it's so good is because, as he says in this documentary, everything he says is true. It all comes from Mick Foley. That is everything he says is what he would answer in a genuine interview if you were interviewing Mick Foley himself. It's just he's doing it in character of mankind. And everything from like him eating worms while he was playing lacrosse. And Jim Ross is like, my God, you were a freak, weren't you? And he's like, "Ah, what did you expect me to do? Of course I had worms. Uh, And he puts Jim Ross, like it's so fucking weird because he's really intense the whole time. And the saddest thing about it uh, is when he brings up like, you know, you're a man of, of great integrity, Jim Ross, and people listen to what you have to say. So why do you tell everyone that I love... Pain. Pain. Which he does. And that's the horrible thing on commentary. That's like my one criticism of Jim Ross is how often he says, Mick Foley loves pain. Probably love that one. He gets hit with a chair. He's like, I probably like that one. Yeah. And he's like, where does the fun start when I can't kneel down and pick up my kids? Is that that the fun start? Or where I can't remember things well anymore? Like when I wake up in agony and I go to bed in agony and, you know, why would I like that? Why are you saying this? Because it's like, oh, it's like when Austin turned heel and he's like, I never said I was a good guy. Why are, you, why are you putting this on me? And he's like, why do you all think I love pain? Yeah. It hurts. Obviously it hurts. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, I think maybe part of the reason I feel so strongly about the whole, you know, don't put yourself through so much damage that it ruins your body is because this interview is one of the first things I watched being a wrestling fan. Oh my God. It's heartbreaking. when I bought that DVD, what's it called? It was Mick Foley's greatest hits and misses. It was just right. like the little compilation that they released. It's where you saw Sandman and Cactus Jack yeah. for the first time. Yeah, I picked it up when you wouldn't show me any any wrestling, and I got it for four quid. And I watched like all the clips on that, so I learnt like a potted history of of Mick Foley. We ended up using it again now for research. Yeah. It's actually ended up being like the best investment of four oh, quid I ever. Should have kept my receipt and claimed tax back on it. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> But I think that's maybe part of the reason why I feel so strongly about it is that that's one of the first things I saw was this man who is broken and battered and in pain and so angry and so sad. Oh, that's it's sad. Full of yeah. remorse. 
and for, rest, a, for, for a stupid mistake that he made when he was a kid and that really only continued on because of the actions of everyone around him, encouraging that behaviour and celebrating that particular style of wrestling and saying, you know, that's what you have to give is your body. Not who you are as a person, not who you are as a character or as an entertainer. But your commodity, basically, yeah. yeah. Your body is a functional object for us until it's broken and isn't anymore. It's really important as well to know how, like, genre breaking this was because at the time he had to struggle a lot with this you know when he was wrestling with the undertaker they were like all right and then you're going to cheat and win it's like no because this character can't be a bad guy who cheats to win that doesn't work and in wrestling at the time there was a very narrow viewpoint of what a bad guy could be you could be a dirty sneaky cheater or you could be like vader a, a complete remorseless killing machine and the fact that mick foley gave us the first ever tragic Mm -hmm. heel character that's really overlooked. I think it's one of his most important contributions ever. I mean, later on, he was one of the most... He, he recognised that the market was wide open for a character with a bit of fucking levity and a bit of humour. And that was really important because I think mm. people expect their top guys to have a bit of humour with them. But for bad guys to have a bit of sadness, it's he, really not done enough anymore. It's not done enough. And he mentioned something in this documentary which I believe to be one of the fundamentals of wrestling. And it's something William Regal talks about as well. Which is that... If you are a heel, your character should always believe that they are in the right. No matter what. No matter what. And that goes, honestly, in my opinion, with any piece of fiction. TV, Mm. film, video games, anything with a plot. If there is a bad guy or woman in it, they have to believe they're in the right. There's no one on this earth who does something evil and thinks that, haha, I'm doing this evil thing and it's uh, it's very evil of me and I'm an evil person. No, of course not. Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. It's very two-dimensional if, you, hmm. if it's going to be that kind of cheap, oh, they're a sadist, all right, yeah. kill, you, know, you know. Not everyone has to be the fucking joker, you know. <laughs> so he, he's clever and he realises that he actually, he can make this monster of a character very human by simply just talking from the heart. But as these things tend to go in wrestling, even though that did provide a lot of fuel for the Mankind character, the lengthy sit-down interviews and discussions of Dude Love starts the wheels turning in Vince McMahon's mind. Because what is more... Like, he loves a good feel-good story. And after hearing all of that real fucking sad stuff, it's like, well, fuck. The feel-good hit of the summer is going to be Dude Love coming into WWE shortly. And he contacts Mankind, he contacts Mick Foley, and he's like, right, they're doing this whole gimmick where Mankind desperately wants to be Steve Austin's tag partner, Austin's DTA, doesn't want anything to do with him. Uh, So he decides, right, well, not going to be Mankind, because you don't want to hang out with a mutilated freak. But you never said anything about Dude Love, the hippest cat in the land. Oh, have mercy we watched the match where dude love debuts it's coming weird. out dancing and steve austin's like why is there a hippie in here it makes no sense <laughs> dude love the tie-dye the soft shoes and we have to talk about that fucking entrance music um did i show you did you see dude love's entrance video i don't it's where he's like he's flying and he's like dancing in front of a green screen. Going. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> I remember like as a kid, anytime Dude Love came out, I wouldn't even look at him. I would just be like peering to see if I could catch a glimpse of the Titan Tron because he'd be like <laughs> he'd be flying by the Statue of Liberty or being like underwater dancing or like in a lava lamp going. Woo-hoo-hoo. <laughs> 
Foley himself in later years has been a bit down on Dude Love. Aww. Because even though Dude Love was brought in originally to be this kind of like wacky character oddball tie team with Steve Austin, he did then come on to, Vince did try to make him to be like a face. Like, you know, Dude Love is like someone that fans like to see. It makes them feel good about themselves. Yeah. And I don't think Foley really liked that because mm. I think he still felt that he wanted his legacy to be the hardcore legend. Yeah. And I think it was a bit of a hard pill for him to swallow that Vince McMahon didn't want him to be Cactus Jack, but was very happy for him to be dancing around with babes in bikinis and wearing silly hats and blowing bubbles as dude love. It's so sad that he even now can't realise what a huge favour was done for him. <laughs> yeah, you got to fucking summer off bumps. like. Yeah. Here's, here's a prospect for you, Mick Foley. You get to not put your body through incredible more amounts of pain. That's probably going to mean you have to wrestle less years and spend less quality time with your kids. Also, you have to hang out with really hot women. Oh, no, I'm just going to take away this barbed wire two by four and you just do the Charleston instead. Yeah. yeah? How about that? <laughs> Did you like that? Do you, no? No, I hate it. What if we take away this flaming table and bring in some flaming hot babes from 1996 <laughs> instead. How about that, no? And he's not even having to do gross stuff with the women. Like, it's one of those rare instances where, okay, they're obviously just supposed to be there as hot babes, but, you know, as far as this period of wrestling goes, that's quite respectful towards women. Oh, and also, fun fact, one of the original dudettes who was brought out uh, for to be with Dude Love was actually Colette Foley, his wife. Yeah, his wife, <laughs> which, which is, is really fun. I think it was like, the only way they were going to okay doing the dudettes at all. <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, as Dude Love, he was more of a comedy character. He would dance, even though he couldn't dance. Uh, the mandible call was now known as the love handle, and he did sweet shin music, So because he wanted to be like Shawn Michaels, but the leg wouldn't go up that high, so he would do the big, you know, stomp of the foot, and then he would kick you in the leg, in the ankle. <laughs> you know, so this was the period of time where he had like the silly comedy matches with own heart and stuff, things like selling a bag of popcorn like it's a bag of nails, or like you know the plastic lids of the soda cups, like sledgehammer shots. So funny. And I think as much as he was down on it at the time, this was very much an important point of even him realizing that there's a scope here for comedy, yeah, and that you are very good at it. Yeah. So get that thinking cap on. It's almost like physical performance of like wrestling and putting your body through pain and understanding what your body is capable of has something in common with physical humor and slapstick mm. comedy hmm. it's so weird though to think of all these different spinning plates at the moment because he's kind of developing all the stuff at the same time and he still wants to be a different character it feels like because while he's dude love he's in a feud with Triple H and he wrestles Triple H as Mankind and in a match he rips open his shirt and then he reveals he's Dude Love because he's got the tattoo and then the next night he's meant to have a match against Dude Love Falls Count Anywhere but Dude Love doesn't want to do it because Dude Love doesn't do hardcore stuff and we get the very famous Three Faces of Foley sit down <laughs> interview where Dude Love and Mankind reveal that Cactus Jack is coming to the WWE for the first time ever and what were your thoughts on that like <laughs> it's not easy to get three guys playing with one performer all on screen at once Three, well done. I was really, really impressed. I mean, it's obviously a green screen, but it's done very well. It's so, it's so funny, like, the intricacies of the character. Like, Dude Love is, like, dancing the whole time in the background. When he sits down, he does the little Charleston dance. <laughs> He's so you know. shit at it. That's the best <laughs> thing about Mick Foley can't dance for fuck. <laughs> so Cactus Jack does get to appear in WWE, and it's a really, like, confusing period when you're trying to keep track of the lineage. And in yeah. the documentary, he points out rightly like he went from being mankind to dude love to cactus jack 
back to mankind, back to dude love and Mick Foley in between, and then going up there. You know, he felt like he was spread out in lots of different directions. For me, as a kid, and this is this is the exact time I started watching. It was fucking mind blowing. Like, it wasn't confusing then. I mean, it was, but. I, lo- I mean, I understood that the characters were very different and I liked they were very different. And I had my, like, I liked them all as well. That was the thing. It wasn't like I only liked Mankind. I loved Mankind. I loved Cactus Jack. I loved Dude Love. But I loved them for three very different reasons. Mm. But he points out that by the time it got to King of the Ring 1998, he probably was at the point of squandering some of his goodwill with the fans because they didn't know if he was a good guy or a bad guy. And this is a character who never had a, now I'm a bad guy kind of heel turn moment. You know, it was quite difficult. I mean, we did get to see heel dude love. Uh, Joe, in case you're not a backer on Patreon and listening to the summer and winter of Corbin, it's Joe's best friend and favourite wrestler. I love him. Corporate Baron Corbin, the constable, former general manager. No one you, understands. You say you like nothing more than a, a corporate makeover. I do. What do you uh, think of the corporate makeover of Dude Love? I love it. But I think what really makes it is that he, the moment he turns corporate is when like, so Vince comes out and (laughs) Steve Austin's in the ring, I think. And Dude Love turns on Steve Austin and he's like wearing a shirt and tie then. And he's got his hair all slicked back and he's all corporate. And then (laughs) Vince tries to like take him away with him. And they both just start dancing and... Vince McMahon aggressively doing Charleston. It's insane. While Steve Austin in the ring tries not to laugh. Uh, yeah. One of the most pure, wholesome moments in wrestling. Dude love Vince McMahon and three very scantily clad women in bikinis all dancing <laughs> like, we're going to get you. And Jim Ross like, my God, this could be the end of Stone Cold Steve Austin's reign as champion. And Austin's like... <laughs> the Charleston is a really deceptively hard dance to do. I can, I right. This is my one brag of the episode. I can do the Charleston. Me too. I was trained. Okay, I was not trained. I I, I did it from just watching aggressively. No, do love. That's not. That's not the Charleston. It's fucking hard. Okay, to do it properly, it's really really hard. Oh really? Yeah. And they're all doing it shit, and it's great. It's and I brilliant. love the awkward, clumsy. Like they're just. They're just waving their arms around and banging their knees together. And it, I love it. As Dane as Foley himself is on this kind of period of time in some respects, there's something like the fact that he's changed his character so much is very compelling. Like they did a thing like to gain Vince's favour, he had to kill Terry Funk, basically. Like, that was, it was like, you know, you beat up your best friend. You proved to you beat me. Your dad. Yeah. Oh, it's so like your new dad is telling you to beat up your old dad. <laughs> like, it's so fucking. And he would call Vince dad as well. That like, oh. You would just call him dad. Like, Paul Bear's his mom and Vince is his dad. Don't you know you're supposed to awkwardly blurt out dad backstage when you don't mean to, like Kurt Angle? <laughs> um. So yeah, like him coming out as corporate dude love and he's got like the blazer on and he's coming out to like dude love, dude love baby. <laughs> and he's dancing, but not too much. He's got a copy it's a of corporate the- dance. Yeah, he's a little corporate dance. Uh, he's got the fake teeth in. He's got the Wall Street Journal. It's so fucking great. <laughs> But, you know, he comes into that summer and he feels he's got to prove something. And the thing he has to prove is Hell in a Cell 1998, one of the most barbaric, one of the most dramatic, one of the, in some ways, hardest to watch, but also most difficult to turn away from matches ever. I still, still, still can't comprehend that this 
come so late. Like, this is so early to me. This is 1998. Like, that's when you started watching wrestling. Yeah. And yet this feels like, you know, we're at a point now through the episode where I feel like like this should be towards the end of his well, career. Well, it is towards, I mean, two years after this, he's he's retired from full-time well. competition. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, I just find it ridiculous. Do you think he was a young man, when, a much younger guy when he did this then? or? I'm now trying to think how old he would have been. What, like mid-30s? He would have been 30 here. 30. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it's very hard to wrap my head around. When you saw the match for the first time, did it... I mean, obviously, like the match is, is powerful in the sense that you know there's no, there's no loopholes here. This is very much the the McFoley, the concrete way, so to speak. I was worried it would put you off wrestling mm. because there is a there's a brutality here, but it is, I think also as well it's sandwiched between these really like dramatic moments. Even though he's meant to be the bad guy as well, like I don't know, like what. Did it strike you as being a bit much when you first saw it, or oh, did it captivate you? No, it did. It, it both, both of them. It captivated me, and I thought it was too much. But I think I can explain why I like this match, and I don't like some other matches which involve maybe different types of violence. Okay. This match has accidental violence. It they didn't plan it. It's not like someone went. Oh yeah, Mick Foley says that I can push him off halfway down the cell, but now I'm just going to push him off the top instead. Well, the the fall off the top was planned. Okay, yeah, the fall off the top was planned, but then we still have falling off. There's, there are ways, there are, aren't ways of doing it without pain, but there are ways of doing it without breaking your neck. There was no uh, airbag underneath no. that table, unfortunately. Sadly. <laughs> but what I mean is, like, the really iconic moments of this match is when he falls through the cell. Like, that's the moment that everyone mm. remembers, really, I think, more than falling off the, the top. I, I would be remiss not to mention there are some conspiracy theorists out there, and I did look into it when I did the King of the Ring 1998 pay-per-view review way back for the Outer podcast. There are some who believe that it's one of history's greatest kayfabes, that they did plan to go through the cell. But... I... I Okay. Well, Even if you, if you did part, plan it, that's fucking insanity. I still... I don't think they did. I don't think they did. And to me, there's still a very big difference between an intentional, you know, 50 chair shots to a, the back of someone's head and someone happening to fall through a cell yeah. in the heat of a moment, mm. in the heat of a match. It's, it's it's always the intentional going overboard I don't like. It's this kind of idea of like, haha, he says we can do this, so we'll just go even further mm. and just see, you know, how much we can get away with. I don't like that. When when you know that there is gonna be pain involved and they kind of almost don't care. Do you watch that match and kinda of go, What the fuck the Undertaker, how could he do these things? No. You know? Well, that, I think, I think, no one ever thinks that. No, of course yeah. you don't. You think Mick Foley, how does he do these things? Yeah. <laughs> how is so... he alive after that? Like I don't know, what makes this match so special is, is to me, just everyone is so surprised. And I can't believe that this is planned. When you read Mick Foley's memory of this match and how he falls through the, the, the top of the cell and he wakes up and his shoe is there. Oh, yes, yeah, Terry Funk's shoes. That's it, sorry, it's Terry Funk's shoes just <laughs> there in front of him. And that's all he thinks about. And this is a point where he's literally fallen, what, how tall are the cells? Like 12, 15 feet, 15 legitimate, feet? yeah. Right. And through the ring is with another 10 feet, maybe there. Right. Is, yeah. And his tooth has gone through his upper lip into his nose. Um, you know, he might have a concussion for all I know. I can't even remember all the shit. Doesn't he land on a chair as well on the back of his the chair, head or The something? chair comes down with him when he goes through the cell. And it like hits him on the head mm. when he lands. Like that's the really oh. scary, horrible thing about this match. And this is the match as well where you get taxed as well for the first yes. time in WBE, which I remember as a kid, that was like the fact that tax had happened like kind of there and maybe one or two other times. It, it 
made me think that was the scariest spot in wrestling possible. But yeah, I think to me it's just the thing with the shoes. It's so funny. The fact that he's like so hurt. He's he's just gone through absolute hell. He doesn't even know. Mm. He has absolutely no idea of like what's going on. He doesn't know his tooth is in his nose. <laughs> it's sad. Like there's part of me that doesn't want to fixate on the mask because in the documentary he's like, little did I know that no one would care about anything I did before or since. And I do think it's very sad that he did get in many ways get pigeonholed about this match. Like he talks several times. He's talked about you know going around and you know speaking to kids about like you know doing good public service, you know, talking about bullying or you know, doing charity work and then they do a Q&A and everyone just wants to know about, you know, Hell in the Cell and what it was like to fall off the Hell in the Cell. And I, I get his frustration because his, his career is obviously much more of a body of work, but you have to admit there's not been one match that I think epitomizes, like, not just Mick Foley's sacrifice, but the very notion of sacrificing one's body for wrestling. Like, when he gets up off that stretcher and yeah, he has a look in his eye... It's magic. It is. It is something that... A Hollywood movie, or uh, you know, not nothing could capture that. That no. when I see that, and one of the reasons why I think you could make an argument for showing someone this match early into their wrestling fandom is that this is a type of a match, a type of a moment that can only happen in wrestling, and only at this exact period of wrestling. Yeah, this will never happen again. Yeah, it couldn't have happened <laughs> earlier because yeah. the wrestling style wasn't it wasn't desired to be that extreme. Mm. It was at a point of time when extreme wrestling was very much valued. It wasn't planned, which makes it special. It's magical, special, you had to be there moment. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it, isn't there? Well, more to the point then. I'm going to come at you with this. This match wouldn't have happened had McFoley not taken the risks and carved the very painful and loophole-free career and style that he had done so with. But I don't understand then. Why he gets upset that this is the match that everyone remembers, considering it's his responsibility, really, his fault that his whole career is known to be about these really extreme, tough, violent moments. Mm. And it just happens to be that the one everyone remembers is accidental and he's angry about that. I don't think, no, I don't think he's angry about it. No, absolutely not. And again, the documentary, which was actually very, very nice to see, is he talks like, he talks fondly about the match as a whole. Like, he, I think he's like, People just remember the moment, you know, falling off the cell or falling through the cell. I think that's maybe what gets him down because the body of a ho- the match as a whole, the story as a whole, is much more powerful than just the few moments. Oh, I would agree, but you don't go up to Mick Foley and say, "Oh man, nineteen ninety eight, Hell in a Cell, that match as a whole." I mean, oh, I no. won't talk about the moment that we all are actually thinking of, but the match as a whole. I mean, you know, the psychology of the build up and the tax and yeah. just shut up. Okay, we all know you mean a bit the bit where he falls through the roof. Yeah, you're going to be remembered forever. The downside of that is that people <laughs> will remember you forever. You know, yeah. I mean, that's dang, what a fucking problem. But, I mean, yeah. I would be fucking grateful I'm alive if I was him. Um. Having, you know, watched the match very early on and kind of having discussed it again and whatnot, how would you tell a new fan to approach this match? Or uh, a fan like myself who might be thinking, hey, I'm going to show someone I care about a bit of wrestling. Where does this match rank up then in terms of required viewing? I mean, I would say it's required viewing. 
Um, I'd say especially earlier, rather, like I wouldn't say it's one of those things you have to wait until you're a long-term fan or anything. Mm. Like I, I would consider this the type of match that you should watch within the first two years of watching wrestling. Mm. Because I think if you wait any longer, you're at the risk of putting it on a very big pedestal. It's one of those matches that every wrestling fan talks about. It's mm. The 1998 Hell in the Cell, Mankind versus The Undertaker. Even not wrestling fans know about that match. It's so, aged really well as well. I will point really well. that match, yeah. But I think if you had just heard of that match in you know the context of you know wrestling's great iconic past and then you waited loads of years to watch it and then you watched it and you realized that really what makes this match quite special is an accidental quite scary moment mm. i don't know i don't know if you'd enjoy it as much i think part of them is is the magic of realizing what mick wants to get across with his whole wrestling style overall which mm. is there's no loopholes here yeah that's true there's no way to fall through a cage and end up with a tooth in your nose and it not suck if anything, this match can be viewed as like, like let's be thankful in some ways that a match where someone gets knocked out or concussed wouldn't be allowed to continue anymore. You yeah. know that wrestling has come a long way since then. You even see how hard the mat is, how fucking, how how few precautions there are. Yeah. You know, and it's and, terrifying. And somehow it was fine. I know this is this is the environment you brought up on. I mean. I, I I don't agree with, but I understand why there are people who grumble about things like the, the uh, you know the, the the padding on the ringside area or no, the the, the airbag because they're like, well, people like Mick Foley, they did it this way, so that's how it should be done. No, 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 <laughs> no, they did it that way, and they will be remembered as goddamn heroes because people can't do that now. Yeah. that's so special, and that's what pisses me off about fans with that attitude is because you don't realize how good you had it by seeing it. Yeah, when it was popular, I won't have that. I I can't now watch those matches without current day knowledge of going. Well, that's a concussion. Yeah. Oh, he's going to have long-term memory loss. Oh, that's a a knee injury that won't ever heal. Yeah, I'm very thankful for the innocent viewings I had of this on on VHS back in the day, like in my cousin's house, yeah. But the the truth is, that was a magic moment that is now stuck in that period of time and you are you should be so thankful that you got to watch it at that time if you did and you enjoyed it but mm. don't think that that's what wrestling should be it's no. not if you want to know why wrestling shouldn't go back to the attitude era i've got a podcast about that <laughs> we, we had some pretty uh, some pretty uh, damning evidence about why that is impossible so the match itself i mean yeah, this is the type of thing where if you thought it happens, the person would be gone for, for weeks or months. You know, he, he did a run in the main event that night. He yeah. ran out later on to attack Steve Austin as a heel. Can you imagine that? And like he's on TV the next day, he's wrestling, you know. It's crazy to think that. But it did in many ways force his hand to make the Mankind character and make his approach be more to do with comedy. Now, he still was getting the shit knocked out of him, don't get me wrong. But this is when Mankind became less of a dark and sinister twisted character and more of a fun, weird, goofy character. And as he rightly said himself, the market was wide open. Austin, very, very serious. The Rock, funny, but mean, serious. There was no one nice and funny in wrestling at the time. Don't think there is any more either at the moment. Mm. It's a rare, rare, rare thing. Like You know what? I think it's one of the hardest things to do. Mm. I think it's so much easier being cool or being a nasty heel yeah. or being villainous or whatever it's being a good guy is always harder than being a bad guy and i think being a likable good guy is times 10 in terms of difficulty i don't know like it was just the fact that he was making the kinds of dorky jokes and stuff that you know 
wouldn't happen in wrestling. Wrestling was always about the tough guy promos and all that. And they would cut to him and he'd be like doing a promo in a room full of mops. He's like, not even all these mops be able to clean you up after I've beaten you up. He's throwing mops everywhere, you know. So I have a theory, which is that, you know, as much as I hate the fact that he felt he had to put his body through all this... I do wonder if the comedy element would have worked if he hadn't had this incredible past. Yeah, I I think that like that's why it's funny, that's right? Why it's, it's the funny. hardcore legend Mick Foley in a broom closet hanging out with you know brooms and yeah. You know. I mean, you've got the image there of Hell in the Cell, and I'm saying within a month or two you've got Vince McMahon and he's you know he's been injured or whatever and you've got Mick Foley coming in with a garbage bag full of board games he's like (laughs) we're gonna have some fun tonight Vince and the idea was that that Vince was scared of Austin he was scared of Undertaker and Kane he was scared of The Rock but mankind (laughs) at least he's not any of those so he became he was technically a heel because he was Vince's guy but he was so (laughs) funny and lovable like Vince being carted away in an ambulance and he got like the hand coming in with a big slurpy like get out of here god damn it he's like come on just a little bit Vince you need your you need your electrolytes (laughs) then we have the iconic Vince McMahon in the in the hospital with his bust up legs and mankind comes in to uh, cheer him up and turn that frying upside down and invents, or takes some advice from Al Snow to invent a cuddly character by the name of Mr. Socko, a fucking gross-ass sock puppet. No one likes a sock puppet. I busted out Mr. Socko when I went to language college. It did not go over well at all. It, it marginalized me in ways I didn't even think possible. Um, he's a wrestling fan, and he likes sock puppets? Wow, man. <laughs> What a fucking catch. So, um, you're a very lucky woman, uh, Joanna, uh, just so you know. But Mick Foley bringing out Mr. Socko, he maintains that the reason why it got over was that Vince went, Mr. Socko, afterwards. Yeah, and I I dispute that. Okay. Because I think, instead, they're overlooking the best moment in wrestling here, which is when Vince says, damn it, leave. (laughs) It's just something so funny. Vince... Oh, I can't remember if we mentioned it much, but goddamn, Vince has the best comedy timing. Yep. The best in the industry. Mm. And he fucking sucks now. He cannot time for shit. Even He's his... fucking mid-70s now. Like, yeah, but know. still, I don't think... I think it just requires a bit of effort. Like, he's obviously innately talented in that area. Yeah. The facial expressions. The facial expressions, the timing, just the, the intonation of how he says it. The fact that, like, there's so many unfunny ways to say, damn it, leave. But that's just the, the fact that it almost becomes one word. Yeah. Damn it, leave. <laughs> they, Surrounded by nurse clowns. Yeah, I know, right? It's <laughs> they had such a funny, funny like relationship because Vince was the evil, the evil boss who could he knew he could get Mick to do anything. Like at SummerSlam '98, Mick was meant to have a, a match for the tag titles, and Kane, his partner, had been beating him up. Like so, he's like, "Well, Mick, you could go out and do it on your own." He's like, "I don't know, Vince. I think I might get my ass kicked." He's like, "Come on, Mick. He has a silver platter. I can give you destiny on a silver platter." He's like, "Oh, okay, I'll go do it then." And he gets killed. <laughs> you know, he would always like do things to try and please Vince. Which meant that when he was inevitably betrayed by Vince, he was so sympathetic. And him winning the world championship around this period of time from The Rock, a real magic moment in wrestling. And he was only champion for a few weeks, but like the fact that you had this weird guy who was wearing a shirt and tie now, and he was doing that because he thought it would impress his dad, Vince, that he was trying to be corporate, you know, and he'd still be wearing his raggedy old brown tights underneath, and he's the fucking world champion. It was... <laughs> 
Now that's when Vince Russo says like unpredictable car crash TV. That's yeah. the type of shit. It's like gold. You but know? He doesn't. Yeah, I don't feel he'd understand why that's so funny. Like to an average person just watching some wrestling, just yeah. tuning in, it's like, oh, this is that guy from that really famous Hell in a Cell match. Here he is. Uh, Trying to help out Vince McMahon, the owner of the company, by... Uh... Giving him chocolates that he's eaten some of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you know that WCW, the, the fun guys that they are, tried to spoil Mick Foley's big moment when he won the World Heavyweight Championship? Mm-mm. So, Raw at the time, Raw's war during the Attitude Era, would go up head-to-head with WCW's uh, benchmark TV show, their, their main show, which was Nitro. And Nitro and Raw would run head-to-head on Mondays, and there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of serious competition to see who could win the ratings war. And WCW beat their ass for like 80 weeks in a row. It was crazy. And around the time of Austin and Foley getting over in a big way, this is when they started to turn the tide a little bit. So WCW had a bit of a habit, as WBF's shows were taped in advance, they would often read out the results and they would spoil oh, them on TV. Yeah, I've heard this. Yeah, and at the start of the Nitro show, Tony Schiavone goes, We just got word that Mick Foley, he used to wrestle here as Cactus Jack, he's going to win their world title. Ho ho! That's going to put some butts in seats. And uh, yeah, uh, this story's been told a million times, but Foley did say they actually got the ratings and literally the moment that he said that, there was like 500,000 people switched over to, to Raw. Like, like, what do they expect? Like, what? they just don't understand what TV ratings mean, do they? Joe, don't you want to see the big man Hulk Hogan work the giant in the main event <laughs> of WCW? No? No? Yeah. You don't want to see Kevin Nash and Goldberg instead? <laughs> so, he wins the championship. It's a very feel-good moment. This feel-good moment is then quickly followed up with probably one of the hardest matches I've ever had to watch. And watching it with you was it was a challenge, which is I Quit, Mankind versus The Rock from the Royal Rumble 1999. Um, I made you watch this match kind of before a lot of other stuff because I was worried that the impact of it may be lessened or spoiled. I really dreaded showing you it. What is an I Quit match? I mean, we've done one before, haven't we? Yeah, an I Quit match. Let me think which ones I've seen. Uh, I remember one between John Cena and The Miz that we did for our John Cena episode, <laughs> which was absolute garbage. So when I told you that McFoley was going to be in an I Quit match uh, as Mankind, what were you expecting? I, I was expecting a lot of violence. Mm. I mean, that was the case even in the John Cena The Miz match we watched. Yeah. And that's John Cena versus The Miz. Like you don't expect much violence there. No, that's true. So, I mean, I quit matches, I'm pretty sure in general, that's the whole point of them is it's to batter your opponent to the point where they say I quit. Yeah, not a not a very frequently done match in wrestling. It's a bit it's a bit difficult. It can be a bit awkward. You have to hold up a microphone and have someone Say yeah. that they're going to quit or no, actually, I don't want to quit at this moment in time. Thank you very much. But if you come <laughs> back to me later, perhaps my mind will have changed. A very difficult match to watch as well, knowing that Mick Foley's wife and very young kids are in attendance. Yeah. The movie Beyond the Mat actually follows Foley in the build-up to this match. And the, the reaction of his wife and kids is fucking horrible. It's, de- yeah. it's devastating. They leave in tears after what happens in this match. They actually originally had pitched that Foley was going to do this match and the way they would have him lose is that they were going to put the cameras on the wife and kids crying and then be like, oh, look, make your wife and kids are oh crying. And that's why he would quit. And then he was like, mm, I'm not sure. That might make my wife be the biggest heel in wrestling if yeah. we do that. So, yeah, they ended up being there and not being used. I think, thankfully, for the better, because even I felt... 
I even feel them being documented and beyond the mat, it's a little bit, you know, cameras don't need to catch the two-year-old child bawling their eyes out, oh, not understanding Jesus. why their dad is bleeding so much. This oh, this match is horrible. This is such a nasty, horrible match. Ugh. The Rock, though, he, he looks old, doesn't he? Really? This is the first Rock match you've seen, isn't it? This is my second Rock match. Uh, looking old here, according to you. Yeah, he does look old. The Rock has aged backwards, I think. The the younger he is, the older he looks. Because of the big sideburns, is that it? No, I don't know. There's something about his face and body. He just looks old. He's just He does. He looks out of 40. Uh, you've seen, obviously, a bit of The Rock from, from Rock and Sock, and he did some promo work here. Uh, we will do an episode on him, of course, at some point. But uh, thoughts on, on what you've seen of The Rock so far? Does he seem electrifying to you? Ah. Uh... <laughs> Hmm. All I've seen of The Rock is The Rock and Soul Connection. Mm. Um, I've seen him in those Tooth Fairy adverts. Uh, <laughs> I was around when you and Adam read and recorded his autobiography. Ah, yes. And I have seen him on a couple of clips that you've watched for the Attitude Era podcast. Okay. And my impression of The Rock generally is he's not a very nice man. <laughs> And this match did not help my opinion. No, because okay. The Rock manages to be horrible and mean, even when he's being asked if he quits. Do you quit, Rock? The Rock is going to kick your fat ass! What a, what a charming young man he is. Yeah. Um, speaking of how the, the Rock looks so old, I just thought it might be worth mentioning that Michael Cole immediately said on commentary, the youngest competitor here in the WWE, The Rock. <laughs> So. He has all sorts of uh, horrible offense on Mankind. The whole idea of this match is that you know, Mankind will never quit. He's like, what does it feel to be in a match where you can't win and I can't lose? So The Rock is basically doing every fucking thing in his power. And again, this was a match to show what well, The Rock needed an aggressive edge. We wanted to show another dimension to his character. And here comes you know Mick Foley, the fucking set, the walk-in set piece to help your character come across exactly how you want him to he gets the bell on the back of his head and he dings it no that would be the worst thing ever no it wouldn't oh it'd be all high no Ah! fine and then the man sings afterwards he goes bells will be ringing that's horrible (laughs) how dare you they battle all over the arena into the special tech zone where they've got a big jerry-rigged display where they go flying Mick Foley goes flying off the balcony, he hits a whole load of amplifiers and it goes and all the technology breaks. Yeah, it looks fake. <laughs> well, it was fake. Well, I know the, the lights... No, no, his fall looks fake. Oh, ex- explain how. He just does an elbow drop onto the amps. That's always how he falls, isn't he? Always kind of goes there like... Well, not always, but like that is how he felt fell here. Mm, I mean, landing on amplifiers doesn't sound like a good time. No, he says in the documentary that it hurts a lot, doesn't he? Oh, God. They're solid old amps. The Rock is doing his best to look cool while he's beating the shit out of mankind, including his cool rock spit. But there's Uh, a a moment where he goes, you know, McFoy's all beaten up. He has a big spit. He gets caught in his ear. And the gloop of the night goes when The Rock, as you said so eloquently, makes himself an earring. It's horrible. (laughs) Fucking incredible. Imagine, you know that WarioWare minigame where there's the lady with the long gloop coming out of her nose? Mm-hmm. Imagine that coming out of the rock's earlobe. That's no, what happens you. here. Mm. Shane McMahon comes out and even he, the evil corporate boy, is asking the rock to stop this merciless beatdown. Mm. The story of the match comes here when Mick Foley decides a way for this character who has been told in commentary can't feel pain. And he felt that it would be an uphill battle to get sympathy. So he suggested to the rock... 
that they get use that they use handcuffs. And the Rock would then hit him with the chair a few times. The idea being that it would create a great deal of sympathy. I mean, literally a man with his arms behind his back being brutalized with a chair. Now I forget the exact number on both counts, but he had agreed to do five or six. What happens is closer to eleven or thereabouts. It feels like a lot more than that. What What is it about this that's so unsettling? As well, a, as, as a, someone seeing this for the first time, I mean, he has his his hands handcuffed behind his back, and so he can't protect himself at all. There's no way he can protect himself against anything. And like, not only can he not protect himself, he says in his book that because the arms are behind, it mm. actually almost your shoulders are back and mm. your head is more prone. Yeah. So you're even you're actually unknowingly leaning into it more so because you can't even brace yourself because your arms are behind your fucking back. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. I mean, how was it to watch this? It's horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I just... Uh, the Rock just... He goes to town. Like, I, I don't like chair shots to the head anyway. You know, five or six would be bad enough. But he just... It's the, it's the disrespect for me. It's its similar to the match Mick Foley had with Vader, where they agree on a certain number of of painful moments... And then his opponent just takes liberties. And I just think that's so disrespectful. When you've got someone who is willing to sacrifice their body and they say, this is my line, that is not up to you to decide, actually, no, the line's over here. And if you, you know, just because you say yes to a couple of things doesn't mean they're consenting to all the rest of it. And it just shows, to me, that speaks volumes about The Rock. Mm. If you are fighting someone in that position where they can't protect themselves and they've already told you what they are willing to put up with and you just decide, ah, I'm just going to go for it and do as many as I want. You are just scum in my books. I really wish wrestling had gotten to a point where someone could look back on this match, a competitor like The Rock, and could say, you know what, I was young. Because he was, he's like 22 Yeah, he's here. very young. He's yeah. very young, you know. God knows I did stupid shit when I was 22 as well. Uh, you know, I was young, I got carried away, and I regret that match wrestlers very it's like, like stand-up comics saying like i regret telling that yeah. joke it's like no we, it's a sign of weakness yeah you know, it's like they will say times have changed they will say that that it was what it was but wrestlers very rarely will own up and say you know what this was in this was bad the thing that i did and i regret it because yeah foley was not a happy camper at the end of this I'm one i'm not surprised and the rock didn't even show up afterwards um, when Foley was being attended to to check and see if he was okay. To the point of this, and this is now how Foley works, to the point is he didn't say anything to The Rock about the time, about mm. the fact that he didn't come and visit him afterwards because he thought, oh well, horrible, tragic thing that's happened to me. Put that over in one side and we'll go to promo land yep, later on. That's because how he deals with everything. What he wanted to do, his idea was he wanted his final run to be, was going to be as with The Rock as a face, because he knew The Rock would be turning face. The final run would be him as Cactus Jack as a nasty heel against The Rock and he would get The Rock over and that would be the end of Mick Foley's career and he would go out as a bad guy and he would use the fact that you didn't come and check on me afterwards and you took advantage of me. That would be the reason. Now, they did talk about it eventually and the apologies were made. All that stuff. Allegedly, The Rock took the fact that Mick keeps getting up after the chair shots and you can see Foley... And I, I don't condone what The Rock did at all. I do think he, he was the man who was in the position of responsibility there. And Foley getting up and going, come on, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Like, And he does that several times. That, I think, made The Rock think that it was okay 
did make Rock to think maybe all these chair shots might be putting him into a bit of a frantic state, which it seems to be. Like, it's really sad when he hits him with the chair all these times and he goes from being like, you know, go to hell, Rock, and then at the end it's like, this part where he goes, you're going to have to kill me. And it, it fucking... It sounds oh, like he means it. Oh like, my it's horrible. God. Yeah, it's fucking horrible. So the match mercifully ends when he's face down and the Rock is just screaming, say it, say I quit, say it. And then you hear Foley screaming, I quit, I quit. Um, did you know what the, the finish of this was? I mean, I could kind of work out. It was really confusing, though, because yeah. they didn't really explain it. But like... Russo. Yeah, pretty much. You don't see him say it. Yeah. And they normally like to make a big show out of people saying I quit. And I imagine even more so for someone like Mankind, whose whole gimmick is that he doesn't quit. Yeah, so the idea was that the uh, the evil corporate team with The Rock had uh, played over the PA, right. Mick Foley screaming I quit from the, vig- from the video package. Right, yeah, okay. But yeah. the image of him like trying to get to his feet, refusing the stretcher, the camera won't even focus on him because the blood is, once his mask is off, it's it's too upsetting the amount of blood. It's mm. horrible. Yeah, it's really horrible. Um, this is a really tough match to watch and to think that when you talk about things going too far and we've talked about, you know, fucking, we've talked about death matches. We've talked a lot about ECW recently and I've watched a lot of unpalatable wrestling that looks particularly bad in this day and age. But man, it still is shocking that the most unpalatable thing, I think, in terms of someone taking it too far, is this match that happened in WWE. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just I. It just says a lot about The Rock's attitude towards consent. I think. Um, <laughs> what what makes this match so scary is that I really believe that wrestling, like dance, like um, like acting, like any sort of sport. Any sort of job that requires any kind of physical aspect to it Mm. or teamwork. It's one of those industries that you absolutely have to have 110% trust in your opponent. Yeah, you're giving them your body. You are literally giving your body. You could die at any moment in any match, even when it goes really well and everyone is safe and careful. There are risks involved with every move that happens and it can go wrong so easily. Mm. And the fact that The Rock would know this, he's not an idiot. He's a very clever man. Yeah, I mean... Who is young. He's young, he's but young. I mean, he knows what... I mean, for me, the fact that he's young excuses him for not going, okay, you getting your hands handcuffed and me hitting you five times with a chair, that's a bad idea, full stop. We're yeah. not doing it. It... Him being young excuses that. Him not, it doesn't him not... excuse his attitude towards, well, here's what I've told you I consent to. I'm going, I'm to, going to ignore it and do what I want. other stuff, yeah. Yeah, in front of your family <laughs> and a two-year-old child, who he would have known he, oh, right there. He meets there. them. He meets yeah, them. He when, does. Like, you know, Foley introduces The Rock to his kids and he's like, yeah. you know, this is my friend and, you know, we're going to wrestle later and it may look like he's hurting your dad, but he's not. And I was like, well, you could say that about a lot of wrestlers, but he is hurt. He's going to hurt you. He's going to be bad. I just think... If you are doing that to your opponent, if you're putting them in a position where they no longer can trust you and you are a professional wrestler, you're you're no good. You should not be working in this industry. And, I mean, it's going to take a lot for me to change my attitude towards The Rock after this match. And especially hearing the stuff about his autobiography. Hey, sounds like a cool guy, doesn't he? Yeah, it sounds like a a jam-up guy and a heck of a wrestler. Um, You're, I mean, star rating for this one, I'm I'm interested because, I mean... Foley thought, I mean, he said at the time, he thought it was very brutal, but he thought that they still told a sympathetic story and it was an engaging and dramatic story. And he thought that at the time, this is, of course, him after being hit in the head with a chair 12 times, he thought that it was in good taste or it was still okay. I'm not sure what he thinks about it now. 
irresponsible, cruel, unnecessary, I'd even say malicious. I don't really like this match. I gave it three stars, but I'm not really comfortable really even giving it a star yeah, rating I know what you mean. because it's not... It's less of a match and more of just a man being beaten up with a steel chair. Does it make you annoyed with Foley, given your kind of viewpoint so far in the episode about him not needing to do stuff like this, for him to even suggest stuff like this, or the the nature of this match in the first place? Does it make you annoyed that he feels he has to do this? Not annoyed, no. I feel sad for him. Mm. I wouldn't feel annoyed. Yeah. Because I understand that he genuinely would have believed, and might even still believe, that that's what he needs to do in order to make money and to feed his family he it's all evident isn't it this whole episode you see that like you know money is a big driving force for him and, and he's the champion in this match as well so he gets to do something above i mean if he's jumping off in a hell in a cell and he's not even the main event yeah well he's the main event now he's the champion defending. and he's against the rock yeah like, this is the rock he's like you know top star like in the zeitgeist yeah. generally in society at this time like even i knew of the rock does it Spoil then, because what comes quite... I mean, this is January, and by by the summer, or after the summer thereabouts, uh, Folio's, he goes away, gets injured a bit, comes back, uh, doing a lot more of the comedy stuff and trying to get some of the younger guys over. But one of the things he does around this time is form the Rock and Sock Connection, the tag team, where we have some of the most endearing, heartwarming comedy, everything from This Is Your Life to them hugging, and does it shock you that this we just watched... Comes before it. Yeah. Yeah, the same year. Yeah, very weird. I mean, mad respect to Mick Foley for able to just, like, put that behind him and just work. You know, not work, just okay. But, like, genuinely, this is, like, some of the best chemistry ever in wrestling. They were genuinely considered friends. Yeah, it was totally believable. That whole, like, you know, jock who doesn't want to be cool and doesn't want to... Doesn't want to admit, like, that the goofy guy he's hanging out with is, is alright, I guess, kind Fantastic of. Fantastic story. And they did say in the documentary, it's like, if you ask people to find a classic rock and sock match, they probably wouldn't be able to list one, but they remember a lot of moments. Mm. Me and Joe did watch a rock and sock match. We watched them against um, Undertaker and Big Show because I wanted to show Joe the fucking hideous bump that Mick Foley takes where he's thrown off the stage, not quite entirely into a grave where he just bounces off the side of it. It's fucking horrible. I think he was doing that after his surgeries and whatnot as well. Yeah. Around this time as well, he starts writing his book. Uh, of course, we mentioned Have a Nice Day, a New York Times number one best-selling author, a fabulous book, and something which I don't think um, people have given enough credit for. They say in this documentary that you don't see NFL players or you know NBA stars all going on mass and all writing their own books now. But since he did it, it's a trend in wrestling. The, the book is part of wrestling. If you retire people, it's not kind of wondering if, it's a question of when mm. you'll write a book. And I do think, like Bret Hart and some of the other wrestlers who have tried to, I mean, not entirely, but at least aspire to writing the majority of the book themselves, has been inspired by Mick Foley, who did write it all by himself. Yes, by hand. 700 pages by hand. Yeah. Gross. I mean, you can tell there's a lot of love in that book. Yeah. You know, a, a hearty recommendation. So we've reached the point in McFoley's career where they carefully worded that he's thinking about leaving, and I quote, full-time wrestling. Um, I was told as a child very much that this was going to be his retirement. Mm. We saw the iconic moment where he returns as Cactus Jack to face Triple H, who had been making fun of him by having a mankind impersonator. <laughs> 
Where I want to show Joe the whole segment and Triple H is like, Mankind, get your ass out here. And there's like this fake Mankind who's like, I'm sorry, I'm so pathetic. I rolled out of more bed this morning because I live in a box and I have no <laughs> friends. And some dogs pissed on me and some of the piss went in my mouth. And he's, like, he's on his knees and Triple H is like, yeah, suck my dick. <laughs> um... That's quite next level heel work there from Triple H. Mm. Uh, is there any wrestler who you would like to see uh, another wrestler have a fake version of come out and mock? I did find it quite funny that, that this is like canon that Triple H's idea of um, wildishness is to dress up someone else as a character or dress up as another character, i.e. Katie Vick. Yeah, I know. He's, he's big into it, isn't it? He like, loves it. You know? His role play. He's like uh, the guy from Rushmore. He's like putting together his little productions. You know? <laughs> no, I think I'll play Kane in this one because I just don't think anyone can do the role justice like me. Plus, I really want to have sex with a corpse. I reckon he's got like a whole wardrobe full of like different wrestlers' outfits. And well, he's like just... Mr. Ben, like... Yeah. Mr. Helmsley. <laughs> Who shall I be today? <laughs> we did watch... Um, there's two matches that they have in this run, which is the street fight from Madison Square Garden. And then we also watched the Hell in the Cell match where it's Cactus Jack and Triple H inside Hell in the Cell where they're very much alluding to he's going to jump off the Hell in the Cell or something crazy is going to happen. That's the much safer but still quite iconic. He flips over in the backdrop and he goes through the cage again. Into the ring. Which looks yeah. like it's made out of cake. Of some yeah. Sort. It goes, looks right. comfy. It but it's does. not. But it ah, speak for yourself. That's what I want to do. I want to fall into a big ring that's kind of like just nice and soft like that. Um, this is where the documentary reaches a little bit of an awkward moment because it's meant to be a retirement match and... We watched the match, folks, and at the end, Mick Foley's like, you know, the blood has been washed out of his eyes from the tears that are flowing. And Jim Ross is like, goodbye, my friend. There are a lot of jerks in wrestling. That is the nicest man I've ever met. If you're not standing up at home right now, you stand up. You stand up for Mick Foley. Uh, my friend Cahill back home, um, he couldn't get the pay-per-view, so he's watching the Scrambled channel. So it's just all like, you know, distortion thing. But you could hear the audio. So he, was li- he just sat there and listened to the pay-per-view like a podcast. Aww. And he told me that he did stand up at four Aww. in the morning when Jim Ross told him, you're standing up, you're not a man. You stand up for Mick Foley. <laughs> so yeah, he did say in promos, I'm not going to be one of these guys who says he's retired and then comes back in six weeks. I'm going to be gone. He came back in four. Four wow. weeks. Four weeks. He's obviously cut up about us. It's so difficult though because like... They put him in a really hard situation wherein he has this retirement match and then like the day after, it's such an impressive match that everyone loves so much that Vince is like, well, do you want to do WrestleMania then? Main event, pal. Like, could you not have asked him maybe that a week ago? We could have had the match at WrestleMania. Yeah. You know, because that match is a lot better than the main event at WrestleMania that year. Mick Foley, who was helping rid the world of barbecue one pork rack at a time, was in no real shape to be wrestling. It's no. really sad. Like. But of course, like I don't blame Foley at all for coming back because he hadn't ever main evented WrestleMania and that's what he's being promised. So you would, wouldn't you? I hate that wrestlers can be baited so easily. But like, think of it the other way around. If he hadn't come back, right? Now we all know, actually, that would have been best for him. Now, he maybe wouldn't have had some great matches, which he did have later on in his career. But like, in terms of like, retiring right it is actually a really important part for any wrestler Mm. but you know if he had retired then he would have spent the rest of his years going well what if i had main evented at wrestlemania that's true that's the only thing i didn't get to do it's sad because you know 
he says, if I could have just called it quits and said that was it, then mm. fine. And you're right, you had your final match and then you have your epilogue four weeks later. Okay. But, you know, that lasted maybe three, three and a half years. Like, he was the commissioner for a long period of time around that time. That was perfect for him because he didn't need to take, he didn't need to wrestle. Yeah. You got comedy Mick Foley on screen interacting with, you know, Kurt Angle and Edge and Christian and Trish and, you know, Stephanie and Triple H. It was really entertaining. Mm. Like, really fun stuff. So I think he had almost proven that he didn't need to come back and do more matches. But it's then. not a matter of needing, though, is it? It's no. wanting. Like, what wrestler doesn't want to main event WrestleMania? Yeah. It's not like they're ever going to think, oh, well, you know, I could main event WrestleMania. It might be shit, though. No one's ever going to assume that their WrestleMania main event is going to be just mediocre. It's tough because, like, the environment that they're in as well, like, you know, that's WrestleMania 16. He's come back and he, he, he is in the main event of. By the time of WrestleMania 17, Vince is assuming that he's going to wrestle again. Like, you know, we did watch Vince and Shane. That match was meant to be Vince and Mick, originally. Because oh, Vince was like, well, we do the storyline where you're the commissioner, then I'll fire you, you come back for WrestleMania, you teach me a lesson, everyone's going to go happy. And Mick's like, no, I'm meant to be retired. And he was trying, you know, he had great success with uh, Have a Nice Day, he had a follow-up, Foley is good, also got the bestseller list. He had written uh, Titan Brown, which was a novel, and he was trying a fiction, to... A fictional novel, it, yeah. yeah, and he was working on another novel. He legitimately thought at that point that no wrestling was in the past and he was going to go and be an author. And fair fucks to him, he did leave on kind of bad terms because he wanted to do more novelly stuff and I think ultimately they wanted him to wrestle. And he very briefly alludes to it in his book about coming back. Uh, He does say in the documentary here, like after one of the two of these other matches, he starts coming back and it's for money. And you'll say in the documentary, you know, he never spent a penny. He was always saving. He would never spend a penny on himself. Hence why he's always wearing the same dirty old flannel and he's never owned a suit and yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, he made a lot of investments and apparently a lot of those investments didn't pan out. Mm. Uh, the novels, Just well... Right around the crash, wouldn't it have been? Yeah. This time. I mean, if you were the person who was putting money into real estate and, you know, your 401k and investing into different schemes and whatnot, yeah, the crash happened in 07, 08. Yeah. I can see that would have maybe hit the old retirement fund a bit. That's why it went from him wrestling maybe once to, you know, him going to wrestle like a couple of times a year for the next four or five years. Mm. And that is... He says here, when he came back then, it was for money. Mm. And that's sad, because, you know, he, I think he thought he could be a novelist. And the books were, you know, Scooter and Titan Brain are, it's dark reading. If you've, if you've seen Mick Foley's ECW promos, you'd be like, oh, okay, I can see where this is coming from. Right. If you're like, rock and sock and then Titan Brain, you're going to be upset. Okay. You know? <laughs> but it, there wasn't a career, in it, at least not the money that he would have wanted, because he has like five kids now or something like yeah. that. So yeah, he does come back. He returns in 2004 in a match where he's really hard on himself. He says like he, he thought he stunk the place out. So he's entering a period of time here where he's going to come back and do some more wrestling. He wrestles at WrestleMania 20. He said he's really disappointed in his performance. I mean, I remember in like 2006, he released a book, The Hardcore Diaries, that was all about this run that he did in the new ECW. And I loved it. It was my favorite thing. I remember queuing up with the book. I'm like, and I met him like, Mick. I loved what you did. It was so great. I thought it was some of the best work of your career. I can't wait to read the book. And he looked at me kind of like, all right. And then I read the book. He's like, oh, wow. He hated all of this, didn't oh. he? Like, every single thing about it he hated. He thought the matches were bad. You know, the match we watched with Edge? Didn't like that. Why? Uh, he thought his underwear was showing for most of the match and thought that made it look stupid. He's really quite a big self-critic. I get, I get that, mm-hmm. you know. 
I wake up many mornings thinking that I have no value in terms of what I do, and I understand being very hypercritical, and I empathise greatly with with my fellow reconstructive surgery hard on himself, slightly odd. Didn't eat no worms. Just saying that though, sock puppet loving uh, dork. Dork. Thank you. Dork was the word that I was reaching for there. Thank you very much. <laughs> but there was a match he had around this period that he said was to this day it's his favourite match. And it's one we watched this morning. We're hot off the heels of seeing from Backlash in 2004 for the Intercontinental Championship, Randy Orton, 23 years old, disgustingly young, taking on Mick Foley. Um, This is an early viewing of uh, Randy Orton for you. Yeah, I'm a little familiar with young Orton because when I first came across the Rock and Sock Connection, there are a couple of clips of them feuding with Evolution. Yes, that was the, the match before this that he was yeah. really disappointed in. The whole feud with Orton was really hard to watch as a kid because Orton was this young punk and he just disrespect the legends. That was his gimmick. Punk as in um, rude boy, yeah. not punk as in the pop music fashion style. Yeah, no, there wouldn't be no bowling for Columbine with uh, no. with Randy Orton. He wouldn't be rocking to that. He's no. like, he's an Evanescence guy deep down in Orton. He's a total emo. No, he's so, not. <laughs> when the Shock. match card showed up, Joe just went, good God, Mick Foley looks tired. He looks so tired. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's a interesting hot take there on poor old Mick. But, um, yeah, this feud, I remember my cousin had stopped watching wrestling. He loved Mick Foley. Foley was his favourite. And I was like cousin Mick Foley has come back and he's feuding with one of the young punks who you hate Randy Orton he's probably going to kill him let's watch the big segment on Raw and the segment was Mick Foley was going to have a match at Randy Orton and he was too cowardly to do it and then Randy Orton went backstage and went you're too much of a coward to face me Mick aren't you and Foley's like literally crying and then he does this dirty phlegmy snot spit right in his eye and my cousin was like why did you bring me back for this? Like, why? Hey, you know your favorite wrestler and the guys you don't like? Well, they're, they're spitting on him <laughs> as he cries because he's too cowardly to fight anymore. <laughs> Little did he know, a few weeks later, they would have this match and all would be forgiven. Randy Orton, who Jerry Lawler refers to as being a handsome young man in this match. He sure is. I never really saw the appeal of Randy Orton, to be honest, but he is handsome here. Really? Mm. Foley, I'm going to say this is peak Foley in many ways. He's yeah. looking well. Uh, yeah, I'm into this. This this era of Foley is, is hunky. Do you like the uh, his special friend that he comes out with? Barbie. <laughs> Very good. Tell the folks at home who Barbie is. Barbie is his baseball bat covered in barbed wire. Mm. Oh my God, do you think Ken could be a kendo stick then? <gasps> Barbie and Ken. Oh my God, Foley and Sandman, I'm going to ship that. <gasps> OTP. <laughs> Get their weapons married. You may have concussed me, Mick, but the thing you concussed most was my heart. Who, out of the two of us, which one is the... Um, the kendo stick and which one is the baseball bat covered in barbed wire oh I don't know I mean I know you hate kendo sticks with a passion who are all these people out there practicing kendo I'm just saying it's an extremely advanced form of martial art Steven Seagal uh, Mick who was one of the scary prefects when I went to school who had his one spray painted red which was his Mick stick that he bet the children with um Many people. The Sandman, have we mentioned him? He's, he's him as well. Oh, Becky Lynch. Yes, yes. there okay. we go. You're not allowed to dislike it now. Becky Lynch says it's cool, so there you go. 
Um, there is a great start to this match where Foley is running with Barbie. Yeah, I wanted to point out that I think this is the most effective use of someone being chased with a me- weapon I've ever oh, seen. Man. Other than maybe that really scary one with Vince. Oh, someone. when Vince had the crutch and Kurt Angle was That's swinging it. Yeah, and it's terrifying. And he's literally just, <laughs> just running for his life. Whereas this feels a lot safer than that. Like, I'm not actually worried that Mick's going to hit Randy Orton over the head with a, a baseball bat covered in barbed wire. But, like, he... There's a real art to hitting someone or missing someone with a bat when you're chasing them. Mm. And I, I'm never more reminded of this than when I see Triple H with his stupid sledgehammer and when I see the Bludgeon Brothers rubbish running around chasing people with weapons. It looks crap. Yeah, and I love as well that the cameraman is like, he's also running away. Yeah, and he ends falls up over. over and yeah. Falling. yeah. Uh, very, very 2004 references throughout this match, including this is like Freddy versus Jason. Because uh, obviously Randy Orton at age 23 is very reminiscent of uh, an old paedophile who was murdered by liberal consensus and haunts the dreams of the children that they left behind. I hear voices in my head. I am actually a paedophile. They talk to me. They talk to me. Um, he, <laughs> he sums up very much this, this um, debate that was going on with him at the time, I think. He takes out Mr. Sacco, big pop, and he has a look of disdain on his face, and he takes out the barbed wire baseball bat, and he kind of wants the fans to be like, no, you don't want Sacco, you want me to do barbed wire. He struggles with that. Being known as the guy who pulls the sock out of his drawers, he doesn't know, hardcore legend. I think he's past that now, but there was a period of like five or six years where I actually kind of almost fell out of love with him as a little bit, as a a fan, because I just felt that it's like, own your fucking legacy. Yeah. Stop being ashamed of the fucking joy you brought me as a child. Yeah. That fucking sock puppet, language college aside, was very fucking important for a lot of us. It's when you got me a Mr. Socko, like that was literally the sweetest fucking thing. You've no idea how much that meant to me, seriously. Yeah, I'm very glad. So, like, I hate him trying to disown that part of his career. Like, yes, you can perf- want to be known as a as a badass and you know, no one's disputing that Mick Foley's a fucking badass. I don't think anyone's ever going to wor- wonder about that, you know? I don't think he realises that, you know, not anyone could make a sock puppet iconic. No. You have to be special to do that. <laughs> it takes a lot of skill. Like, it's only because he's hardcore that fans love it so much. It wouldn't have been funny. It wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have been entertaining. If it'd been like, can you imagine a big show with a sock puppet? Fucking embarrassing. That's yeah, what if that you could make been. it cry, that would be funny. Like, <laughs> um, sorry, is that you admitting then that Foley's his loophole freestyle or the risks that he took facilitated the comedy later on? I'm not saying that without every single extreme move and right. every single chair shot was absolutely necessary. Mm. I'm saying it's the style with which he came. Right, from. I see. Which I'm not ever disputing that that's not something special, okay? Yeah. Like like with our Jimmy Havoc thing, I, I understand the appeal of that style of wrestling. It's just sometimes I think it's important to know the value of your own body. Yeah, and you know what? There's a line which strikes me from Beyond the Mat where Jim Ross, and he's the director of talent relations at the time, and he's he's talking about Mick Foley and he's basically saying the, the stuff that you don't like, which is he every night he's going to do a big spot or a big bump. And, he, and, and JR says... When fans pay money to buy a ticket, they want to see Mankind or Cactus Jack get hurt. That's part of the ticket. That's that's kind of part of what the marquee says, is that you will see 
mankind do something horrible and you know he went through a table or got hit in the head with a chair got put in a dumpster and thrown off the side you know it was always something you know and didn't maybe need to be every week and it was every week yeah so, it doesn't, doesn't need to be yeah i think we found a healthy middle ground there i think between our two uh, points of uh, of 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 contention mick foley wages willy war on randy orton's crotch he yeah. then goes to get gasoline and I assumedly set fire to Randy Orton and kill him. I think he wants to set fire to Barbie. Ah, that's it. Because he was holding up Barbie and it was all wet and stuff. So I think he put the gasoline on that. So when we saw fire in the Hell in the Cell match, was that, I mean, shocking for you seeing someone using, I mean, Foley's used more fire, I guess, than anyone that you've ever seen in wrestling. Is Has fire got a place in wrestling for you? Uh, I think, yeah. I think yeah. Cause it can be done safely. Hmm. I'd much rather fire be used in wrestling than uh, chair shots to the head. Yeah, this actually probably is safer. It's much safer. There's loads of things you can do to prevent fire injury, including having someone on the side with a fire extinguisher (laughs) just in case. You can't have someone with a just-in-case magical undoes concussions machine. Or as you used to have in ECW when uh, the Dudley Boys would put people through flaming tables, the requisite two-liter empty bottle of soda with some water in it that they would spray (laughs) over it, like, you know. Quickly! Balls Mahoney's on fire! Get the Pepsi Zero! (laughs) Randy Orton reveals a big dirty sack of tacks. Goes to do the RKO on Mick Foley, but instead we get the RKO good God no, as he is thrown back and shoulder and elbow first onto a big old pile of tacks. Yeah, it's horrible. Oh my God, I think that is the most disturbing. I mean, we watched Foley and Edge as well, where there's a similar, like, men without shirts getting dumped in tacks is fucking horrible. It's not nice. I mean, I'm sure it hurts just as much if you're wearing a top. I doubt a t-shirt would do much to cover you or protect you, but seeing it is gross. It's very tough to see. Fucking the elbow ones in particular when he moves. I don't know if it's a case of, like, Randy Orton selling really well because he is very good at selling obviously or if it's a case of like he is just in so much pain because he looks deeply not just like in pain but like uncomfortable yeah like every time he gets thrown on his back it's like it's crawling out of his skin no it's it's good you picked up on that because you know when I first watched this it was like stupid Randy Orton none (laughs) of my friends will watch wrestling (laughs) anymore he's spitting on everyone he's disrespectful Um, but watching this now having an appreciation of the man who wields the crucifix um, (laughs) I must say I was blown away by young Randall's performance in this he it's so rare that when Foley, he's always putting people over. He's the reason why Triple H was a top guy. You know, he was the mm. reason The Rock was a top guy. He was the reason why Undertaker had a second, you know, leg to his career, so to speak. And it's nice to see Randy Orton, who in many ways was made a star on this match as well, and legitimized. He's given back a bit to Mick. He's selling like this guy's a fucking monster, and I love it. It's so great. There's a fantastic moment, my favorite moment of this match, when um, Foley hits. Randy Orton on the head with a baking sheet. Ugh. And um, I, I say that as well. I love, oh no, chair shots to the head, boo, but baking sheets to the head, yeah. I mean, we just got new baking sheets, so please don't <laughs> fucking use them, okay? I need them to make chickpeas. But what I love about it is the way Orton sells that move, which is he literally folds in half. It's incredible. He just folds himself away like a t shirt or something. Yeah, pinfall into bridge, I'm pretty sure, is what he does. <laughs> Take it to the bridge. The finish comes, uh, well, Randy Orton gets thrown off the stage and Foley dives on top of him. And we have the finish coming later in the match when Socko does get locked in and we get an RKO 
On to the barbed wire baseball bat. There's something about seeing the referee counting to three and like there's oh. tacks going. He's actually picking a tack out of his hand yep. at the ends. Um, this is Foley's uh, favorite match ever and one which I probably didn't appreciate at the time. But my God, what a fucking war. It's incredible. Mm. Not the lot, like it's only 15 minutes, but it's fucking beautiful. I yeah. love it. I loved this match. I gave it five out of five stars. Whoa! My favourite Foley match I think I've seen. What makes this one your favourite? Why is this one elevated compared to some of the other ones we've seen? I will include some of the other matches we've watched that we didn't go in depth on, like uh, like him and Edge and whatnot as well. What is it about this match that's special? I feel him and Randy Orton both shine in this match. Mm. Like, massively. The same way as, like, I'd say happens in the Shawn Michaels match. Like, both of them come out so well. Um, but there's something just great. I don't know, like Randy Orton, young Randy Orton, he's so good. Mm. He's fantastic. And the pacing of this match is really good as well. Like, yeah. Doesn't feel like there's any kind of down moments or anything, but it also doesn't feel like they're going too hard against one another. Yeah. Like I wasn't genuinely concerned for either of their safety, really. I mean, I knew, yeah, they're not doing anything too extreme, but it looks really sick, the stuff that they were doing. You got everything. You got your barbed wire. Yeah. You've got threats of fire. There's there's plenty of high-octane action. And if you can tolerate arm blood and mm. uh, tax, it's actually one of the more palatable hardcore matches. Yeah. And I find it quite reassuring. You know, tax is the worst thing they have to deal with. I know that tax mm. aren't too bad oh, in terms don't of... don't you say that. In, in the wrestling world, compared to some stuff that we've seen in other matches, like, I'd much rather see someone get put through a big pile of tax than hit their head on concrete. Okay, that's true. And that's true. always going to be the thing I'm going to be comparing it to. Any kind of head injuries, which could, mm. you know, permanently injure you. Yeah. Thumbtacks are fine. <laughs> so this was another moment where Foley was like, and if I could have yelled, cut, end of career, perfect. But it didn't happen. I mean, Foley had a round of... Jeez, it's hard to think he had nearly 10 more years of, of, of wrestling in him at this point. <laughs> You know, he had a contract with WWE where he'd wrestle one or two matches a year. Some were good, you know, like the one with Edge. Some were kind of just strange. Like he did like, you know, matches with Ric Flair that were very barbaric and brutal. He did like just, he was randomly put into matches in a sense where it was obvious that he had a contract that said Mick Foley has to wrestle two matches a year. So he's part of this five way that also has Bobby Lashley and John Cena in explain. So it was kind of sad to see him just being kind of used when I think what a lot of people, myself included, would have liked is just to see him beat the commissioner or something like that yeah again, you know? and you know what he says that in the documentary that his biggest regret in his career isn't actually retiring so many times it's the fact that he never came back after that first mm. retirement he did as the commissioner yeah because I mean we've had him as general manager and stuff yeah. since but it's never been the same as that golden period he considers that his period as the commissioner is is his greatest accomplishment in wrestling. He genuinely says that that period is the most successful of his career. So he got recognised the most when he was commissioner, like more yeah. than any anything else. Like. I mean, it's I can see why. Like you get to hang out, you don't have to wrestle all the time. You get to be genuinely like the star of the show, like being the funniest thing each week. And you're on with Kurt Angle. Yeah, that's an accomplishment. It's great. <laughs> you get to do all the fun spots. He gets to be creative because he gets to like he starts making the whole commissioner thing. Back in the day, he made a whole running joke about his office changing location and where he'd hide his little yellow dog. Yeah. And it's just, there was so much thought and world building and character building that went into that, which not only amplified him and his character, but everyone else on the show as well. Mm. And I feel like that's missing today. And any point I think they could bring him back as that commissioner character and do just the same thing. Yeah, I think so. Because I mean, when he was general manager, like him and Stephanie as a dynamic was a bit 
stilted, I thought. But yeah. just having him having a bit of fun with it is, yeah. is what we want to see. Like Honestly, I think world building and character building is like so important. And it's just missing right now from mm. wrestling. The fact that you could see all the different areas of the arena. You see the laundromat. You see the, the backstage parking area. Yeah. You know, you've got the penalty box and the stupid deli counter. And then you have all the different characters interacting him with him in different ways and getting different matches and different reactions out of him. And it's just, oh, it's such a fun dynamic. It's such a simple bit of storytelling, yeah. you know. Bit of That's s- why I love Baron Corbin. <laughs> no one understands. And no I feel one if ever I, understands. If I said to someone who hates Baron Corbin, but he's like the best, he is as good as Mick Foley at his most successful point in his career. You may have a difficulty with that. Uh, <laughs> you, I'm sorry, honey. You're, you're fighting an uphill struggle in that one. No one understands Baron Corbin like I do. It was really sad, like... That he was, you know, very forthright here. I mean, I guess it's nice that he could admit it that you know he needed to do it for the money. But I'll be honest, I watched his run in TNA and stuff like that, and I it was never the moment where I felt embarrassed for him. I never felt like, oh god, like McFoy, like some of, like some of the wrestlers who I'd seen come out and wrestle, like you know, I felt embarrassed for Terry Funk a few times, Ric Flair more than one occasion. A lot of wrestlers coming out of retirement, and I felt bad for him. But I always just felt like he was like chasing something that was impossible. Like they, they did. He was the world champion in TNA. Yeah. He had like a main. Him and Sting had a main event like cage match in TNA. Like it's crazy to think he wasn't. He wasn't at the level of being able to do that. No. And it was weird because he was in TNA and he felt that he couldn't just be a, a talking character because they were going to have Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan there as well. So he had to. He had to offer them something so he had to wrestle and that was how he was able to prove his worth was by wrestling and the way he would wrestle in TNA was that he would you know get thrown through tacks and tables and all sorts there's like a match his last actual match was him and Ric Flair in TNA and it's it is a hard watch because it's just two men in you know one in their 50s one in their late 40s just clattering the shit out of each other for not a whole lot of reaction mm. I'm really happy he came back to WWE because when he came back to WWE, one of the first things that happened was they gave him the tests and they said, you can't wrestle anymore. So it's official. So it's official. He cannot wrestle. He cannot take bumps. He is, mm. he's done. Yeah. And that's so for the best because I think he's one of those guys that if he wasn't told by someone saying, no, you can't, he would keep going and going and going. Yeah. Um, and it's it was just kind of sad to think that he went from being a guy who in his first retirement was addressing the very types of retirement that he was going to actually embark upon and you know terry funk who's had a retirement on every continent i think even he had the sense to say at some point yeah don't take me seriously when i say i retire anymore i think foley reached that point as well that is a little sad it did it did sour my fandom on him a little bit Mm. um i mean one of the highlights of tna that we watched was me that me and joe watched was him wrestling a cardboard cutout of rocky balboa not really the swan song of the career of Mick Foley that one would want Mm. but I think he's got so much to offer still I know he does stand up and he does spoken word stuff Um, I know he did Holy Foley on the network but I would love to see that guy doing something creative in wrestling Yeah, get him to the fucking performance centre move him down to Florida I don't know what role do you think Mick Foley could have in wrestling still do you want to see him as an authority figure or do you think he could be something else I think most of all what I selfishly would want from him is to be involved with the actual creative storyline overall of like Raw and SmackDown. Mm. I don't think I'd want to put him in the performance center because I kind of feel NXT is doing great at the moment as it is. Doesn't need that. And he yeah. almost, yeah, they don't need him because 
I don't think he could give them anything that they haven't already got in swathes. Like they've mm. got all the talented coaches and trainers and veterans from years gone by. Fucking Shawn Michaels is yeah, there helping that's out true. now. But I think Mick's understanding of just the importance of like character work and developing a character and having their backstory. And it's similar to what we were saying with the William Regal episode. If you know your character and you know exactly how they'd react to every situation, you know what they had for their third birthday. Yeah, yeah. That's genuinely what makes wrestling so appealing to, I think, a lot of new fans. And it's mm. what brings people back, I think, week after week. Because it's much more reliable than, you know, whether or not a match is going to be good or not. Yeah, yeah. And similarly, his world building. Like, that mobile office. I'm sorry, I'm going to go on about it because I love it. And I know it's something that Adam Bibolo of the Attitude Era podcast is very passionate about, is that era of wrestling where you actually had a sense of space. Yeah. Of where everyone was, where they came from, what they did with their day, what they did with their downtime. And that's the stuff that I, it's just so, it's lacking so significantly on the current day show. And it's just such a simple fix. A way which he could be a great asset in terms of world building uh, would be as a commentator, I think. Um, I think he's one of the greatest talkers in wrestling. You're right. He did have a very brief tenure as a commentator and is sworn off he will never do it again because uh, Vince McMahon, like, he has never said what it is he told him. We did mention on the commentary episode briefly that you know, Vince in the headset is not a very polite man at the best of times. You know, he, it's it's live. He wants it to be done the way he wants it to be done. And apparently, Foley said he was spoken to in a way that, in his twenty-five years in wrestling, he never thought that anyone would ever speak to him ever. And this is wrestling. And this is wrestling. And this is like Foley. You know, in two thousand and eight, he's kind of seen and done a lot of it at this point. So you can only imagine what Vince said to him, but. Needless to say, Foley, I think, has ruled out being a commentator, even though I think that would be a fabulous role for yeah. him. I just want him to be involved in wrestling somehow. I think that's the most important thing is that, you know, he is still a presence in some way, shape or form because his legacy is is a fabulous one and he has given so much of himself. And I, if I am at the end of this episode, the only thing I worry about is I hope we have gotten across the physical and mental sacrifices that this man has made Mm. to have an impact in wrestling and to change it. And elements of how he's tried to change wrestling have not lasted. The hardcore style has not lasted, no. But I think the character work and a a lot of the other aspects of what he's brought to wrestling are now part of the bedrock of wrestling, I think. I mean, I would would argue they have lasted. I mean, although it's not it's not the mainstream style anymore, but like you won't get a year that goes by without a like a TLC show. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we just got had TLC just yeah. there, so yeah, I truly understand that. Yeah, yeah. Only it's just it's not an everyday thing anymore. It doesn't have to be. They understand now that if you put your wrestlers through that level of injury and pain, it's not going to last very long. If anything, if he's a cautionary tale in some respects yeah. for you, for wrestlers, like if you were growing up and Mick Foley was your favorite wrestler, like myself, and I've talked about many things that maybe made anxious young Kevin not want to be a wrestler but being you know it'd been written out and very plainly described the anguish and pain that he was in and me thinking oh I, I want to be a wrestler I didn't think that very long I didn't think that at all because I didn't think I could do what Mick Foley did and if he's that tough and he was in that much pain then what hope would anyone have I hope that there are lessons learned from his career and I do hope that he's remembered not just as the man who pulls the sock out of his drawers, but I hope that's not forgotten either. You know, there's mm. a whole suite to him. And we haven't even mentioned his charity work, oh, which is like, it's so significant. Yeah. We could almost do a whole episode just on that. Like there's a, there's a school, a learning center somewhere that's named after his wife because of the significant 
yeah, contribution he's, he's like, time and he's money. He's given some, like he is one of the most charitable philanthropic people I think wrestling has ever seen. He gives so much of himself with Make-A-Wish, uh, Rain, the Rape and Incest yes. Abusers Survivor Network. That's not an e like he volunteers you know i, I knew I, he wrote about it in, in some of his books that he spends many hours running the phones and volunteering yeah. and stuff like that he got into it through tori amos his uh his idol <laughs> his idol and his psych up music for most of his wrestling career that's so funny it's so strange <laughs> but like you know that's that uh exhibits a, a a maturity and an emotional toughness that most dressers and most people couldn't i mean I, I couldn't handle doing something like that and it's one thing being a nice person or being known as being a good guy or whatever but you know he's out there doing stuff like that yeah. manning the phones for a rape and incest abuse survivors network that's yeah. fucking courageous it's, shit it's like. not like he's just writing a check and saying well that's yeah. a nice t- tax write-off for me this year he's he's spending all his spare time doing charity work like there are wrestlers friends he has who say they literally wouldn't have done anything for charity if it weren't for just the fact that they just saw he spends all his time doing it and they thought well who am i to not to not at least start trying and if in any small way he's influenced wwe at least them recognizing the value of charitable work then that's also a massive benefit and that should be considered part of his legacy as far as i'm concerned Oh man, we've had an awful nice day talking about uh, Mick Foley. You want to get into some of them tweets and some of those Facebook posts? Well, Mankind, you've requested this time, so it's obvious that you have something to say. Well, I wanted to tell you what was going through my head when I first heard that The Rock was willing to take on Balvinus. So I got a little put off. Like, who is The Rock to fight my battles for me? Then I thought... Well, hell, that would be great to have somebody fight my battles for me. I'm old and beaten up, and maybe I could just hang back and be a friend and a financial advisor for The Rock. But then I thought, first off, that's not what friends do. And second off, I don't think the fans in Long Island want to see mankind sit on his fat candy ass. So, as a favor to The Rock, and as a favor to my dozens of fans here in Long Island, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fight the Rock's battles. You see, he's going to take on Val Venus, and I'm going to challenge the Bulldog. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take that microphone and, and and hit him with it. Have a nice day. I've got work to do. And we're back. I want to say a big shout out and a massive thank you to the huge, absurdly large response that we've gotten for this. We've gotten so many tweets. I think it's very obvious when we hit upon a topic or a wrestler where someone really or has struck a chord with the fan base at large and Mick Foley I think has definitely got to be one of the I don't know one of the biggest amounts of tweets we've ever gotten it seems yeah absolutely yeah it's been so nice hearing everyone's thoughts I don't think anyone's had a bad word to say God. About Mick Foley, which, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I mean, I am somewhat surprised because there was, as I said, a little period of time where I think his status as being unquestionably un- unbelievably beloved amongst everyone did kind of go down a little bit because I think he had a lot of, uh, I don't know, let's say less than happy interactions with fans online and there was, you know, he had a lot of opinions about the product, the wrestling product at the time that some people didn't agree with, yada, 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 but it's just kind of, it's nice to see that all that is what it was. It's just, you know, isolated crap in, you know, in, in wrestling's past where people disagree about stupid shit to do at wrestling. His status as a legend is definitely unquestioned. This one's from HBK Pitt. 
I've always found that Foley is the best guy to show to a new fan. He's very relatable, funny, and has great matches. People always say Rock or Austin, when it should really be Rock, Austin, or Foley. Yeah, oh man, if you want to have a, I don't know, like a Mount Rushmore type situation for stars of the Attitude Era, <laughs> if Mick Foley's not on there, considering he's got three faces, I think having just one up there is very much... <laughs> very reasonable. Know, very reasonable Compromise. in fairness. From Barely Sushi, Mick Foley is who got me into watching wrestling, and more importantly, his book and his ability to absorb damage helped me get through some really dark times in my early teens. I'm still here because of his wrestling and his writing. That's really powerful stuff, and I mean, those books are are fabulous reads and really, really important for a lot of folks. I mean, you know, for, for me reading them as a kid... It was pretty amazing to see that, you know, my hero, who's very much a proper grown-up, had the kind of background and had the kind of, you know, the the social obstacles to overcome and all of that stuff. And the fact that things worked out very well for him and he had a very happy marriage and all that, that was always something I held inside me. I was like, if it can happen to Mick Foley, it can happen to pretty much anyone, <laughs> I'm sure. But I mean, yeah, that's like, I know some people said that as well with uh, you know Bobby Heenan, that he was a character who brought a lot of joy and for people when you know, they were having dark times and whatnot. And it can't be understated the importance of that book, Have a Nice Day. Like, the term babyface and heel, I learned that from reading that book. Really? Like, so much of the kind of nomenclature and the kind of the psychology, I mean, finding out that you know, that there was a territory system, that there was places other than WCW and ECW and WWF. WWE wasn't big on history at the time. They were very much a product in the now at the time in the 90s. So that was an education for a lot of folks. I think a lot of people learned their first steps of being a smart fan from Mick Foley. This one's from RBX2000. One of the more underrated things about Foley for me is in a world before Daniel Bryan and CM Punk, he showed that you can get to the top not being seven foot tall or having the body of a Greek god, but with a personality that fans connect with. Yeah, personality is absolutely king. And while Joe and I have uh, debated what was Mick Foley's golden ticket to the promised land of wrestling immortality, I think we can certainly say when you've got enough personality to fill out three personas, (laughs) technically four, like, that's saying a lot. (laughs) From Brian Settles 88, I loved him as a wrestler. He showed that you don't have to be cool or some sort of beer-chugging anti-hero to be loved. My favourite thing about him is that he always made the people around him better. And all the charity work and penmanship is swell too. Yeah, uh, not only charitable in the real life world, but very charitable in the world of wrestling uh, constantly. You know, I mean, it's very funny when anytime I think we do a topic for wrestler where we've done a lot of viewing and we've done a lot of extended viewing for Foley. And I think we've maybe seen him win one yeah. match, maybe two, if you count DQs. Mm. He's not big on the picking up the W's as Mick Foley. Like in the most iconic win of his career, it's because Stone Cold Steve Austin runs in and beats up his opponent. So, you know, he, he was very much a, a charitable guy in more in many, many ways. <laughs> From Nysmith Matt. The original Mankind gimmick, brown tights and suit, used to give me nightmares as a kid. Cactus Jack would terrify me. Hell, even Dude Love was kind of creepy. But goddamn, I can watch him all day. Uh, I don't know about you. I'm never going to look at a piano the same way ever again. Mm. Like I'm never going to look at Mick Foley's fingers the same way again either. Seriously, what a spot. (laughs) 
Galaxy Quest Min says, The last time I full-on marked out was in the Street Fight versus Edge when Foley unveiled Barbed Wire Socko. No one before or since has been able to play comedic and ultra-violent in such close juxtaposition. That's what I like most about that Edge-McFoley match, and uh, even though Foley is down on it because you can see his underwear a lot in that match, it's one of my all-time faves. At the time, it was like it was my favourite match of that, of that time. And I think... You know, the one we watched with Randy Orton and he's holding up barbed wire or Socko. Why not both? Yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. He's grew up a little bit on that night. <laughs> and I think maybe as well, like, he does he realise the influence he's had on, like, a lot of wrestling productions that do combine those elements of, like, ultra-violence and comedy? Yeah. Like, I, I remember the match we watched for uh, the Young Bucks episode we did right back at the beginning of this podcast where they bring out a uh, bag full of what you think is tax and turns out to be gummy bears. <laughs> And then later on, they end up with a mouthful of tax being kicked in the face. So, I mean, that is, again, pairing those two qualities in a way that is very, I think, almost in ode to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anytime there's hyper-violence followed by hyper-chuckles, I always think (laughs) of Mick Foley. Wavy Lines says, As a chubby kid watching wrestling, I always felt conscious about how I looked. But when I saw Mick Foley for the first time, I actually thought, wow, he looks like me. Learning how sweet, cool, and crazy he is makes me want to be like him. Hashtag bang bang. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Foley uh, was a bit of a, a style icon for those of us who are heavy set youngsters. And particularly, I remember being so excited that I was going to secondary school where I would be required to wear a shirt and tie for the first time in my life. Uh, I was very, very happy about that fact. Although my teachers did not take very well to the mankind wearing of the loose shirt and uh, limping around with a, with a tie strewn over me. God, that's a look you didn't move past till you were like 20. Thanks, Joe. (laughs) Adrian Burke says, even more than his contemporaries, Mick Foley is the measuring stick of going too far for wrestling. I have real affection for his matches, but what he endured would have probably killed others, and hopefully wisdom has been gained on how far is too far. Yeah, I think anyone who is getting into wrestling and Mick Foley's your idol... You probably want to, you know, maybe have a, a listen to his interviews where he talks about the pain that he's in, or you know, he mentioned the, the being underwater feeling and sensation. I mean, there was a story he told in his book of right before his retirement of driving home from a show and then forgetting where he lived, just driving around for hours, and he didn't know where his house was, and just you know. Oh, is that him getting lost in Cleveland? Oh no, lost in Cleveland! Oh my God! And we nearly went the whole thing without talking about lost in it, Cleveland. Yeah, actually, I was I was gonna say a tweet from Philip Goad saying, I think Joe needs to learn about the time Mick Foley got lost in Cleveland. I was going to bring it up. Right, so in WCW, as a way to build a little bit of fun character, they thought, because Cactus Jack had been beaten up real bad and he was a, he was a face and he had disappeared and no one knew where he was, that he wanted to do these segments called The Lost in Cleveland where they had sent a roving reporter to try and find out the whereabouts of Cactus Jack and this reporter would be like, I'm here outside the smelliest bar in Cleveland full of degenerates. Assumedly, Cactus Jack is in here let's go and see if we can find him and essentially what it boiled down to is that these segments were making out that Cactus Jack kind of was like a homeless smelly man uh, they wanted to like film at his house and they were like sorry your wife is too hot can we get this like kind of 
you know, more tramp-like looking person to play your wife instead. Mm. And he basically had to play like he was like an escaped mental patient. It was really demeaning. Jesus. Yeah, he writes about it in his book about the uh, the kind of, it was the first time he'd been asked to do something that he was really, really uncomfortable with and he kind of felt ashamed of it afterwards and rightly so. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Like that's offensive to people with mental health problems, women and the homeless all in one. Yeah, uh, WCW went to the old mental asylum a few times too many in their playbook. Let's just say. <laughs> I am HCJ says, Every time I think of Mick Foley, I think of nothing but passion and dedication to wrestling. Whether he's delivering an anger fueled promo, a comedy backstage segment, or having a match, I would be glued to the screen because he would just grab my attention. It's really sad that like Foley, there was a in his fourth book he wrote about, and it was after his experience on commentary with Vince, where he said like the, the gates to Promo Land were closed forever, like he no longer he felt had it in him to be able to deliver those types of emotional promos and performances. And then you see him like doing something as simple as, I remember the promo he did to psych up Sami Zayn to fight uh, Braun Strowman. A lot of people were down on the angle at the time, but if you go back and watch it now and kind of not be you know, bogged down with you're not happy about how certain people are being booked or what's happening in the main event, just watch some of those segments. He still got it. The passion is still there. Mm. He still can deliver an incredible performance. And this is a man who once gave a fucking incredible promo that gave me goosebumps when he was talking to fucking Ryback. So he can pull it out when needs be, even when it <laughs> seems to have nothing to do with him. This one's from Joe Del Toro. Joe Del Toro, who wrote a fantastic fantastic article for us after our William Regal episode oh, about yes. why William Regal would make the perfect husband. If you haven't read it already, go to our website, www.howtowrestling.com. Check it out. Yeah, he's not just a fantastic. real man's man. He is also a real gentleman's gentleman. He a, truly is. And a husband's husband. <laughs> this is from Joe. A remarkable thing about his legacy is how often he's referred to as the man that fell from the cell. Not that The Undertaker was the man who threw a guy off. Yeah. Indicative of Foley's ability to own moments and make himself the most memorable he could possibly be. It's so funny to think if you really like that match, all the things that happen, he gets choked slammed through, he gets thrown off, he gets thrown into tax. These are all actions committed by The Undertaker, who a year later would become like essentially Satan incarnate, and never once do they ever refer to this man is horrible because of what he did to McFoley. It was always all, like, almost that Foley did it to himself, his yeah. sacrifice. And very rare in wrestling that people aren't going to take credit for doing big moves and big things. And yeah, it's kind of, other than, and the one thing the taker was said is that he made McFoley famous. It's like, yeah, well, no one really remembers that you were the one that do it at times, you know? I mean, yeah, that 1998 Hell in a Cell match is, is funny because I almost forget that The Undertaker is there in some and respect. And he, he's very much there, don't get us wrong. And like. honestly, the most I remember about The Undertaker is him, just the, the, the sight of him standing on the cell. Oh, as it's, as like, it's raised being, up, yeah. Being, as Mick's falling through it. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's like he's, he's barely, like, you don't... Really, The Undertaker doesn't even have to be in this match. Like Foley could have wrestled himself, probably. Fun fact about that match, Undertaker had uh, recently either sprained or fractured his ankle and was in excruciating pain. The only time you can tell in that match is when he jumps down into the cell and he kind of wobbles on his foot just Aww. for a second because he lands right in his feet. But of course, Undertaker, he doesn't usually sell these things. <laughs> <laughs> Lupine Book Club says... He seems to be a genuinely lovely guy and one who's not been ruined by the business in spite of having his share of ups and downs with it over the years. 
also managed to churn out a classic episode of Celebrity Wife Swap. Oh, We God. almost did this episode without mentioning Celebrity Wife Swap. Yeah, we saved all the good stuff for the end. Lost in Cleveland, Celebrity Wife Swap. Don't watch the Celebrity Wife Swap episode if you want to continue liking Mick Foley. Yeah, if you want to see Mick Foley be upset because uh, his wife that has been swapped won't help him put on his socks because he can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically the precursor to Holy Foley, like, you know. Yeah. Holy Foley, the inception, like. If you want to, like, ruin the mystique and magic of a relationship that on paper seems like the perfect marriage, yeah. There's a reason why we just don't go into the chaos of the day-to-day life of everyone's family. Yeah. It's, it's not always the nicest thing to see. No, no, it's messy. Grizzy Bakes says, Friends of mine love Mick Foley so much they named their rap group Mankind. Amazing. Each of their albums have a song called The Fall in tribute to Helena Cell in 1998. I have listened to this band. Ooh. They're great. You can check them out by going to mankindmusicacademy.bandcamp.com. I, uh, if you like a bit of rap, I do recommend it. Yeah, if you like uh, paying tribute to Hell in a Cell matches through the medium of rap, because so few are doing that these Not days. just Hell in a Cell, they've got a track about Dusty Rhodes. Too. Oh! Yeah, big wrestling fans, so I, I do recommend. Write a song about the time that Steve Austin nearly laughed at Dude Love and Vince McMahon dancing on stage. Yeah. That, that's what you need to do. <laughs> Tweeting Raw says... As a kid, I identified with Mankind in his constant search for friends, whether it was being rejected by Stone Cold, seeking approval from Vince and never getting it, or being let down by The Rock. I got him as a kid. Mankind was an outsider, I was an outsider. Mankind is cool, ergo, I must be cool. (laughs) Plus, he took some sick bumps for our entertainment. Yeah, and I think the fact that he was that outsider, weird, kind of dorky character, but he was always getting laughs and pops from everyone. That meant, you know, that was very encouraging for for, for the likes of me as a child. It's like, that made me double down on trying to be funny all the time. So, (laughs) thanks a lot for McFoley. You irritated a lot of teachers and children in your time through me. your parents really should just be grateful that you went off in that brand of uh, Mick Foley rather than the extreme violence yeah, sort well, of pathway. When I was 10 years old, I was holding up a sock and like some barbed wire, ooh, listened ooh, to the reaction, ooh. decided not to jump off the roof of my house. Yeah. Joe, it's been an absolute blast talking about the three faces of the hardcore legend Mick Foley. I know that it was someone that you knew a bit about, but do you feel you've learned a bit more about him today and increased your understanding? I think so. I, I still don't know where I personally stand with myself on the violence Mm. issue. I still don't know if it was necessary, but I can't deny that it didn't impact his career in a very positive way. Like, There's no denying that he couldn't have pulled off some of the things he did later on in his career if he didn't have that hardcore legend status already. Would that put you off checking out more of his matches if someone said, hey, we've got a you know a street fight here with, with Mick Foley, you want to check that out? Or would that make you kind of go, oh, how violent is it though? I mean, yeah. is there pause there? For me, it would be the type of violence. Is The Rock involved? Is The Rock involved when Mick Foley has his hands t- tied up behind him and he can't protect him? And it's him is it the Royal head? Rumble 1999? Yeah. <laughs> like, is there going to be, you know, 15 consecutive chair shots directly to the back of his head? You know, I probably don't want to watch that kind of stuff. But like, Yeah, I'm not going to be the type of person who'll sit down and be like, oh, let's watch Paul Blart Mall Cop. And then after the first iconic scene, it turns out I'm actually showing you I Quit match again. Right, again. You- you'll never have to see that match again, Thank honey. You. It's okay. Thanks. 
face. <laughs> but yeah, some of his matches are fantastic. And honestly, the main thing I want to see coming out of this is I want to go to YouTube and find like a compilation of Mick Foley as commissioner. Mm-hmm. And I just want to watch like, I don't know if there's a long 45 minute compilation of all the greatest segments involving him as a commissioner, but I would that's what I want to see. It's funny because right where me and Adam are at the moment, uh, you know, this is the start of... You know, the end of 2018, we are right at the point in the SmackDown Crawl, which is a series we do on Patreon for the Atmosphere podcast, where he becomes the commissioner. So there'll be lots of Mick Foley commissioner being played uh, if the network decides to ever fucking work again in the house. So there you go. <laughs> so we talked about a classic wrestler and someone who we may now agree could be a very, very, very good entryway point for a lot of your loved ones and friends who you think might want to get into wrestling. Uh, Mick Foley, when I was a young boy, was very good at getting rid of some of the preconceived notions that my loved ones had about wrestling and it's amazing to think that all these years some 20 years later Foley I think as a character and a person is just as effective at being uh, that nice introductory sweet spoon of medicine that gets people into the world of professional wrestling so there will be of course extended viewing as always recommended on howtowrestling.com where of course you can check out loads of lovely articles as well and hey if you want to write for howtowrestling.com you've got an idea for an article send an all email to howtowrestling at gmail.com pitch to Joe and let her know what your idea is and we'll take it from there there's some fab articles up there at the moment really really good ones I think especially the ones to do with William Regal we had fantastic article between Michael Francis and William Regal really in-depth look into the theory behind wrestling and what makes it what kind of characteristics you need to be aware of as a wrestler to sell your character to the audience yeah if there's any part of that William Regal episode if you you were finding that kind of discussion about the theory and whatnot then and that is a really great in-depth long read and do check that out on howtowrestling.com but we've been talking about some classic stuff Joe and stuff that's very fondly remembered but we're now going to delve into for our next episode maybe more of a current aspect of the product that some people and admittedly ourselves included have not really checked out and given the time of day and a fair shake at Joe our next episode is going to be all about the fantastic world of 205 Live we're going to be hitting that weight limit and looking at the seminal uh, looking at the flagship cruiserweight show that came from the cruiserweight classic airing weekly on the WWE network and it seems like every now and then you hear about fantabulous matches and great things that are going on but admittedly we've never checked it out and as a result of that Jill I think you and I may need to reach out and find an expert with which to help us on our journey I think you're absolutely correct we are not qualified to do this by ourselves so tune in next time for How 205 Live are we really going with that well other than that it'll be How to 205 Live which will make it seem like How 2205 Live I don't know I think we need a poll or something I just I'm not comfortable with making the assumption that people People will know that it's definitely 205 Live and not just 05 Live. <laughs> well, use the hashtag How205Live or maybe this How time, to 205 Live. Maybe this time we should have the hashtag How to, but not with the number two spelt to 205 Live, just to swerve everyone. So next time you will be listening to two people who will have to have tracked several hashtags as we attempt. I'm doing a poll. I'm doing a poll, okay? <laughs> I, I'm too anxious to make this decision. Well, this is times like this, I'm thankful that it is your job to do the social media for AT <laughs> Wrestling. We want match recommendations, your thoughts. Why is it that you've not checked out 205 Live? If, like us, you've heard some kind of reasons to not check it out, or if, like us, you've just 
maybe not found the time to check it out, let us know why 205 Live hasn't been on your radar. But those who seem to be fans of 205 Live seem to be very passionate indeed. So we want to hear from you guys. What are the matches? What are the segments? What are the episodes? It's only an hour-long show. There's, I'm sure, loads of fantastic episodes to check out. This is your chance to help the greater wrestling community at large maybe pay a little bit more attention, understand what's going on on that other, other, other brand of wrestling that you've heard about. <laughs> so, 205 Live, until next time, thank you so much for all of your tweets about Mick Foley. I've had a very nice day. I don't know about you. No, I've had a great day. Thanks Fantastic. for asking. Fantastic. Foley definitely is good and potentially God. that reigns to be seen. But we'll catch you next time with some 205 Live. It's going to be a goodbye from me, Kevin. And a bang, bang from me, Joe. Have mercy. We'll see you next time on How to Wrestling. See ya.